record. I'm hitting record. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man He's talking day he's mad and he feels like fighting Tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty from way back It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome to the mop-up for February 8th, 2021. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please friend me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. Don't forget to go to davidfeldmanshow.com to sign up for our newsletter. Well, we're going to get right to it. In Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon workers are voting on whether or not to unionize. Let's go to Great Britain, where Ricky Hutchison is standing by. He's with Weekly Marks, part of our Discord group where we study the teachings of Karl Marx. And we're also joined in Northern Alabama by Jacob Morrison. He is the Secretary Treasurer of the North Alabama Area Labor Council. He also co-hosts the Valley Labor Report. Ricky, introduce us to Jacob Morrison, please. Yeah, uh, I think you've done a great job there to begin with. Um, Jacob and his partner, uh, David Story, present uh, the Valley uh, Labor Report in North Alabama, and it's the only uh, labor radio show there uh, in uh, Alabama. So he's connected right as closely as you can get to uh, any labor activity happening in the state of Alabama. And uh, he's been driving a lot of the support and creating a lot of the linkages with um, the uh, unionizing of the Bessemer, Alabama um, Amazon Fulfillment Center. So this is a huge, huge opportunity for labor in the U.S. to get organized. And um, really, there's no one better 
than uh, Jacob to hear that story from because he's talking to the people who are physically doing this right now. So uh, thank you, Jacob. Amazing to have him on. Thank you, Jacob. Which union, if the Amazon workers vote to join a union, which union would they be joining? Right there. Retail, wholesale, and department store union. Uh, that's a division of the UFCW, uh, United Food and Commercial Workers. How big a union is that? The RWDSU, um, I'm not actually sure how many they cover. I know that their Mid-South Council represents currently about 10,000 workers, um, which is the local that is organizing with them, uh, that is organizing the um, uh the Amazon facility. So if they, um, you know, when they're successful, they're going to be looking at nearly double the size local that they've got already. So uh, they're really excited for it. Amazon is anti-union. This is the first attempt for Amazon employees in the United States to actually vote on a union. Is that correct? The first since 2014. In 2014, the machinists tried to organize a small bargaining unit of 60 uh, technical workers or something uh, back back in 2014. So, uh, But it's the first time since then that there has been an election at an Amazon facility. Did they um, succeed you know, back in 2014? No, 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 they didn't. They lost two to one, actually. It was pretty, uh, it, was, it was pretty, pretty bad. Why, why, um, why is that? I know that Amazon went before the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, last week to try to postpone the vote. Do they make it really hard to organize in the warehouses? Yeah, well, they do, they do things that any employer does or or that most employers do when they um uh when they're faced with an organizing drive and that even goes for like progressive employers you know quote unquote we've seen some uh pretty nasty tactics with uh um like the aclu for example the aclu um, didn't want to unionize Yes, that's correct. Yeah, the the ACLU in uh, Kansas, actually, they have been, the staff there has been in a protracted fight to uh, win a union there. And the ACLU of Kansas actually um, initial uh, they at one point retained Morgan Lewis, I believe it was, which is one of the most notorious anti-union uh, busting law firms in the country. And uh, I think that eventually they were able to get community pressure to get them to stop retaining them and stop using their services. But there's, I believe that they're still in a fight. Uh, well, Ricky, how is not ACLU in Kansas? How is I hate to go off this Amazon story, but how is that not getting bigger press that the ACLU is fighting their workers from going union? To me, this is how you use Tucker Carlson as an ally. He would love to get right. that story. Why isn't that being reported in the National Review? And why isn't Breitbart picking up on this to, to highlight the hypocrisy? You know, you know, this is the point is that um, running a PR campaign is as important to a union as it is to a corporate. And, uh, you know, we've got to accept that this this union drive has been done by a local. I was listening to um, to uh, the Valley Labor Reports um, show from um, from Saturday when they're outside the um, the the place in Bessemer, the facility in, in Bessemer. And you got to remember, you know, these people are just 
workers getting out there. They need all the help they can get. And if you've got PR skills and you can help them, offer it. Because you know what? We have systems of organizing labor, but we are fighting against the largest corporation on earth. You know, yeah. you now are they union have, in Great Britain? Has Amazon? Amazon has a very similar status as uh, you do in the States because our union laws aren't as strong as the union laws on the continent. Um, so you're talking we, about Europe. Uh, in Europe, uh, they're union. Sorry, the wrong continent. Yeah, in, right. in Europe, the, the European uh, laws on unions are much stronger. Ours have been gutted by uh, Thatcherism and the Conservative Party over the last four years. But um, there are unions active inside Amazon, but not across the entire piece. And, um, you know, that sort of uh, piecework contract work, which uh, Jacob's fighting against in Bessemer, is the same in many uh, places in uh, the UK. In fact, uh, a really good uh, documentary was made about two years ago showing just how similar the shocking standards of work are in UK warehouses as they are in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. So, so in Bessemer, yeah, well, Alabama. And so, well, you know, so David, you, you know, I mentioned that these the tactics were, um, you know, uh, they were common, but I didn't actually uh, go into them. I kind of got off on a tangent about the ACLU, but I mean, it's really been bad. Uh, one of the most shocking things that uh, Luis um, uh, Leon reported out of the American Prospect is that they have hired about three to 500 contract workers. Uh, so they're not technically employees of Amazon. Um, they're paying them $13 an hour, which is below their stated $15 an hour minimum wage. They're not in the bargaining unit because they're not um, officially employees of Amazon. And they're more or less just using them as anti-union billboards. They've stuck both no pins on them. And, you know, they, Louise talked to some of them and they were like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they just told us to wear this. And uh, these are people that they're preying on their vulnerability. They're right out of prison. Um, they don't have any other job prospects. And it's just really disgusting how they're using these people as anti-union billboards of course they're talking about dues how um you know they're actually lying about uh they're saying that if you sign an authorization card you can be legally mandated to begin paying dues immediately which is not true alabama is a right to work state nobody in any union workplace is ever mandated to pay dues um and then the rwdsu has a policy of not even requesting anybody pay dues until the first contract is sign they're saying that oh you might could get more you might could get less and of course the only way that they get less is if the workers vote for a contract with less because well, nobody uh, hang on for one second let, let me understand something here jacob and thank you or ricky for bringing jacob and you brought him in at office hours friday and uh this is an embarrassment of riches office hours so if alabama is a, a right to work state that means that you can enjoy all the union benefits without having to pay union dues. Unfortunately, yes. So what? what but did, so uh, if you vote, explain this to me. So if I work for Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama, and I vote for a union contract, does that mean I have to pay dues? No. So why wouldn't you vote for a union contract? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of confusion around right, right to work and is and is I mean, is there a way to use it. is there a way to use the, right are, to work really states leaning, 
against. Yeah, like, they are leaning into that. They're saying, you know, but like this is a right to work state. Nobody like nobody's going to make you pay dues, you know, uh, like. But then how does the union stay solvent if nobody can pay dues? Well, uh, they have to prove themselves. You know, every union in Alabama has to prove itself to its workers. And, you know, I think that there should be, um, you know, I think that they should be given the benefit of the doubt. But my co-host, David Story, he's the president of a machinist local in rural Alabama. I mean, he represents uh, like 300 like conservative white men. Right. But uh, 93% of them are members of the local. And the only people that aren't are people that they don't let in the local because they're scabs. They've crossed picket lines in the past, so they don't let them in the local. So you were saying these are Trump supporters. Yes. Yeah. Who voted for a democratic socialist to head their union. Who voted for an anarchist to head their union. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, know, Trump I mean, is kinda, an anarchist in the wrong sense of the word. <laughs> so they probably like but, it. Uh, you know, I mean, even even in collective bargaining states, it's not the, the only thing what right to work does is it makes it illegal for unions to bargain for a fair share clause in the contract. Even in collective bargaining states, unions don't have to bargain for that. And and the employer can say no. It's if the union is strong enough, though, then they can have that put in the contract. So what is the racial mix? States, it's not. What, what is the what is the racial mix of the the Bessemer of the warehouse? Amazon facility? Yeah, eighty uh, percent of the workforce is black. Is is black, and what kind of solidarity are we seeing in Bessemer right now? From there was actually a big community rally on Saturday. It was freezing cold in the rain. Um, just horrible, horrible conditions. And we had um, 150 some odd people come out from a bunch of different unions, uh, from the DSA, PSL, from uh, the, you know, electrical workers union, iron workers union. Uh, Some Teamsters drove out from Boston um, because there was... uh, Michelle Obama was there. Bill Clinton was there, right? uh, Hunter Biden, Jill Biden. No? Yeah, unfortunately not. Richard Trumpka? What about Richard Trumpka, the head of the AFL-CIO? Was he there? Trumpka was not there. Trumpka was not there. Uh, You Mm. know, um... But Rachel Maddow is Rachel Maddow covering this? (laughs) No? (laughs) No. (laughs) Ah, that's so weird. You know, I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate that Biden has been so quiet because he told... But I bet Hunter Hunter Biden, who got a two million dollar book deal, I'm sure he's going to not sell it through Amazon in solidarity with the workers. Mm. Right. He must have. You would think you would think. I don't know. Maybe you've heard something. No, I I haven't. But, but, you know, I mean, Joe Biden told a bunch of Teamsters before the election. He was like, uh, we should really look into um we should really look into uh, prosecuting union busters with the Department of Justice. Hmm. And uh, and he also said, I'm going to be the other. most pro-union president yeah. in American history. But yeah, he was busy. At, more than, he was busy getting booed at the Super Bowl. Right. Instead. Right. Yeah. We're going to need to do more than tweet uh, to get that title. <laughs> so, OK, so no help from the Democratic Party, I would assume Bernie a little help from Bernie. Bernie actually bought pizza for everybody at the rally on Saturday. Hmm. 
he caucuses with the Democrats. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and, and AOC, it's not safe for mm-hmm. her to travel because of but the- she has right she has tweeted in support of the union so as elizabeth warren and after bernie aoc warren um after they came out some some of the local democrats have been more inclined to support um but uh, but it's still kind of slow going so elizabeth warren good for her yes okay it's not up to us to vote as to whether or not the workers at Bessemer go union, but we should write to our Congress people and say, I, I, Ralph Nader told me, you write to them and say, what have you done? What is your position on Amazon mm-hmm. going union? What are you doing? In other words, instead of urging them to do something, inquire. Hmm. Ask them, what are you doing now to support the the Amazon union effort in Bessemer? That makes them actually stop and think. Instead of just saying, I want you to do something, ask them what they're doing. So uh, what what are the early polls showing? Do they, do they have any polling on this to determine... They've got some internal polling, but uh, nothing public at the moment. Uh, they feel, you know, um, I'm I mean, you know, I'm at the local union hall right now. So I, I'm I've been talking to them uh, and, you know, what the, they'll uh, they've said, you know, I'm not. Um, they've said that they're not they're not worried, but they're not like super, super confident either. You know, they're kind of somewhere in the middle. They they, they know that they've got a shot. Um, and, uh, I've been, I've been making some calls and, and so the results of, of the calls that I've had have, have largely been pretty good. Um, so, you know, it's gonna, uh, it's really going to come down to, um, the base turnout. I think it's interesting. Um, we were talking about, I was talking to him earlier today about some of the demographic support and they said they were figuring because of, you know, the way that folks politics lean that the young people would really be kind of their base but uh but it's actually been the reverse um because the older folks like sometimes because the the quotas have been there so so hard on a body that has any amount of age at all and that they are like we need to be able to slow down we need to be able to have some job security i want to be able like i don't want to continue getting job after job i want to be able to have this secure job where the young folks are like yeah you know i can do this this is fine and they're also thinking that this is going to be a temporary gig and so they're not really investing in the long term Mm -hmm. and so it's really kind of flipped the organizers what they've been thinking kind of on their head um but you know with it being mail-in they know that folks who are you know 40 50 60 years old they can they know how to work the mail right where some some folks my age you know we don't really we don't really use the mail didn't the homunculus didn't the homunculus jeff bezos want to make the workers vote in person he was against mail-in ballots right he was he was yes he wanted Even though, he wanted the workers to risk their lives in a pandemic mm-hmm. and have to vote in person instead of use the mail right. i guess he doesn't trust the mail even though he's built an entire multi-trillion dollar business using the mail right 
Right. I mean, yeah, the irony is the irony is really funny for sure. Um, so and, you know, why Jeff don't we Bezos, do I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, Jeff Bezos stepped down the other day. I don't know if you heard. Yes. Uh, David. Yeah. David, my co-host, co-host said that he's never been a part of a union campaign where uh, some manager isn't thrown under the bus, but he's never seen a CEO thrown <laughs> under the bus during. The- <laughs> Well, he would probably look better if he got thrown under a bus. I guess he quit because his accountant told him that if he was worth three trillion, he'd still look like a blistered penis. He really does. I mean, that if you want to understand evil, the face of evil, look at Jeff Bezos. No matter what he does, he looks like something Lorena Bobbitt tossed to the side of the road. He's just a severed penis face. Or a dickhead, depending on how you want to look at it. The FTC (laughs) fined Amazon about $62 million for Mm -hmm. withholding tips from the Amazon Flex drivers. That was, what, last week? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So that's $62 million. That's nothing. Right. That's absolutely nothing. Yeah, that that's exactly right. It, it's it's absolutely nothing. That's why, um, you know, I mean, that's one no, of the for reasons. me. That's nothing. Maybe it's something for Amazon. But I had a I had a <laughs> right, great year. The show yeah, is doing so well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, David Feldman could handle a 60, yeah, 60, $61 million dollar fine. Yeah, I'll just course, flip yeah. another house and sell it to Ellen and Portia. <laughs> hey, Ricky, tell me about the history of Marxism in Alabama. Well, it's it's really quite interesting because you'd think it's not the place for Marxists to, to do well, but um, I was reading up on Bessemer in particular, and it has a great history of socialism. Uh, lots and lots of um, labor organizing around the mines and the steel and uh, that type of industry uh, in that particular part of Alabama. And listening to the Valley Labor Report, it's just really quite inspiring to hear how much activity um, I was listening to Randy uh, from the union, who was president of the union, just an absolutely stunning guy. Um, Daryl there, who you had on uh, from from the Bessemer facility itself. You know, th- there's a real history of solid uh, labour organising. The key thing here, and I, I love this, I think Thomas Franks would love to hear this story because this is that populist labour organising. You know, these, these guys are quoting scriptures uh, during the during the interview, and really beautiful parts of it too. You know, it's sort of, it is a conservative place, but there's the socialism ingrained in that part of the culture. And, um, you know, that's where I think in the States, if you can mobilise the, you know, the the proletariat as such, regardless if they're um, folks down in the South or, you know, like we have the people from Rhode Island or, or wherever they are, you know, wherever people need material conditions to improve, that's where our base is. So, you know, I was really impressed. And by the way, you don't have really... to be a, a Marxist or a socialist to support union unionizing or paying people a livable wage. That's just common decency. It doesn't matter what your political stripe is. Yeah. This is yeah. the, the Amazon creates the working poor. What do the what do they make? I know Bernie introduced something like the Jeff Bezos Act two years ago. So he shamed Jeff Bezos into promising each employee a $15 minimum wage. But 
he robbed from Peter to pay Paul, didn't he? Took away stock options. What 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 do the Bessemer Alabama employees? What do they make right now? What is what is the benefit to joining a union, Jacob? Uh, well, the my understanding of the average wage at the Bessemer plant is fifteen dollars and thirty cents an hour. Um, but uh, what is the benefit to join a u- joining a union? You know, I was I, I actually had a phone call with a worker. You know, like I said, I've been phone banking, and so one of these conversations, the guy was like, uh, "You know, I don't really have anything that that I'd like to change. I'm pretty happy with the pay, pretty happy with the benefits, and things like that." And you know, I was picking at him a little bit, and I'm like, "All right, man. You know, look, if I if I gave you a magic wand and said, look." any three things tomorrow it's done. You just put it down and say, no, I'm good. And he's like, well, you know, <laughs> I might have to think about it a little bit, but really I'm pretty happy. Uh, you know, I mean, it could change Sunday, but I, you know, I'm pretty happy right now. And I was like, that's the thing. It could change Sunday. It could change the next day you go to work without ever consulting you without any, any notice your boss writes the contract and in that contract, he says that he can change it at any time for any reason. And that's the difference. When you've got a union in the workplace, you're going to be able to come together. You're going to be able to sit across to elect people from the workplace, from the shop floor, to sit across from management, write the words that you'll be working on, vote on those words. And once they're accepted by both parties, that is the law of the land, so to speak. And the uh, employer cannot change that unilaterally. Uh, you know, they have to consult workers and that, you know, so that's the thing is like democracy in the workplace and being able to have a say uh, 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 over your working conditions. It can you change know, overnight. I'm posting a story right now about the new mega cycle, the 10 hour graveyard mm-hmm. shift that the Chicago warehouse is forcing as of January 25th in Chicago, the Amazon warehouse is forcing their employees to sign on to the 10 hour mega cycle, which goes from uh, 120 a.m. to 11:50 a.m. And that's really easy for single moms to take jobs yeah. with those hours. The mega cycle. Does the Amazon warehouse have a red phone that goes directly to the union so that when somebody is having a heart attack, they don't force them to keep working? I mean, there are stories of the Pennsylvania warehouses where Mm -hmm. a gentleman is having a lethal heart attack and they go over, the other employees go over to assist them. And after three minutes, they're ordered to go back to work and wait for the ambulance to arrive. If they were union, I would assume there'd be a red phone and you call the union and they Mm -hmm. get down there and they punish Amazon. There there, there are benefits in terms of safety, right? Right. Well, I mean, because, yeah, because that's that's part of the contract. And I mean, in a a lot of union places, you know, or, or in most union workplaces where safety is, is kind of a big issue, you're going to have safety committees and you're going to have these people that are from the shop floor. You know, they're not um, they're not lawsuit prevention departments like HR. They are people that are from the shop floor that care about their safety and their co-workers safety. And, you know, you can see that the um 
you know, of course, like, I mean, you know, like Amazon says, nothing is guaranteed, quote unquote, but we can look at the data and we can get some idea of what's going to happen when uh, when a facility unionizes and when workers get to vote on their contracts and when workers get a say over their working conditions and 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 uh, unionized workplaces are significantly safer. I think there's something like an 80 percent decrease in fatalities. And uh, we've seen in unionized nursing homes, there is a 40 percent decrease decrease in fatalities for uh, patients uh, with COVID. You know, I mean, this is, um, it's, it's well documented that it's good for the workers, it's good for their pay, their benefits, their safety, and the people they serve where, where it's a service job. And, and then for their communities, they increase the non-union pay as well because of the competition and markets and everything. That's something that these conservatives love to talk about is markets. And if you have a unionized workplace in the market, that's going to drive up the, uh, the, uh, the expectations in the community. I mean, there's just so many, you know, we talk about trickle down effects. Well, it, the trickle down effects of unions are real. I the mean, multiplier it's, it's like, effect. Keynes talks about the multiplier effect. We have to wrap it up. Will you come back next week? Sure. sure. For Ricky, will you come back with Jacob next week? When it, when Absolutely. when do they when is the election over, Jacob? So ballots were sent out today. They have to be in by March 29th. Ballots will be uh, begin being counted on March 30th could take a few days. So we should uh, we should know the results sometime at the beginning of April. That's fantastic. And next week, we'll talk about what my listeners can do to help the union effort in Bessemer, other than contacting your congressman and senator, your congressperson. I don't know, person is kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't think my congress human is human. I don't know. Congress. Yeah, well, person? I'm represented by Mo Brooks. So. Oh my know. God. Yeah. Count yourself lucky. <laughs> the worst of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. He's the absolute. Hey, uh, Richard Shelby says he's not running for re-election. I know. So, yeah. any chance that Alabama goes? No. no Doug no, Jones. No. 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 Nothing. Okay. No, he lost to Tommy Tupperville by more than 20 points. It was yeah. like 60.1 to 39.8. You know, yeah. like if Roy Moore w- ran and won, he would he would win. You know, there were very, 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 very special conditions that led to Duck Jones getting in the Senate. Okay. Thank you so much, Ricky Hutchinson. I'll talk to you on Thursday because you have a, a special guest. We're, we'll talk about Rhode Island on Thursday's show. And Ricky, how do people study marks with you well come join us at uh on twitter at morning marks or at weekly marks and uh coming up at the end of the month we've got um dr harriet fraud and uh, her husband uh, uh professor richard wolf coming to join us to do our final lecture for capital uh volume one so come join us uh, get on the discord with andy brown and uh come join us uh, jacob you're welcome to come along and and have a listen uh, and then you start uh, the yeah, communist manifesto right? along. you're going to do the communist manifesto we start the communist manifesto right yep, which is do. a lot easier to read so than capital be- right well, it's a bit of light work for the team, but uh, I'm sure they're itching to get into volume two capital. So, um, you know, we'll do a, do that, maybe do a, a couple of short essays from uh, Fanon or something like that. Uh, okay. But yeah, Fantastic. It's, it's all about um, uh, working class self-education. Okay, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit 
the office hours menu, you'll get an invite. And if you come to office hours, then you get an invite to join Andy Brown's Discord group. And it opens up a whole new world to you. And I want to thank Jacob Morrison. He is the secretary treasurer of the North Alabama Area Labor Council and co-host of the Valley Labor Report, which I think airs on Sundays or Saturdays. Saturdays, 9.30 uh, Replay airs on Sunday in a small radio station in Russellville, Alabama. Fantastic. I hope to see you next Monday. Thank you, Ricky. Now let's go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where Henry Huckamacki is standing by. And I think, where are we going? Are we going to Europe as well? We're going to Brussels, David. We have wow. a very distinguished guest today. My guest is Glenn Ford, who is a member of the European Parliament for 25 years. And uh, during his time, uh, both in the European Parliament as well as outside of that, he made over 50 diplomatic missions to uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also known as North Korea. He's probably one of the, the Westerners who's visited North Korea the most times by by my reasoning. Uh, he also has two relatively recent books that people should check out on the topic of North Korea. The first being North Korea on the Brink, Struggle for Survival, and more recently, The Excellent, Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff. Both of those are from Pluto Books. He also writes for Chartist, NK News, and 38 North. So, Glenn, uh, nice to have you on the show. My pleasure, my pleasure. So, as I said, uh, you know, you, you were in the European Parliament and, and you went to North Korea over 50 times. But maybe we should start off this interview by by having you introduce yourself briefly to the audience and how how you became acquainted with North Korea. I'm unfortunately a football fan. And so I was at the age when in 1966, there was the uh, the World Cup in England, which uh, some of it, uh, well, I'm also Italian, so I'm Anglo-Italian, so I'm fine. It, I'm not quite sure who to support when we play each other. But uh, it's a, it's amazing uh, that you would say football right after the Super Bowl and well, be referring to soccer. But go yeah, ahead. I was referring to soccer, but I, I have a soft spot for the Cincinnati Bengals, which shows that I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a loser. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, in the UK, I used to say that uh, I, I hate football. I'm a Man City fan, but unfortunately, <laughs> we've got rather good since then. And of course, anyone who follows it will know we trashed Liverpool yesterday four-one. Uh, but I'll get back to North Korea. Uh, in '66, we had the World Cup in England, and the North Koreans qualified. Everyone was stunned, and I was interested in the in the obscure. So I kind of followed the North Korean team, and uh, they got through. Uh, the, they, they drew, they lost to Russia, drew with Chile, and beat Italy 1 0. So, your, your Italian shirt. And so, they got to the quarterfinals where they played Portugal, went 3 0 up after 30 minutes. And then, then Eusebio came back uh, and scored four goals. I mean, they, the Portuguese actually won 5 3. But Eusebio got four of them, so I had this this interest. And when I got to the, when I got to the European Parliament, I was elected in '84. Uh, I got on the International Trade Committee, and I remember tabling a question about EU North Korea trade, and the answer was there wasn't any. But I guess the North Koreans picked that up in a way. They knew that, that they knew there was someone who had some interest. So in '97, 
1997, I suddenly get a knock on my door in the European Parliament and it's two North Koreans from the embassy in, uh, to UNESCO in Paris saying, uh, we've got a famine in North Korea, we need food aid, can you help us? Uh, well, I mean, fine. At the time, there were, nobody had diplomatic relations in Europe with North Korea. Uh, the European Commission officials were not allowed to talk to North Koreans, so they were fairly desperate. I said, I, I need to see what the situation is. And so uh, they said, fine. So I went with two colleagues, two Labour colleagues. I'm a member of the British Labour Party. And we, we went to, to Pyongyang. We, we went round and we went to children's centres. I mean, I well, I am a scientist. I'm a geologist, but I'm not a medical scientist. But, I mean, uh, we saw some very hungry children, wasted, uh, and the rest. The, the place was grim in the extreme. Uh, the lights didn't stay on for very long. Uh, and, and all the rest. So it was clear that they, they did need help, at least, to, uh, and it was proved in retrospect that was the case. Uh, I said to them, uh, yeah, would you like an official delegation? And they said, of course. Yeah, I mean, we'd love an official delegation. They said, you don't care how I get it? I said, no. So I came back and we tabled a resolution demanding that North Koreans allow an official delegation to go into North Korea. And uh, so if we ask nicely, we should send a friendship delegation to North Korea, the European Parliament would have said, you've got to be joking. But we demanded they give us access, so we sent off the standard letter demanding access, and much to everyone's surprise, got a letter back saying, we'd be delighted, send an official delegation. And so I ended up going with uh, uh, on an official delegation to North Korea, and that started the process. European Parliament set up a standing delegation with the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I went with the socialist group in the European Parliament. I've been with some foundations and the rest. And in I, just under, I think I've 47, 48 times I've been to North Korea now. Yeah, a little bit of reverse psychology there at its finest. But before we get into what the conditions are like in North Korea further, as well as uh, what relations between North Korea and the West are like, I think that it would be important for us to first dive into the history of North Korea, because the history really does lay the foundations for the conditions within North Korea, but also how the, the government of North Korea views other locations in the world, particularly the West. So why don't I just basically unleash you to uh, give us a brief run through of the history here. And perhaps you can start with the USS General Sherman, which before reading your book, I was not aware of, but I found to be a very interesting uh, event. So why, why don't we pick up with the USS General Sherman well, and just give yeah, us I a mean, run through? I mean, North Korea was a little bit like Japan. If you remember, Japan was famously opened by uh, you know, uh, Commander Perry's black ships. Uh, the, the Korea was just as close as Japan, and it wasn't opened by Commander Perry. Uh, there, was a, there, there was the General Sherman who uh, pitched up, and apparently it was uh, Kim Il-sung's grandfather that was there. Not entirely convinced that he was necessarily the leader in this, but they, they demanded American access. Uh, uh, the, the Koreans didn't like it. It, it. it turned into a fight, and... Yeah, the Americans who were trying to impose themselves on North Korea got killed. Uh, and the result was a, a punitive expedition a few years later. But, I mean, fundamentally, North Korea was a feudal country, uh, a fairly primitive feudal country, uh, up until, uh, if you want, around 19, the, the 1890s, 
And then there was a scuffle between the Japanese and the Russians and the Chinese to a degree about who was going to be uh, who was going to be the top dog. And the result in the end, after the uh, Japanese-Russian War, 1904-1905, the Japanese came out on top. They occupied uh, Korea in, in, in effectively in 1905, but officially took it over in 1910. So from 1910 to 1945, it was a, it was a colonial regime where the Japanese were certainly pretty brutal. Uh, there were phases when it wasn't quite so bad, but in the end, it got pretty brutal. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Koreans were coerced and in some cases forced to go and work in Japan. Uh, you have the, all the problems of the sex slaves. I mean, the Koreans weren't the only ones, but uh, young young girls were uh, rec- recruited into the art, recruited, forced into the army brothels and the rest. So it was pretty brutal. Uh, then, of course, just after the Russians declared war in Japan, it was only about seven days before the war ended that Stalin declared war on, on, on Japan. Uh, and the result of that was that the, the Japanese collapsed, Japanese surrendered. Uh, the combination of the threat of a communist takeover of Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki led to a surrender. Result was that the Russians are on the border because there was a small border with North Korea. Actually, had the opportunity to sweep right the way down and occupy the whole of it, but they didn't. They did a deal with the Americans, 38th parallel. We'll have the bit at the north. You have the bit at the south. So you had two separate zones of occupation, like you had in Austria, like you had in Germany. Problem in North Korea is they ended up falling out very badly. Uh, the two sides. So you had, in the South, you had Sigmund Rhee, an American-imposed dictator. Uh, In the North, you had Kim Il-sung, who was brought in. He'd been been part of the Red Army. Previously, he'd been China fighting with the partisans. So you had the two regimes, both of whom actually wanted to, to run the country. And so the result was from probably about 47, 48, you had uh, civil insurrection. Uh, Tens of thousands of people actually were killed in the South before the war started. May I interject something quickly? One thing that I thought was very interesting, again, I hadn't known prior to reading your book, is that just before this period of the the civil war that was occurring in Korea, um, when we had this partitioning of Korea between the Soviets in the North and the Americans in the South, there was really uh, work that was being done to try to put together a peninsula-wide election. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that fell apart. And, and uh, I think that the reason why was quite interesting. Would you, would you mind uh, telling the listeners why well, that I mean, negotiation fell apart? Yeah, well, frankly, it fell apart because the wrong guys were going to win. Uh, I mean, there was enormous support, both south and north, for the people who had actually been fighting uh, against the Japanese. Uh, and, it, and Kim Il-sung was one of them. He probably wasn't as important as the North Koreans claim, but he was certainly one of the partisan leaders. Uh, there were a lot of leftists, socialists, communists and the rest, both in, in what, what became the north and the south, actually fighting against the Japanese. Following liberation, these were the people that everybody... He wanted to vote for. Sigmund Rhee had been a uh, uh, had been in exile in the United States. In uh, uh, nobody knew who the hell he was. Uh, he was just convenient. Uh, he was like probably Chalabi in in Iraq. 
Uh, he was in the right place at the right time to be imposed by Washington. So, of course, you couldn't have elections. The wrong guys were going to win. One other thing that I thought was interesting that might be worth bringing up right now is uh, this blend of nationalism and communism that really was bubbling up at this time. And a lot of it traces back to when the Japanese were occupying uh, the peninsula back in, you know, starting in 1904, 1905, and going all the way up until the end of the Second World War. You know, uh, as you said, the, the individuals like Kim Il-sung were quite popular across the entire Korean peninsula, and they they would have won that election had it gone gone through on a, a peninsula-wide basis. But I, I think that it's worth mentioning that a lot of the the nationalism and communism that was present in the peninsula was able to be traced all the way back to when the Japanese were, were collectively, uh, not collectively, the Japanese owned the farms and the factories in the country. Well, yeah, there are two interesting things. I mean, uh, firstly, the North Korean regime is was not an imposed regime. Uh, it was an indigenous regime that, 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 um, that emerged on the ground. So it wasn't like much of Central and Eastern Europe where you had regimes imposed by, uh, by the Soviet empire. Uh, so it, it, it had a strength and a resilience that didn't exist in Central and Eastern Europe. So when you went through the, uh, when the Soviet empire collapsed in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, everyone expected Korea to go the same way. It didn't. It's it, it's a, it, because it's this local regime because it's this resilient regime. It was it was able to survive, and uh, 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 that that was that was very that was very important for, in in a sense, the future. Yeah, and then one other thing that I want to put in here before we talk about the Korean War is you mentioned briefly that even before the the Korean War started, there was a lot of killings and and political prisoners that were in the South. And uh, I'm just going to quote directly from your book here, if you don't mind. Uh, You say, by 1949, 100,000 political prisoners were crowded into Rees jails. It's in the South, of course. The number of civilian deaths in the South had reached at least 200,000. Some claim as many as 800,000 before the Korean War even started. Uh, and that plays a big role in the Korean War then. Well, it does, because the problem is that when, when Kim Il-sung tried to persuade uh, Mao and Stalin to back him in terms of goods, not, not military, uh, in, in terms of war materials, uh, he was saying this is going to be an easy victory. Uh, be, be, because what, as soon as we as soon as we strike south, then uh, there's going to be a be an uprising of support from all those people who actually from the socialists and the communists who are who are on our side. Uh, the problem was that it was too late. I mean, Re had already eliminated those people. They were dead. I mean, if he was going to win the civil war, he needed to have started uh, two or three years earlier. Uh, there was certainly the support there, but uh, if you want, Re got his retaliation in first. And it's only recently that this started to come out in the south. I mean, I was in Jeju, on Jeju Island not so long ago. There are now big memorials for the 60,000 people who are massacred on Jeju Island over a period of years following a, a, a not very... Uh, a, a rather abortive minor uprising that's this massive oppression. You can now go and visit the sites and the rest. Until 20 years ago, it was completely impossible to speak of that in the South. I and mean, I'm, let me say, I'm not arguing there are no atrocities in the North, 
Uh, there were people who died in the north, but you'd find the, the good thing why you didn't have such a level of repression is for a long time the border was semi-open, and so when people were being uh, mostly the Japanese owned most of the property anyway, so the, the properties weren't being taken off wealthy Koreans in the north; they were being taken away from the Japanese who take them over, and where there were some wealthy Koreans around, they were able to flee to the south. So it was it was much more gentle, at least at that period, than it was in many other countries like you saw in, in the Soviet Union with the, with the kulaks in the 1920s. Yeah, and I found another quote of yours that I have underlined in here because I, I liked it so much, and this goes to the point that uh, Kim, when he was sweeping south, was expecting the support to come from individual communists in the south to basically join up in this sweeping move to take the whole peninsula and unify Korea. Uh, you write, when Park uh, assured Kim that tens of thousands of Southern communists would give their lives in the battle for national liberation, he failed to appreciate that the majority already had. That was a wonderful turn of phrase. As I give you applause for that. That was excellent. Oh, exactly the point I was trying to make. I mean, I mean, there were probably at least four Korean wars. There was the one nobody talks about. I mean, there's an argument who started the Korean War. I say the interesting question is when did the Korean War start? And you can probably go back to, I think, the 4th of April, 1948, when the Cheju uprising started. So that was probably the date for the uh, when, when the Civil War started. You then had him sweeping south. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, the, the notion that the south started the war in the sense of invading, I don't buy. But then Kim, Kim swept south and all but one. Apart from a small pocket around Busan and Jeju Island, the, the north had swept all the way down there. Americans, the Americans decide they're going to intervene. So Americans send in MacArthur, uh, uh, Inchon Landing, big success. Uh, MacArthur actually restores the status quo ante, which is what the demand was. The UN had agreed we need to restore the status quo. MacArthur does that. But then, with no agreement by the UN, changes uh, a peacemaking operation into an expeditionary force. So he goes north across the parallel and, and sweeps up, and that's when the Chinese decide, yep, the Americans are going to try and overthrow us. They're going to use Taiwan. They're going to use Burma. They're, 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 going to, they're going to use Korea to actually overthrow the regime that's only been in place for probably yeah, 12 months. And they said, now, where do we fight this? Do we want to fight at home or away? And they decide, well, fight away. Let's fight, on the, let's fight in Korea. And so that's when the decision is made that, yes, we are defending ourselves from the Americans, but we'll fight, we'll fight in a way match uh, and we'll do it in Korea. And they sent hundreds of thousands of, uh, of troops in to fight. And basically it was American technology versus Chinese bodies. Yeah. Now, I know that the listeners are going to be disappointed by what I'm doing here because it's going to seem like I'm skipping the Korean War. Um, instead, I'm just going to quote from your book to cover the Korean War in terms of the scope of it because I want to make sure that we have some time to talk about what the conditions are like in North Korea, because there's a lot of books on the Korean War, but we don't always have access to somebody who's been to North Korea almost 50 times. So I'm just going to read this quote, and then I'm going to have you talk about what the conditions were like in North Korea after the war and what the conditions are like today. So, oh, 
uh, and I'm going to start here deliberately. You say, yet with significant exceptions, both North and South Korean forces normally treated their fellow countrymen as exactly that. Both were fighting to reunite a single country and a single people. That was not always the case with the U.S. troops. The Army, Air Force, and Navy frequently strafed refugees as they attempted to cross U.N. lines. The U.S. carpet-bombed and more or less leveled the North. The eastern port of Wonsan endured 861 straight days of naval shelling. More bombs were dropped on the North than on Germany in World War II, with 600,000 tons of bombs raising cities, towns, and villages. The bombers ran out of targets and were left to rearrange rubble. Many of the bombs contained napalm, here used as a weapon of mass destruction for the first time. The liquid petroleum jelly stuck like glue and burnt its victims alive. Oceans of petrol were poured over the civilian population, incinerating them in the tens of thousands. Around Sinchon, from mid-October to the beginning of December 1950, tens of thousands of Koreans were massacred. Pyongyang claims the perpetrators were U.S. troops, and there is a grisly Sinchon Museum of American war atrocities. South Korea's Truth and, Reconciliation, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission accepted that mass killings had taken place, but argued that right-wing militias carried them out with the knowledge of the UNC. There's more, but I think that I'm going to stop there in terms of the Korean War. So now we're stepping off here, and North Korea had been completely flattened. I mean, there was almost nothing left in North Korea. You have you talk about, I, I believe, half of the industry was destroyed. A third of the houses in the country were destroyed. Something yeah, like that. And the capital Pyongyang was was essentially flattened. I mean, the yes. North story is there are only two two buildings left left intact out of the, the whole. Population. And they still didn't surrender to. Uh, <laughs> what does that say? Yeah. Well, that's what Glenn was saying. This is because this this leadership in North Korea came from the people. It's what the people wanted, unlike what was in the South, where it had essentially been foisted on them. But I do want to move on from the Korean War. So, Glenn, why don't you take us through the conditions of Korea, and then we'll close off with uh, Korean relations in, in uh, the current day. But what were the conditions like in North Korea after the war, and what are they like now? Well, I mean... I mean, this place had been had been leveled. I mean, what people don't understand is that certainly after the first few weeks of the war, uh, the U.S. had total control, apart from a very small patch of territory uh, up, up on the Chinese border, uh, where the uh, the Russians sent planes flown by by Russian by Russian by Russian pilots. But they were not allowed to stray over any territory occupied by uh, the United States. So there was a small patch there. But for most of what was North Korea, the U.S. had complete freedom to bomb and attack all day, every day, which they did. In the South, I mean, there were there were no air attacks because there was no Northern Air Force to do it. So the North was was leveled. And so in 1953, uh, when the armistice was signed, they had to rebuild from scratch. And they had a lot of support from, uh, well, from China, from, uh, from the Soviet Union, and from East Germany. Those were the three main, uh, and they rebuilt the country. Kim adopted the Stalinist model of economy. It was heavy industry. It was steel. It was cement. It was, it was, it was energy. And it was rather successful in doing that. And for a period from uh, from the mid-50s, probably through to the late 60s, actually North Korea was much more of an economic success story than the South. It was only when you got President Park 
in the South who, who adopted a kind of uh, national communist mode of you know, with the tray ball with the with the heavy industry that you, you they started to compete and sometime probably in the early 70s uh south korea actually overtook north korea but up until then north korea was the economic success story uh but of course since then uh, for a whole variety of reasons partly because north korea could never make the transition from heavy industry to light industry it was quite good at cement and steel wasn't so good at if you want watches and uh, and, and, and refrigerators and cars and the rest and so now you've got a situation where the North Korean economy is probably something like 40 times poorer than the South. And it doesn't look that if that's going to get much better anytime soon. So we've only got a few minutes left uh, for five minutes. So I'm going to ask a two part question to use up the rest of the time and then I'll, I'll have you sign off. So I'm going to jump right to the present. So Kim Jong Un is now the leader of North Korea and of course, something that a lot of people associate with North Korea is their nuclear weapons program, which is something that we have not mentioned yet. And I, I think that it's worth mentioning very briefly, if you'll allow me to have 30 seconds. Uh, I've talked about this before on the show, the, the uh, security dilemma, where something that seems explicitly offensive from one side, if you think of it from the other side, is very defensive in posture. And this is something I've used North Korea's nuclear program many times as an example of uh, the security dilemma, where if you're looking from the West and you see North Korea building nuclear weapons, you're thinking, ah, you look at the you know offensive capacity that they're trying to build. Look at you know how uh, militaristic they are. But really, this is a a defensive um, a defensive positioning. If you think of it from the side of the North Koreans, it's it's really their only deterrent at this point. And now to the questions that I'm going to ask, uh, and there's a lot more that I would like to ask. So I'll ask him to, to come back. On. That's the I'll first thing in the future. But <laughs> ask him uh, to come back. I, I want to talk at the end here about, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I'm sure, the Byung-jin line that Kim Jong-un has taken, which I found to be a very interesting, uh, you could think of it as national strategy because it's a combination of both economic and nuclear deterrence uh, and giving them both equal weight. So can you briefly describe what the Byung-jin line is in uh, North Korea and what impact it's had? Well, I mean, the Beijing line was about the simultaneous development of the economy and the nuclear deterrent. Uh, in fact, the two are linked. I mean, there is a problem because of American and, and UN sanctions, of course. But actually, the, nuclear, the development of the nuclear deterrent was a sign of weakness, not strength. Part of the problem is that uh, you, you've got a, sta a standoff of two conventional militaries on bo both sides of this equation. The problem is that South Korea is now spending six times more on its military than North Korea is, because South Korea may be only spending about four or five percent, but it's four or five percent of something that's 40 times bigger, uh, whereas the North Koreans are spending 25 percent of their GDP on the military. So the North Koreans have lost the conventional arms race uh, completely. If you add in Japan and the United States, uh, North Korea is is outspent by a factor of 50 in terms of its military. So it will lose that arms race. So it needs something to, if you want, it needs a trump card 
And that is the nuclear deterrent. Absolutely. It also helps in a second way, because the two big shortages in North Korea are energy and labor. Uh, They're short of labor. The problem is they have a million men in the military. So if you could even decant uh, 10% of that by shortening the conscription period from 10 years to nine, or, or taking a few less people in, then you could have the manpower to actually to, to put in the factories because their vision of capitalism or the, if you want production is very old fashioned. It's thousands of people working in factories that would that would give them the ability to grow the economy. So they're linked together. The nuclear deterrent is a sign of weakness, not strength. It's an opportunity to lessen the spending on the military and move people into the civilian economy, which will give them the growth that they actually need to improve standards of living in the North. Yeah, and you have a very, very concise quote on this exact point. You say, the nuclear deterrent thus has a double rationale, ensuring the safety of the regime and freeing labor power and resources to be decanted from the army into industrial and economic development. Now, there's so much more that I'd like to talk talk with you about and that we didn't get to. I mean, I didn't even have you uh, explain what Jush is. Uh, I didn't have you talk about the famine of 97. I mean, there's so many things. I didn't have you talk about your... Catching Marxism. It's the will to power. How do you explain that the center of the revolution is some poor benighted country in the corner of Asia? It's actually about man's ability to impose his will. So it's a, it's it's the reverse of it, it's the economic economic stupid. It's the leadership stupid. Yeah, and then the last thing that I'm going to mention that I'm going to hope to bring you back yes. uh, to talk with us again because the most important point that I want to talk about in that that next meeting, hopefully that we have, is your basically prescription that you lay out at the end of the book here, how we should deal with North Korea, the diplomacy that should take place with North Korea, because a lot of people in the West kind of ignore that point. They focus on, they have nuclear weapons and then it excludes everything. We were nearly there. Yes. I, mean, I mean, I agreed with Trump over nothing apart from North Korea. I mean, even there we can, we can have a discussion. But they were nearly there. But they had it. Steve Bagan, Deputy Secretary of State, went to Stanford, laid out for the North Koreans you know, what dance steps they had to take, the, the choreography. They learned, they, they learned what to do. They came to Hanoi for three and a half days on a train. They said they were going to do what they were asked to do. And then John Bolton says, nah, nah, we want more. I persuaded, I persuaded President Trump that we're going to go for the whole hog. At, can you imagine that three-and-a-half-day train journey back to Pyongyang after that Kim had been humiliated? Yep. So our, our guest today was Glenn Ford, as I said, uh, spent 25 years in the European Parliament, made almost 50 trips to North Korea, buy his book from Pluto Press from 2018, Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff. It's fantastic. It's written in a way that anybody's going to understand it, and you're going to learn so much from it. So, Glenn, thanks for coming onto the show. Uh, I am going to try to bring you back again in the future Please. to continue this conversation. I, I, I mean, I'm being reasonably heroic. It is 1130. It's midnight now. Just gone. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Henry Huckamaki, as always. Subscribe to Henry's newsletter by going to patreon.com forward slash 
1995. And we should mention and we, we talk about immunology and science on there, which is my field for people that are tuning in for this segment specifically and don't know that my field is in the sciences. It's not political science. So don't do, expect anything on North Korea in my Patreon. Right. I also subscribe to science. I'm sorry. I did philosophy of science. So yeah, and you're as you said at the beginning, you're a, a geologist. geologist so. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody should subscribe to Gorilla History. We just released an episode on Friday, um, talking about it was an introduction to African revolutions and decolonialization. And we're going to be in, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Gerald Horn in just a couple of minutes for an episode that'll come out later this month. Oh, say hello to him, and he's going to be doing our show. I think on the 22nd, Professor Gerald Horn. That's yep, fantastic. Gerald, we're going to be talking with them. I'm, I have to go to the other interview right we, now. We so. have an embarrassment of riches. Thank you both. That we do. Thank you. And Great COVID job. Town Square is on the 20th. Everybody come to it. Thank you, Henry Huckamacki, the brilliant Henry Huckamacki. When we come back, we will be joined by the brilliant, the brilliant Aaron Berg. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics a comedy too you tell a dirty joke if you want him to he's just a lefty from way back he's a union man with an Emmy for writing someday he's mad and he feels like fighting let us now go to are you in forest hills where where are you now i always forget I'm in the lovely state of pennsylvania where people are shot dead over shoveling mishaps <laughs> why what are you doing in pennsylvania are you doing stand-up what is that smoke oh, is that a cigar what is that that is a cup of coffee or as they call it here in pennsylvania water shit <laughs> And, that's that's true, by the way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm in the Poconos. I'm on vacation, but I have slotted um, this time. Took time away from eating my wife's pussy to be on the show. <laughs> Wait, what a transition from Glenn Ford in Belgium, a member of the European Parliament. Well, we to go from the EU to PU, I think is what you're <laughs> It was delish. She just got it. She did a whole bath. It was all right. All right. Wait, 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 wait. It was like going out for Korean barbecue and getting the octopus. It was delicious. But then, of course, I'm like, I got 10 minutes left and I got to do. So then I start thinking about you. My dick gets soft. And then uh, now we got to go for a second round tonight. Thanks to Blue Chew. I'm excited. I'm looking to dump it inside and make a baby. Have a second baby. We want to have a boy, uh, you know, so that uh, we, we got to do anal and let it drip down. That's Jesus. the position you have to do to have a boy. My, hang on, my audience is getting the bends from yeah. the transition. We have to ease in slowly uh, before. Well, speaking of what you're about yes. to do uh, so we with will your go wife back at it tonight. The, the plan is now I will have we're going to barbecue. I'm going to play outside with my daughter for an hour. Then I'm going to barbecue some steaks and then we're going to watch Below Deck and I'm going to crank a half a blue chew and go at it like I'm 20 years old and not confused. You know, just really. <laughs> I am going to. 
pounded out like a racquetball hitting off a Tom Hanks midsection at the end of Philadelphia. <laughs> no, no. no. You know, none of this is bad. That's the Nothing you said offended me. It's about love. Mm -hmm. the, these jokes are <laughs> about love. My wife and I being intimate, uh, grasping her taut nipple in my succulent, moist mouth, <laughs> saying words that turn her off like moist and <laughs> ointment and yeasty and uh, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> what is that word again oh, oh, oh. <laughs> she tried to return the favor after i gave her what the french call eating la pussy uh i did that <laughs> she went to give me a round but we did yoga together we're away so i said i'll do yoga with you because she's wanted me to do that for years i have finally succumbed we did yoga the past <laughs> two days so today because i did not have a group on i had to pay her via cunnilingus that is how you pay your yogi and then uh, <laughs> she went to uh how do you say how did the hungarian say suck my left nut and she went to do that and she went oh and she goes you need a shower and then i realized i probably do sometimes uh even though it's cold outside it gets warm down there so we're gonna have maybe sex. you should wear a mask uh, we are anti we are anti maskers in the Poconos. We're trying to fit in. No one wears masks here. We went skiing, and some guy came and he's like, "Mask up while you're waiting in line for the uh, ski lift." Right. And the guy that said "mask up" has had his nose exposed, so we knew it was a hypocrisy. Uh, we knew that he had fortified the election, and we just pulled our masks off. And I yelled at him, "Going home to eat my wife's pussy." And mm. he goes, "Sir, there's kids around." And I go, "Well, they can come too." That's what <laughs> <Jesus>. I said. <laughs> so, okay, so you're in the Poconos on a on a vacation with your wife. Are you in a hotel? Did you rent a cabin? Where are you? Rented a cabin. Wow. And it's uh, it's lovely. It's very cold. Uh, there's a fireplace. Are you indoor uh, or outdoor right now? I'm outdoor right now. I'm in a gazebo type thing. What's it called? A screened in porch. Or as they call it in Pennsylvania, a cousin fucker room. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> you it sounds fantastic. You're frozen. It's nice. It's nice. It's nice to, uh, you and know, how many rooms does it have? Three bedrooms. Uh, my in-laws came up for two nights. Uh, Bob, who has, uh, a lot of flatulence issues and he was farting like it was his house. <laughs> and I, I called him out on it and I go, what are you doing? And he yeah, goes, he's your oh, farter in law. Yeah, he's my father-in-law. <laughs> yeah, and then I got upset. I go, it smells like someone's been burning down a pizzeria at the end of Do the Right Thing in here. Can you, uh, <laughs> can, what are you doing? And he goes, he goes, it was a hiney burp. I go, you're not an eight-year-old kid. You're a 77-year-old man that uses the N-word like you're at a Wu-Tang clan <laughs> So why don't you put a cork in it, Pop Pop, and just fucking... Keep watching The King of New York with Christopher Walken because you're a huge <laughs> fan of Lawrence Fishburne's daughter. Jesus. That does mm -hmm. not sound like fun. Not yeah. only you have to spend time with your father-in-law, he uses the N-word and he farts. That, yeah. that's, that to me would be hell. 
That would be. Yeah, it's just like staying with Joe Biden for two days. <laughs> well, wait a second now. You're 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 not supposed to be in a cabin with a 77 year old man. Has he been vaccinated? Yes, for polio. <laughs> oh, good. OK. <laughs> yeah, because I hate for those farts. That's how you get polio from yeah. nasty farts. Are you afraid? Oh, because the the COVID. I, I don't know if you caught up with the news or not, David. I, there was a thing on last night called the Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, and uh, it has shown us we are now allowed to go outside again and to do whatever we want to do. And it is amazing that the most progressive state in the nation, Florida, is leading <laughs> us to this popular opinion. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel phenomenal about it. Well, you know, they prove that you can go anti-mask as long as you don't count the numbers. That's what they're doing down in Florida. They, they're not really counting it. Look, the only number that mattered yesterday was LIV. You know what I'm saying? The Super Bowl. That's right. LIV. Yeah, that was the uh, those are Roman numerals. That well, the means, E uh, after that super spreader party. I <laughs> Without the E. <laughs> you saying they should have changed it to D-I-E. <laughs> how, how great was it for, I mean, Tom Brady to win? You must have, last night on your 4chan chat rooms, you must have been going insane, just yelling white power, making weird hand signals that you do to all your friends. It was a very exciting night in football. and uh, I don't need uh, to be watching the Super Bowl to do that on the 4chan. It was great. New York is going to open up again. You must be excited about very this. excited because I and think. Did you get? Did, did I get, get the vaccine? Shot? No, they told me I'm yes. too old for it. There's actually Who said that the Department of Health said at your age, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Yeah. That's how old Come I on. am. No, you're really not. You're you're maximum 86, 87. <laughs> and you have you still got a couple good years left to go. I don't understand why I have I haven't gotten it yet. Now, which vaccine would you go with? Would you go Moderna, Pfizer or GameStop? Which one would you like? <laughs> I want to go with Sputnik V. Yeah, I've been Sputnik corrected. V I thought it was Sputnik five, but it's Sputnik V and the V stands for. Very good. <laughs> It's not great. It's very good, which, you know, that's what I want in a vaccine. No, supposedly it's very, it, the V stands for very, very effective. Mm -hmm. Apparently it's a lot it's, easier to make these vaccines than we were told. Do you remember a year ago, nobody thought that these were even on the horizon. And now thanks to science and um, two Muslim doctors in Germany. Do you know I read today uh, two Muslim, right two part. Muslim, two Muslim doctors in Germany right. invented the, the Pfizer vaccine. Sounds like the intro to a joke. Two Muslim doctors <laughs> walk into Germany. <laughs> Would you like this shit on your chest or your forehead? <laughs> no, it's not halal. Neither. Neither. Um, it, what, you asked amazing. me if I read something. Yeah, Breitbart released it, and then so did the New York Daily News. But it said that it, a cleric in Iran, Iran, as you would pronounce it, said that getting the vaccine will make you gay. And that was an actual news story that came across my eyes today. And uh, I, you know what? I, 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 I'll get the, va the vaccine. Wouldn't you get a vaccine? Stops. 
What? What? I'd get a I'm vaccine to get me gay in a second. You know how much easier my life would be? To be gay. You I'd have 90% of, of what I once had if I were gay. What would that be? I'd have my possessions. I wouldn't have oh, lost you everything. Oh, you're saying if you never got married, but you could have been married to a man and he would have taken half of your a man stuff. Would never, probably, a man would probably never probably have roughed you up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you look like you'd be the bottom in this thing. And you look like if you argued. It, oh, my God. Do you know I have footage of your gay marriage when you got. No, you don't. I, I was never met. There's Aaron Berg. There's no gay marriage and there's no record of that. I do. I do too, David. Our lives are going to be amazing. Oh boy. I can't believe that I just married myself. The only gay doorman at the punchline in San Francisco. I'm going to throw the flowers. Catch him, Molly Schminky. All right. Now, Lance, you and I are going on a party. I booked us a cruise to Alcatraz. <laughs> this is stupid, David. Now, I know you've got writing money, and I want to go to fucking Fiji. Look, don't be all upset, all right? I told you that when you marry me, although I come with a wealth of riches, I'm going to spend it very sparingly because I'm Jewish. Now, first, <laughs> let's go consummate this bad boy right over here in Mission Hill District in the park. Now, I'm going to open up my... Oh, it's not even in. That's my zipper. I'm sorry. Take the zipper. Did you finish yet? Am I tight? Am I tight like you promised I would be? Jesus Christ, David. I can't feel a thing. Let me have some more poppers. I need some joy. Christ, you're complaining the whole time. I'm Jewish. This is what I do. I'm sorry we never consummated before we got married, but I'm an old-fashioned gay Jewish man. I need to be married. Oh, that's just the pinky. That's the pinky. All right. All right. Now, Lance, I think that we need to go meet my parents and tell them, I'm not up to that, David. Well, then you and I can never get along. David, you shut up. Smacky, smacky. Punch, punch, punch. Smacky, smacky. Domestic abuse before it was hip. Smacky, smacky, smacky. Boop, boop, slap, slap. I want a divorce. I'm going to see you in court, David, a Lawrence Feldman, and you're going to be giving me half of everything, which is more than you gave me when you tried to slip that circumcised <laughs> dick in my mouth, you son of a bitch. You know what's interesting? That is, you're, uh, I didn't laugh, by the way, at anything you just did. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I have you always about yeah, homophobia. Yeah, was, and that was a violation. Abuse. That was a violation of my uh, my privacy. And mm -hmm. yes, there was a gay marriage briefly, and it didn't work out. God, that is. Yeah, my wife asked me once. She's like, "Do Do you want to be gay?" And I go, "No." And she goes, "Are you sure?" And I go, "Yeah." And she goes, "Why are you winking while you say that?" <laughs> It's a different oh, time, God. isn't it? You are unbelievable. What a mind. So are you happy up there? Have you found peace and quiet? Well, we we closed on a house. We're buying a house in Jersey. So every extra moment is dealing with that, dealing with uh Are we allowed to say what's inspection. 
Are we allowed to say what city? It's in New Jersey. The county would be, I believe, Passaic County. Uh, but we're very excited, and uh, it's the. I'm a, Jer- I'm a Jersey to- boy. Are you really? Yep. Greatest Where? people in the world. Well, I say Anglewood. That's. I'm excited. I went to Dwight Morrow High School. I'm. I'm. Jersey people are the best. Because they, because they can't put on airs. You can't pretend to be anything other than a Jersey person. So there's an honesty. I'm going to ride the bus to work, which I'm excited about. Right. Now, that seems odd that I would be excited to drive to a place, park my car and ride the bus. But it seems like the bus is the most logical way to get there. It's the fastest. And... Uh, I never thought I'd be riding a bus when I'm 48 years old. Would you ride a bus again? I, I, I ride the bus. Gilbert Gottfried is a yes. big advocate of the bus. Yes. As was Ron Jeremy and both of those uh, how's Jewish he, men. How's he doing in prison? I believe he raped about 90 women. Uh, and then he, he went to jail for that, I think. But. Allegedly. I mean, not, you know, I believe the women. But if you're going to call somebody out, if you're going to meet to somebody, where's the degree of difficulty in pointing to Ron Jeremy? You're saying they should have looked for more of a diamond in the rough. Yeah, I mean, it's not sporting to pick Ron Jeremy, obviously. I mean, that that guy, is he even contesting it? I don't know. I did one stand-up show and he was on it and it was in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, it was like a dirty sex stand-up show. And he does all these old street jokes. And uh, and I'd also worked with him on the first movie I ever did, which was Detroit Rock City. And he played uh, the MC, and I played the bartender in the same scene. And uh, at that point in time, you're like, oh, I've only seen this guy in movies. And he was he had a line of female fans around his trailer trying to get in to see him. And he was, uh, you get up close to him. He's a really uh, gross. Smelly man. Yeah, gross. Horrible pants with stains on him. You know who he went to high school with? Who? George Tenet, the head of the CIA, who told George W. Bush and Dick Cheney that it was a slam dunk that they had weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. George Tenet, same age as... uh, I think he screwed more people than. So you think maybe that school wasn't that good? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're locking up people from that school, you should throw in George Tenet, former head okay. of the CIA. Now, will we be going to war again soon with another country? Yes. Which country? A country of color. Because that's What's what that we, mean? That we bomb countries of color. We it don't. will happen. Now, this is what people predicted, right? Because it seems, and, and I don't want to step out or, or deal in misinformation, as you call it when you text me, naked pictures of your feet uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with the meme of the huge black guy's penis on the big foot. Um, but what, what I want to get to is people predicted this, right? People said they're going to get Trump out of office mm-hmm. and then inevitably you're going to have another career politician in, and then there's going to be another war. And people also predicted that the vaccine would be found and that uh, 
all of this would take place and that the country would start to reopen. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the country isn't reopening. That's the first thing. He, Who's saying that it's I just, reopening? I just got a text saying that indoor dining is starting back in New at, York. At 25%. On. By the way, I have an idea on how to get rid of the white nationalists. How? Who, who are permeating our military. They've been ordered to stand down. The, the head of Defense Secretary Austin now is like looking into... Well, why are why are, why do we have white nationalists? Why are we lousy with white nationalists? Well, you have an all volunteer army that bombs people of color. So I would think that would be a good refuge for white nationalists. Go, I, you mean I can go off, get paid to kill people of color? Sign me up. If you want to get rid of the white nationalists in our army, start bombing countries with white people in it norway start bombing norway exactly switzerland switzerland start bombing them cape cod i get yes although i don't think white nationalists would want to bomb other white nationalists one of your guests that will be on today ethan hershenfeld is in cape cod where he's hunkered down do you know renan hirschberg yes he's going to be on the show yeah do you, uh, d- did you just have a bunch of Jewish people available for this week? Was that your thing? Was it? I, I don't ask. People? I don't know. Aaron Berg, Renan Hershberg, Ethan Hershenfeld. I don't know if David they're Jewish. Feldman. Bring four more people and some chairs to lift over our heads and let's play the horror. <laughs> and then let's all ejaculate on a piece of matzah while we sing the mourner's Kaddish. It's an old Jewish David Feldman. The last guy to come has to eat it in his box of our soup. Use my grandfather's tallest to clean up your belly, you slob. Are you worried about anti Semitism in America? It's been on the rise for me. I get a lot of like, uh, do you? I'll post a skiing photo and they're like, nice picture, kike. I would assume. It's ramping up. It's ramping I would assume up. that some of the people you hang out with, some of the people you cater to, might not be uh, pro Semite. My fans, let me list some of them to you Bernard Jewier17. Uh, <laughs> smiley kike and bye bye. Uh, these are all great people. These are just you know internet handles, and they buy merchandise and they don't complain. So what am I gonna do? You know, I'm selling a uh, swastika engraved menorah for next Hanukkah. <laughs> really trying to just. Well, I mean, people. I would assume. I, do you? Are you familiar with QAnon? Do you read? I know a little bit about it. I mean. You they know, would be, I, I would assume they'd be lousy with anti-Semites since anti-Semitism is a conspiracy. It's conspiracy thinking, right? So you would have to be anti-Semitic if you were QAnon, like Marjorie Green, the uh, the congresswoman. Would Nick Cannon be a QAnon guy? He's forgiven, wasn't he? He's I back in business. Oh, all right. Well, what did Nick Cannon got? Uh, shit canned from Viacom for giving an interview about the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. But I think he wasn't a fan. 
Well, the Jews he, are really nice people. Do you know that? I'm sorry. They're really nice people, the Jews. He he made up with Viacom. He's going to come back on Wild and Out. He issued an apology, and he's yeah. back. And he's Episode taking responsibility one. for his anti-Semitic statements that he made. Episode last year. one, crush the Jews. Episode two, they run the banks. Episode three, leaky giggy. Uh, <laughs> Do you think boy. sometimes people make anti-Semitic statements without knowing they're being anti-Semitic? Sure. Remember when I asked you to pay me and you said, fuck off, Jew. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I go, but you're making all this money. And you go, it's my money. Get away. <laughs> and then I could hear coins jingle jangling as you filled a pillowcase. Uh huh. I love how Nick Cannon says something anti-Semitic. And then he's got to go meet with uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, who heads the Anti-Defamation League. And, mm-hmm. and the Anti-Defamation League, who nobody voted for, says he's good to go. He's apologized to me. It's like if you say something homophobic, you have to go before Ellen DeGeneres. Rosie O'Donnell. Or Rosie okay. O'Donnell. <laughs> and, yeah. and if she gives the green light, you're cleared. It's okay, now, Rosie says she... When Bill Maher said the N-word and he brought Ice Cube on the show. And then Ice Cube gave him the, you're okay. Uh, but then, of course, a year later, Ice Cube is exposed as being anti-semitic and uh, pro-trump pro-trump there you have it it's amazing where we get our okays from isn't it yeah yeah it shouldn't be what what should happen there should be a tribunal the the way we the kind of tribunal that the Khmer Rouge had the way Pol Pot the way China had where the people bring you up and you apologize, you wear a dunce cap, and you're marched through the streets, pelted with rocks, and put in a re-education camp. Mm-hmm. Like Deng Xiaoping was forced to be in a, in a re-education camp. You do your time, you wear your dunce cap, and then after 20 years, you're released, and then you can take over the party again. But people you know, that's what who make mistakes... what? That's what they do in Canada. They have these human rights tribunals and they've found two comedians guilty of hateful infractions. And, they, and they've had to go to uh, court. You look at Mike Ward. He had to go to court and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, there was another guy in Vancouver a few years ago. And he got in trouble, too. Oh, is that, is that your baby? Yeah, got to find her basket. Hang on. Okay. Well, we're going to say goodbye. All right. Let's All right. Do that. Aaron Berg. Hello. There's Mark. Do you know Mark Breslin? Yes, of course. We go way back. Mark Breslin. You you know Mark? Yes. Way back. Oh, we go way that, back. Hello, Mark hello. Breslin. Do you know Aaron Berg? Um. Yeah, in passing. No. Oh, I got to take my daughter poopy. All right, guys. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay. Alive. Bye-bye. You know, Mark Breslin joins us. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. It's interesting. He did me in a gay marriage. And I'm listening because I'm thinking this is funny, but is he crossing a line? And I couldn't find... While I'm laughing, I'm thinking, is there anything here that I have to... Not a single thing he said was 
politically incorrect. It, it sounded politically incorrect. Um, it felt... David, it's all in the ear of the beholder. You know, I mean, it isn't, it doesn't, pa it passes muster for you, but I'm sure that there are people it does not pass muster for. There's a, uh, a guy that I know who, well, he's not a guy anymore. He's, he's had the full uh, changeover to, uh, to being a woman. He's a, tra he's trans. And he's always posting stuff about, you know, how people treat him badly. And um, he gives examples in pop culture uh, of, of stuff that should never have happened. You know, the, uh, the joke that uh, Michael Che did, not this week, but the week before on Saturday Night Live. And, oh, I wish I could remember the, right. the exact wording of the joke. Do you remember the joke? Uh, 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 go ahead. I, I don't remember. But, well, I was hoping you'd yeah, fill it I, in for me. But anyway, but he's always um, getting into trouble with the PC people, Michael. Chandler. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I listened to that joke and I kind of giggled. I didn't see anything um, mean about it or bad about it. But um, my friends sure did. So, you know, we all have that line. That line is different for everybody. But what I want to tell you is something happened to me this week that I need to share with you. I okay. had a really uh, well, it was uh, I came very close to catching the Brazilian variant. I'm telling you, David, it was a close shave. <laughs> I mean it. And I was very concerned because I've been working hard on, on a new project. You probably heard of, you know, all these shows, Legends of Show Business. Yes. Well, I've come up with one which is leg ends of show business. <laughs> and what we're doing is we're looking at uh, Tony Fields, um, <laughs> Waylon Jennings, um, Nick Cordero, I'm sorry to say, sorry to say um, uh, Jaja Gabor. It's going to be a great show. And I couldn't work on it much because I was so worried about this. this you were stumped. Variant. Sorry? You were stumped. I was stumped. I was stumped. Um, uh, I'm also concerned about the, the South African variant, too. But, you know, that's a bit different because it's not all black and white. Right? <laughs> so next COVID joke at. <laughs> how are how things, doing, David? I'm, I'm, Nobody I'm, ever asks you how you're doing. How am I doing? I'm, you know, uh, depressed. Not depressed. I mean, depression would be a physical. Uh, you know, it's just like it's February. It's New York. I'm in an air shaft. It's, you know, the same thing day in and day out. And uh, it's, I miss certain things. Like? I, going outside, going to restaurants, going to the gym, going for a swim. Yeah. You know, all the things that it's almost a year, uh, you know. It, and if you turn on the TV... You, you don't, you see people having these great lives. It's not happening. Yeah, well, actually, what you're seeing is you're seeing people having had great lives, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but what were your feelings about the Super Bowl? I mean, I'm not a, a sports fan, but I had to turn it on to see um, 25,000 people all in one place. And I got to tell you, I was shocked. I have to confess I didn't watch it. Well, I'm not a sports fan. I only turned into. Well, so that. what was shot? You know, I before because I'm going to ask you about it. Yeah. I don't want to sound like a, a party pooper. 
I don't approve of football. I don't either. So I think it's everything. Macrocephalics just banging and bashing themselves against each other until juice squirts out of every orifice, and the person who juices the least wins. I don't understand it. They can't even get the ball right. That isn't even a ball. What is that? Some kind of math test. It's a rhombus. I don't even know what the, the you know what what, the, what what kind of weird calculus had to be figured out to be able to make a shape like that. It's insane. I just don't get that. Yeah, at least we do it efficient. It. We do it efficiently in America. You had a, don't you have to bring in an extra guy? I don't know. I think I know Canadian. Nothing about, I know nothing about football. I watch. I watch baseball sometimes. I would go to a baseball game because baseball is kind of like the chess of uh, of sports of team sports. So I kind of it's kind of okay, and it's fairly non-aggressive, non-violent. You know, you don't see people pounding out the pitcher uh, like you do in hockey. Right. right. Everybody right. loves hockey in this country, but I'm, I'm more of a baseball guy if I have to like anything. But that's not why I turned it on. I didn't even turn it on to see my my Luntzman, um here from Toronto uh, do the uh, halftime show, which is amazing. First time a Canadian's ever been asked to do that the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a great job, although I'm not into the pop music in that kind of way, particularly. But uh, he did a great job. No, I wanted to see 25,000 idiots um, courting the possibility of life of lifelong sickness or possible death, so that they could watch people bang each other up. It, it just, I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't get it. I, I should have watched it for the commercials. I understand Bruce Springsteen. I can't see them. You, you can't, can't see, see the commercials? No, they're blacked out on Canadian television. So what do you see? You see local local commercials. Oh. Now, I can see those commercials probably if I go on uh, YouTube. They're probably out there and everything. But uh, no, you, you don't see the those expensive, creative commercials on, on Canadian television when you're watching the Super Bowl. I was surprised to see Bruce Springsteen doing a commercial for Jeep. That yes. Was, that was... But at least it wasn't for Kia. That's true. <laughs> but maybe he needs the money. Maybe no. he's donating all that money. Maybe, you know, it's none of my business. I love, I'm from New Jersey. I love Bruce Springsteen. So do I. How many times have you seen him live? Never. Seriously? No. I saw the first tour that he did in 1977. And it was at a university in a kind of, I was in a field house. And I, I only knew about him because I was really poor in those days. I wasn't buying records. I would go to the library and the library had a record section. And the woman who ran the library said, you'll love this. And she gave me the Wild, the Innocent, and the Street Shuffle, which was the second album, I think. Um, and I put it on, I went berserk for it. And then, of course, came uh, Born to Run. And he did the tour right after, I guess, he released Born to Run. Nobody knew him. And I bought three tickets for myself and two friends. It was in January. Uh, Springsteen is nuts when it comes to sound checks. So we stood outside in the January cold for an extra hour and a half till he got it just right. And my friends were ready to kill me. And then we went in. And then he did four unbelievable hours and it was only a place that held maybe 2,500 people, maybe. And I've seen him about eight times. And I'm telling you, it was only once I saw him that I thought he was walking through it. But other than that, he... And how, all his concerts are for unbelievable hours. 
My show just, is eight unbelievable hours. You know, you have often been compared to Springsteen. Yeah. I don't know if you know that because people often say compared to Springsteen, Feldman is <laughs> nothing. They say but, it's um, unbelievable. Eight hours and none of it is good. It's unbelievable well, how sometimes you gotta be uh you gotta seek quantity. Yeah. Uh not quality, I think. Yeah. There actually you know? is an audience. I, there is. I wouldn't do it if there weren't a, a small know. audience for this. People. I know. I get recognized in airports. Um, <laughs> you know, you're on the Feldman show, aren't you? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I am. Um, but um, how do we get out? We got onto Springsteen. Oh, because he did the Jeep. He did the commercial. Why he would do the Jeep commercial. Yeah. Why do you want this whole message about the center of America and we have to be united. Are you for uniting? You're, it's never good when a country is all on it. When we're uh, all singing sure. from the same hymnal, not a good thing, right? I'm on the I'm on the eccentric path. So, you know, the idea of unity is never anything that's even a possibility for me. Does it ever, yeah. does anything good ever come from a, a country being united? Nothing good comes from that. War, oh, war and fascism. Yes. Yeah. It's and, good. Uh, it's good that we hate one another. The problem is we're armed. That's the problem. Yeah. You see, here in Canada, it's not such a problem because we're not really armed. Right. You Do you know? hate each other the way we hate each other? No, 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 no. Because we I, I really, really hate each other. No, I really don't believe any of that. Um, you know, we have a long tradition of peacekeepers. Um, one of our prime ministers, one of the greatest prime ministers, uh, was a guy named Lester Bowles Pearson. I mean, just the name already tells you that this is this is a nerd. And he wore a little bow tie, <laughs> right? And he would say, it's bowls, not bowels. That's right, it's bowls. And uh, he was a liberal uh, prime minister around the time I was born, a little later. And he won the Nobel Peace, he won the Nobel Peace Prize um, for his work with the UN, for strengthening the UN. Um, and this is sort of the Canada that I know and the Canada that I love. Um, no, we're not a terribly aggressive people. We can we can fight our battles when we need to, but we don't think we always need to. Right. But and you don't hate one another. We don't hate you're one you're not another. jealous. Are you jealous of your neighbor? Me personally. Right. Have you met my neighbor? <laughs> Poor guy has a he, he's got a. He's got a 23-year-old son who sits in the basement and smokes dope all day. No, I do not. I am not jealous of my neighbor. I'm not jealous. I'm not a jealous person because behind everybody you think has a better life than you, you don't know what's festering at the center of it. Everybody's got a tragedy. No, you see, that's what they tell you. I'm convinced that people behind everybody who has a better life than I has a much better life, but they're not letting on. Like... Tom Hanks, George Clooney, their life, what they what they show us is nothing compared to what they really have. Well, you know, I was talking to a George and Tom the other day, but they wouldn't talk back. <laughs> so maybe you're right. Hey, maybe. by the way, if yeah. I had to do it all over again, yes, I would have been a leading man. Instead of a comic, I would have been a leading man well you know what my problem has always been is that i'm basically playing the role of a character actor who shot the leading man and demanded to take over his part 
Could you be happy? I mean, George Clooney has this home in Lake Como. Yes. And he probably can fly all his friends. How can it be bad being in Italy? Lake Como is in Italy, correct? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, in, the, it's in northern Italy. I have never been there, but it's supposed to be beautiful. Right. How can it be bad? How can you be unhappy? <sighs> to be human is to be unhappy on some level. Yes, to is. have everything and say, and is that all there is? So Peggy Lee was right. Mm -hmm. uh, we just don't know what it happens to oh, be. Oh, and, and didn't she lose a leg, Peggy Lee? I don't believe so. Why did they call her Peggy? <laughs> I thought she was bedridden, though. Um, she might be bedridden, uh, but the fact that they called her Peggy was not because of that. It's because she liked to peg her boyfriend. <laughs> so she got the name Peggy. <laughs> oh, oh, hang on for one second. Oh, my God. That's, that's why, how she came up with, is that all there is? Because right. she just... Exactly. She was going down the anus of one of her partners. <laughs> yes. And it was a short anus. It can happen. A short, it's a short colon. Yeah. It was like a short stack of pancakes. You get them sometimes. And she got to the end. You got yeah. past the prostate, and that's it. And she said, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Do you want to know why they had to keep dancing? Now... I'm hoping some people saw Mad Men. So they, I think that's the last time that song, if it, that's, what was yeah, that? That was from the 60s, that song, right? It's an old song, yeah. I would say it's about 62, 63, but I'm sure one of our, you know, pop culture nerds is going to let us know exactly when it was. Right, it was yeah, but they reused it for, uh, for Mad Men. What are you watching on the TV? I watched well, the I Britney Spears, did you see the Britney Spears documentary? I did not. I didn't even know there was one. Yeah. What's it on? The New York Times has a series on FX. And FX. It's, I that, don't think we get, we don't get FX. Okay. I, it's about we'll get certain shows off, X, off FX and they'll go on a Canadian platform. So I'll just have to wait for that. It's about uh, her conservator. It's about her conservatorship and how she's been portrayed right. as right. kind of loopy and... After you watch this documentary, you realize she's a victim of sexism and that Justin Timberlake threw her under the bus and she was a good parent, but her father wanted control of her fortune. And now there's a, a free Britney movement. Which, I'm aware of that. And I'm on board after watching that documentary. I'm, I'm aware of that. She's brilliant. Was, well, I always thought there was something victimized about her anyway. Right. But, I mean, um, she's also brilliant. You know, yeah. it, it's so sexist. To think, well, she because she's so sexual that she couldn't also be brilliant. And then you see these interviews with her, and you go, oh, my God. Like, what do you think? She just was handed all this talent and choreography? I mean, anyway, what are you watching? Uh, I saw The Flight Attendant. I saw all, whatever, seven or eight episodes. I thought it was very interesting, very a lot of fun. Um, it was uh, a fun thriller. Have you seen it? No, not yet. It's Kaylee Cuoco, who really reminds me of middle period Goldie Hawn circa Private Benjamin. And that's no, that's no insult. Um, and it's her show. She's in pretty much every scene. Um, and it's got more uh, split screens than anything since the first Thomas Crown Affair. Um, so it's really busy. It's very busy. It fizzes. 
Um, and I, I, I really liked it. I it's a murder great. mystery, right? She wakes up or somebody's yeah. dead. Yeah. She has a one night stand from hell, right? That's right. Right. Exactly. Um, so I, I love that. Um, I also saw Soul, the Disney Pixar, Pixar picture. Right. Lovely. Lovely. I don't think they make a bad movie, um, but this is a particularly good one. And the, the trailer, if you've seen the trailer, you think it's one thing, but it's really something completely different. Watching the trailer, I thought I was in for um, a really cool uh, story about a guy who wants to uh, be a better jazz musician. But it's way trippier than that. Mm-hmm. Way trippier than that. So I would really recommend it. You know, I actually bought uh, Disney Plus just for it to see Soul and Hamilton. Hamilton. Now, I saw Hamilton live. Did you see Hamilton live? Mm, no. Okay. So I saw it live. I was very lucky. It was in Toronto. It was supposed to play for, you know, six months, a year. Did you see, why wasn't it playing in Hamilton? Uh, well, we went to the wrong Hamilton the first time. And, you know, it was really weird because it was all these smokestacks and uh, <laughs> industrial waste. And I thought, wow, it's like an art installation. That doing. Okay, fine. So um, we, I, got opening, I got opening night tickets. And my wife said, oh, why did you do that? The show has to breathe. Should have gotten tickets like a month later, two months later. Went, yeah, I know, probably. But we were lucky because... Um, they only, they only ran the show for three weeks and then they had to close it down. So I saw it live and I didn't have the greatest seats in the world. And it's very hard to follow, especially if you're not American. And I never took American politics in school. So all of this was new material for me watching it, um, on TV. And I watched it on a big screen TV, a really big screen TV in the basement that we have. You can stop it. You can look things up. You can, uh, it goes in for close-ups. It was a really, really worthwhile thing to watch. My right. son loves this and he's right. only 10. Right. Right. That's interesting. And you do know that our founding fathers were white. What? Yeah. I thought they were Jewish. <laughs> Why? Because all their faces ended up on money? On, on money. <laughs> Come on. Washington Bird. Right? <laughs> Jefferson Steen. Huh? Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin. Yeah, Tub- ben Tubman Jewish. sound. Tubman sounds like a Jewish name, doesn't it? Tubman. It does sound. Li- it does sound like a Jewish name. <laughs> the In Tubmans fact, I are knew coming. A girl whose last name was Tubman, and she was Jewish. <laughs> but two bees. Are you reading? Or, or not to be. <laughs> Are you reading? Have you finally well, got? Can we skip over that question, please? You're you're, you. you're still, not, still reading. not reading. No, I'm still not reading. I need I need a book to open it up again. And I told you I'm waiting for that book about indigenous comedy to come out in another couple of weeks. Uh, that I will get into because I'm involved in a project that that sort of influences. Uh, and then. I know I have to read it. I have to read it just for work, if not for anything else. And I think that'll open it up and I'll start reading some more. I've got a stack of stuff here that I haven't gotten to. Read yet. me, read, what are the books that are being, that right, are waiting to be read? Let me see what read. I got. I'm going to walk away for a moment. Let's see what I've got. Okay. Uh, mostly books about show business. Okay. Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, Michael Riedel. He takes one season of Broadway and deconstructs it. Okay. That 
that I would read that. That sounds like fun. And you haven't gotten to that yet. I haven't gotten to it yet. Okay. The Sound of the City, The Rise of Rock and Roll. It's a British, um, a very long British book, um, which is about pre-rock and roll. It's about a time of, of music I don't know much about. 53, 54, 55, 56. Detroit? In Detroit? Um, yeah, it's it's mostly about black music, right? But this is something I don't know much about. I know a lot about rock and roll, starting from Little Richard in right. 1957, 1958, but I know nothing about anything before that. So that's why I got that book. Let's see what else I have. Well, now, why wouldn't you want to read that? Should I give you an assignment? Like you have to do a um, book report? No, 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 please don't. It only makes me feel even worse. I stopped reading this. Jennifer Juniper. Um, Donovan? Yeah, it's the she was the inspiration for Donovan, and it got great reviews. And you know, it was all about the swinging '60s in London. But I found it kind of boring, so I stopped after about a hundred pages. What else do I have here? Um, a Bruce Wagner, um, two novellas I never read, and I love Bruce Wagner. Do you know Bruce Wagner? Does he write about Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Does he write about sitcoms? Did he write? Who is he? He's completely corrosive. Um, and he's uh, kind of like Jerry Stahl. Yeah, but even for, but but further. And really, further than Jerry Stahl. Yeah, further than Jerry Stahl. Wow. Um, and it's novels. Um, there's there's about eight of them. Let me see the. Uh, let me just see the ones. One of them was made into an amazing movie. Uh, let's see. Does it have it? Listen, I'm losing you. Okay, is fantastic. Did he it's have a, a book out like book. in 94, 95 about sitcom writing? I don't think that's him. Okay. I don't think it's him. About being on a sit, like writing on a sitcom. I thought he no, did. I don't think that's him. Okay. No, uh, the ones that he has like, he, he wrote Wild Palms. Do you remember the graphic novel? It used to be in the back of, I think, Details Magazine. No. Oh, that's great. Um, but there's three, like three or four they're, they're, they're almost, they're connected. Still holding, I'll let you go, I'm losing you, and Force Majeure. Those are four amazing books, all from the 90s uh, or early uh, 2000s that I really recommend. But this is, this is uh, two short novels that I just haven't read of his, and I'm a, kind of a completist when it comes to Bruce Wagner. Right. Are you afraid to start a book and not finish? Because one of the joys that I've discovered is the New York Public Library will allow me to download books on my iPad. And so I'll pick up a book from the library and just plow, like skim it, just turn the pages, you know, read the first, read the first chapter, the last chapter, the first page of chapter three and the last page of chapter three to find out what the book is about. Have you ever done that where you just kind of plow through books? No, with no, no, I start on page one and um, there would have to be a Holocaust before um, I would, I wouldn't finish it. I am committed to finishing a book once I start it. See that I think creates reading blocks. I know. And that's, that's a problem. And the last thing I, I was reading was the Jennifer Juniper book. And when it didn't do what I wanted it to do, I just stopped reading for a while. But, but uh, now I'm, this is a serious, this is one of the most important things in my life. Okay. So this is really important to me because okay. reading, like I am trying to figure out a life where all I have to do is 
you know, read, sex, exercise, write, do the show. You know, that's... Well, it sounds like you want the life of a professor. Yeah. Sex. Um, but they've taken that you, away from professors. Uh, not if you know how to play it. I mean, but a right. very wise person told yes. me, because I've always asked wise people about their reading habits, because reading to me, for me, is the most important thing I can do. And several wise people, like Christopher Hitchens, uh, used, I used to hang out with, not hang out, he would do the Dennis Miller show all the time. And I would mm-hmm. just, you know, sit at his feet. And he, I asked him, how do you read? How do you read? And he goes, you have to learn how to edit what you're reading. That, you, that there's some things that are not worth beginning, middle, and end. That sometimes you pick it up and you, you can turn the pages and skim why are you afraid of doing that? What, do you feel it's disrespectful to the author to say, you know what, this chapter isn't working for me. I'll pick it up, especially nonfiction. Why can't you, you know, like. No, uh, I'd rather just. I'd like rather the Chaplin, there's a new Chaplin book. That I'm not interested in his childhood. So I go right to, you know. No, it's not the story. The story has to start in the beginning and end at the end. I just have too much respect for narrative. Even if it's boring. Then I'll put the book away. I'll stop. Going ahead three chapters is rarely going to help, I find. If it's not working, it's not working. Everybody's got their, as you say, their different ways of reading. My real concern right now is that my son isn't reading. I didn't read when I was his age. And that's what I thought uh, for myself too. I remember. Here's what I remember. I was boys very, don't read. Boys don't read. They can't sit still. I, I was very, very. Uh, I was a very early reader. A very early reader, but I never read books until I was about eleven or twelve. And I remember exactly which books turned me on to reading. You want to know what the books were? What? Hiroshima by John Hersey. Right. A Night to Remember, which is about the Titanic right. by Walter Lord, and whatever the one it was about the sinking of the Lusitania. So you can see there's a bit of a theme for an 11 year old boy. Life's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and after I got into those, right. those led me to dystopian fiction uh, like Lord of the Flies and 1984 and Animal Farm and Brave New World. And I loved those books. And then I was off and running and I never was seen without a book in my hand. I think it takes some kind of key to open up the thrill of reading for people. I don't know what that key is yet for my son, but I re- and he's a great reader. If I give him something to read, he goes, he's terrific. Right. But I want him to read. In America, because uh-huh. of the pandemic, book sales are soaring. Uh, 2020 book sales were up something like 10%. Yes, but I hate to tell you, you didn't quite get it right. Cookbook sales are soaring. Oh, really? No, I don't know. I'm just making that but up. But you're probably I'm right. Just, you're probably Everybody's obsessed with food now. It's the only vice left. And so um, uh, everybody, everybody's cooking. Everybody, what are you cooking? You asked me what I was reading, but most people are asking me, what am I cooking? And of course, right. I can't cook, so... 
it's a pretty short conversation. But there is some, we, we have to wrap it up. I have to, this, we, it's the awkward moment of when I have to call Howie Klein because he won't call in. I know, I know. And, and we have a, uh, a new guest who's running for Congress. Allie, oh. Allie Dalsimer is running for Congress in Virginia. She's running for uh, Virginia's 11th district. Allie? Uh, hey there, how are you? Good. Do you, can you give us the landscape version of you while I call Howie? Um, sure. Do you know Mark Breslin in in Can? There you go. I'm gonna. Call Why would she know me? Be you got a little. Because company. everybody knows you. I, I'm gonna. Because she's a politician, and she doesn't need my vote. I can't. I've been vote. a politician for like um, you know, four hours now. So. Yeah. And I'm and, Canadian, so I I can't vote, so I'm no good to you anyway. <laughs> I'm looking for Howie Klein's phone number. This is, there we go. Okay. This is, we're, we're calling Howie. And while we're calling Howie, I will thank Mark Breslin. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. And will we talk next week? We will talk next week. Good. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Howie Klein. I'm doing everything wrong. Look at this. I'm all thumbs, Allie. I'm doing it. Here we go. Now I got Howie. Howie, are you there? Hello? Howie, it's David Feldman. Can you hear me? Yes, I, I hear you now. Okay. So, Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks. Say hello to Howie Klein. Hey, Howie. Nice to see you, or hey, you again. Okay. We're going to have that dinner. After okay. the pandemic. Thank you, Mark. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you so Sounds much. Sounds good. Have a good week. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates around America. He also writes Down with Tyranny. And sometimes he introduces us to a candidate who we all need to get behind. Who do we need to get behind, Howie? She's here. Hey, Howie. Hi, how are you doing? Bab. What? I'm doing great. It's been an amazing afternoon. I bet it has, because today was the day that you announced that you're running for Congress. Yay. Here, applause. You know, we, Allie, have you ever run for office before? I've never run for office before. I've spent 30 years working um, the policy side of things, and we were, you know, specifically prohibited from doing politics, right? We couldn't be partisan. So it's a whole new world, um, but it's great. And, uh, you know, thanks in large part to, to your helping get us the word out. It's been an incredible afternoon. I was just saying we launched about four hours ago. We've already got, I think, over 2,600 views on our launch video and people are starting to take notice and donate and it's uh it's an amazing campaign we've gotten so much positive feedback um you know which is easy when you're frankly standing up for things that people care about so like yeah. what what are you standing up for that makes a difference in that that especially if you're in a very very blue district with a a corporate democrat what what's the contrast between you and and him you know, the biggest contract uh, contrast is that he is he has doubled down on the Affordable Care Act. He does not support universal guaranteed health care, even though literally more than 10 percent of the people in this district are uninsured and just thousands, 
thousands more underinsured. Uh, our district is very much a tale of two cities where we have a lot of fairly affluent people, but then we have all those people who, you know, provide support and services to those people, the baristas and uh, the people who work in the shops and whatever. And, you know, right here in my district, my, my next door neighbor is a construction worker. The guy across the street's a pharmacist. And, you know, it's, 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 that's the biggest, biggest difference. But, you know, he also doesn't support um, paid family leave act and he doesn't support children's early learning act. And, um, in our district, the this is Virginia the, 11. This is Virginia 11th. It's uh, Fairfax and Prince William counties right outside of D.C. And the the, the biggest difference, I'm a, I'm a single mom. I was raised by a single mom. I really get what it means to be a, a single mom, a woman, a parent. The pandemic's been really hard on women. Um in this it's district, been called a, a she session, isn't it? It's a she session. And in this district, the three most disadvantaged groups economically are all single women. Like the most disadvantaged women, 18 to 24, then 25 to 34 and 30, 35 to 44. So you get these, this, this huge group of women who are struggling. And frankly, Connolly's, you know, if you're a federal employee or you do IT, he actually this was something that actually really triggered my desire to just jump in because no one sane really wants to do this, right? You have to really be compelled to, to, to take this step um, was when he held up the heroes act so that he could add $3 billion in it funding for DOD. Like DOD computers were more important than feeding families in this nation and in this district. And that just, I don't know, man, that was just it. You know, that was like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. So anyway, that's that's uh, probably more of an answer than you wanted. No, not at all. I mean, uh, people want to get to know who who the candidates are. And by you just you know talking about why you're running and what the difference is between you and uh, the incumbent, that's how they get to know who you are and, and are able to make a decision. So, um, it, 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 I mean, so it's. It, it, I don't know if it's the most affluent district in America, but it's 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 way right up there as one of the most affluent districts in America. And you're basically running uh, on a uh, a pretty working class uh, platform. Is that correct? I am indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if and you're you a federal worker, or if you're an IT contractor who's making, you know, definitely over a hundred thousand dollars a year, Connolly's probably fine for you, right? But that is maybe economically a big portion of this of this district but from an actual population portion of this district it's not most of the people most of the people are working class people especially in prince william county you know in in june just this last june there was a woman who primaried Connolly. she only raised twenty eight thousand dollars she had almost no name recognition and she still got nearly 25 percent of the vote my son and i were standing in line for the primary, we got one of those little sample ballots and we always take the green ballot because, you know, we take the progressive ballot um, around here. I don't know how it is everywhere else. We get the green ballot for the progressive and the green candidates. And you get the, 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 the pink ballot for the Republicans and the blue ballot for the whatever. Anyway, so we're looking at our green ballot and we see this woman's name, Zane Abbott Mustini, and we're like, who is she? And so my son's like Googling her up and she's like, oh, Medicare for all. Okay, great. Yes. You know, a Green New Deal. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. We voted for her. She got nearly 25% of the vote. 
with no name recognition. This district is ready for change, right? This district has not been represented. This man's been in office for over a dozen years. And it wasn't until he found out we were running because I stupidly did the courtesy of like, I called all the state legislators and I'm like, yeah, I just want to give you a heads up. We're running. And I called Connolly. I actually spoke to his wife and I was like, yeah, I just want to let you know we're running, just trying to be polite. And he has spent the last two weeks like, signing everything, you know, like sponsoring every piece of progressive legislation, which he hasn't done for 12 years. He hasn't done that, right? He's just been this staunch corporate Democrat who gets, you know, 90% of his money from corporate PACs and big donors, and he's in the top 10 for getting money from the military industrial complex, and, you know, suddenly he finds out we're running. And just as a personal note, he stole our Twitter handle because I stupidly mentioned it. He locked it up, which was annoying. But he's just, I don't know. And the more I get to know about him and his policies and how he operates, the more just firm I am in the belief that we need change. And, and, and you know what? I'm, in, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do it. And, and it's just, it's, it, it, it just needs to happen. So, yeah. Great. And I, I'm going to assume that you don't have, um, uh, uh, personal wealth to be able to finance a campaign. Is that correct? Uh, no, I am not intending to personally finance this campaign. That is correct. Right. So, and you, and you, and I, I know from speaking to you that you're not taking any kind of corporate, uh, corporate money. I'm not going to take any money from corporate PACs. I'm not going to take any in-kind services um, or goods. Um, this is going to be a, a by the people, for the people, true grassroots campaign. Absolutely. Because here's the thing, right? Like Conley gets 90% of his money from corporate interests. So who is he going to represent? The people? No, he's going to represent the corporate interests. And that's exactly what he's been doing. And so, you know, if, if you really want, we need campaign finance reform. I mean, that's just got to be a huge thing, right? We've got to get corporate money out of politics. And everybody says that. And it just doesn't happen because there just hasn't been a preponderance of true progressives that have been elected. But I feel like ever since, you know, the last couple of years and the, you know, knock down the house and the squad and this and that, we're, we're getting there, right? Like we can get a preponderance of true progressives in office. We can finally get true change we can get campaign finance reform and then it's you know then it's 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 like a um you know it's 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 just a a self-perpetuating kind of motion right we can just keep making progress and 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 finally get to a point where we can have government by the people for the people right so that's that's what that's you know that's what i want to be a part of i want to be part of a movement that can do this Right, and and I've noticed, uh, like when I looked at your uh, your endorsement page on your website this morning, that uh, you had uh, you had some some of our, our friends that we've had on on the show before, some some of whom aren't even running as as endorsers of yours, and, and so I, I'm I it makes me think that you are trying to uh, get together with um, uh, with with other progressives to to be more than just a, a candidate on your own but to be uh, someone who is uh, trying to be part of a movement. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because, you know, we can't really do it alone. We have to come together and work together. And we've reached out to, you know, on the website, you saw Adam Christensen, Jason Colley, and Momera, who are all amazing. We've also reached out to, um, 
Ava Putsova and Christina Olivo and, and a, a bunch of others, right? A lot of, of people who are really trying to make uh, change happen. We've reached out to ones who are, you know, also like Nina Turner, who is one of my personal heroes and uh, Corey Bush. They're just so busy that, that they haven't reached back to us yet. But, you know, maybe now that we've officially announced and I'm an actual candidate, we can get those relationships going too, because we can work, if we can work collaboratively you know, it's, it's, it's a, some of the parts being more than the individual pieces, right? So if we can work collaboratively, maybe we can really try and get this thing going. Right. So, so I met you uh, through your son, uh, who, who's a college student, and, yeah. and he's very progressive. Are, are, you, uh, are you influencing him or is he influencing you? I imagine you're both influencing each other, but was he eager to get, to get you to run for this, uh, this seat? You know, that is just an excellent question. The reality is that I was in large part kind of blind to a lot of what had been going on. And um, he really opened my eyes through, you know, when Bernie was running for president. And there was this one incident where I was like, oh, my God, I finally get it right. So Bernie Sanders had this huge rally rally at the St. James Center, which is like less than a mile from where we live. It's literally right down the road. Traffic was snarled. There was people all over the place. You know, people were posting all over the place. Oh my God, you know, it's Bernie. We both had friends there and they, you know, taking video and there's like eight or 10,000 people there. It was crazy. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to see this on the news tonight, right? Yeah, nothing on the news tonight. They showed, uh, they showed Biden in South Carolina in a volleyball gymnasium with 200 people. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? And so then I really started to become involved in politics and, and, and what was going on. And we were sitting watching Knock Down the House, and Kyle looks at me and was like, you know, you could run for Congress. That's the documentary I, about AOC. AO, yes, yes. So we, were, so we had just had this thing. So I, I've spent 30 years working natural resource conservation, right, working as an environmental um, professional. And in the matter of four years, Trump like undid my life's work, right? Undercut, you know, Endangered Species Act, weakened the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, one of the first things that I, when he first came in office, I actually had to go to Interior to, to defend the Defense Department's like ability to still protect migratory birds because he had some lawyer who came out and said, no, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act take provision, which is take is when you just like harass or bother a migratory bird, it really doesn't apply because, you know, if you drove down the road and you hit it, you'd go to jail, you'd hit a bird. It was like, are you kidding me? Um, so, so anyway, it was all a process and he really influenced me more than anything. And I became aware and I started doing a lot of reading, especially in May when we literally were having a person of color killed every week. Right. You know, watching the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery on, on television one morning, I'm sitting there drinking my tea and I'm like, this man was just literally lynched. And it was just this whole progress through the summer and into the fall and, um, so he's he's been the one who kickstarted this, and now we we work together very collaboratively. He's my interim campaign campaign manager until he goes back to school. He is a musical theater major and is in a show, so his time's going to become um, a little bit uh, uh, less available to me. But it's 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 definitely him who started, but me who's picking up the baton and moving on. Allie Dalsimer, no, I'm sorry, Allie for Congress dot com. 
Go yes. to AllieForCongress.com. That's A-L-L-Y for Congress.com. She's endorsed by Howie Klein. That means the Blue America Pack has endorsed you. Which that is awesome. Yeah. That's all anybody needs to know. If you're listening to this show, all you need to know is Howie Klein supports Allie Dalsimer for Virginia's 11th Congressional District. Go to AllieForCongress.com. Donate money if you're an American citizen or volunteer. Make calls for Allie. And who are you running against? I am running... Jerry, uh, running against Jerry Connolly. He's a seventh term incumbent corporate Dem who does not support universal health care, does not support paid family leave act, does not support a lot of, frankly, policies that this country and the people in it need. Yeah. And thank you for let having me ask, let me ask a question that in the news today. Um, uh, you know, there, there's some talk uh, from the uh, establishment Democrats. You know, he's in that wing. I don't know where he stands on it, but he's one of them. Yeah, but there's a talk from that they they're willing to compromise on, <clears throat> for example, minimum wage and and uh, and maybe keep that out of the out of the reconciliation bill. There, <clears throat> which means it would be killed. They're willing <clears throat> to compromise on. Uh, having a lower threshold for when people get the uh, the checks. So instead of getting a check, if you make $75,000 or less, uh, the Biden administration, uh, as well as uh, conservative Democrats in the Senate are, and the House, are saying um, uh, yeah. it's 60000 or 50000 I think sixty is, is the number they're talking about now. So, I mean, in a district like yours, that's going to be real. Uh, that's going to be a real problem because uh, you you do have a, a pretty uh, middle class district, and a lot, and a lot of those people aren't going to be happy about that because they're they're hurting as well. They're not in dire poverty, but they are hurting from this pandemic. And they did get checks the first time. I mean, if it's supposed to be a two thousand dollar check. Uh, because they already got six hundred, and now they're going to get four uh, uh, fourteen hundred. But all of a sudden, you're changing you're changing the rules, and the ones who got it under under Trump aren't going to get it under Biden. I mean, does this make any sense? No, it really doesn't, especially in an area like uh, the D.C. metro area. I'm sure it's the same in New York and L.A. and big cities. You know, maybe the difference between fifty thousand and seventy five thousand dollars a year for for a working family is meaningful in middle America in a small town where housing is say, oh, I don't know, affordable. But the lack of affordable housing in this area when the real estate market is booming and rich people are getting richer and the stock market is going crazy. You know, you can't live on that um, to, 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 to pay rent and raise a family. 50 or 75 in this area is meaningless, right? That, that difference is, I mean, it's not meaningless. I shouldn't say that. But it's, it's not enough to make a difference for not getting support. People are hurting. A lot of people are out of work. And a lot of people who anticipated and expected those funds, you know, are going to really struggle not to have them. And the reality is, you know, that, that anybody who really understands the basics of economics, everybody understands that if you give money to a person who is not wealthy, they're going to spend it in their district. They're going to spend it on food. They're going to spend it on clothing. They're going to spend it on shelter. They're going to spend it in their district. They're going to pump up their local economies. If you give money to super wealthy people, 
they buy yachts or homes in Italy or whatever the luxury good is for Italian marble for their fourth home. It doesn't help stimulate the local economy. But aren't and they afraid the more you talk to these people, they say if you if the minimum wage is raised to fifteen dollars and there's money circulating, then how am I going to hire people? It's yeah. going to be too expensive to hire people. And if they have you know, money stimulus checks coming. There's now talk, Richard Neal, Howie's favorite congressman from Massachusetts, head of House Ways and Means, is talking about an earned income, an earned income tax credit of $300 per kid each month. Well, if mothers, if single moms get those checks sent to them, they're not going to want to work. Where am I going to get my labor force from? I mean, they believe that. That's what people yeah. believe. And they've been fed so much propaganda and misinformation that it's hard to get people to understand the truth. And, you know, truth in media is something that is a tricky issue because of First Amendment rights. Right. But the reality is that there's a lot of untruth in media and especially in some of the propaganda that has been coming out. And, you know, to, to, to tell someone that if you pay somebody a living wage, your business is going to go under is just wrong right like henry ford proved that right he doubled the wage for workers and what happened everybody bought a ford right everybody came up lifted all the boats right and so it's it's a specious argument and it doesn't hold water if you know anything about economics so um but what can you do because when people are frankly really brainwashed by misinformation. They don't want to believe they've been duped, right? Nobody wants to believe they've been duped. And so it's very hard to get people to come around. Um, but all you can do is just try to demonstrate things. It's like people who say if we have universal health care, it's going to bankrupt our health care system when the reality is 33 cents of every dollar is going to a middleman, right? It's going to the healthcare industry. It's making hundreds of billions of dollars. And the reality is like that GAO report showed, we're going to save something like $4 trillion over, I can't remember this span, 20 years or something. Right. So you, you, you can try to give facts and talk to them reasonably, but there are, there are people who are just not going to support it because they are listening to QAnon crazy people. And you couldn't even get that conversation going during the debates. I could not see Bernie on national television because they put... 20 candidates up on the stage with him. Yeah. You, 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 he never got an opportunity to make the case for Medicare for all. Howie, yeah. why, why do corporations not support Medicare for all? It, it's a form of welfare for them. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't the corporations rather have the government pay the benefits? Than they, they, it doesn't make sense to me either. They should, but uh, they just see it as something that's going to raise their taxes. I mean, someone has to pay these costs and they feel that the costs are out of, um, you know, they're, they're out of control and they, they, you know, they, 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 it's not even a matter of Medicare for all. They would like to see the end of Medicare period. And, and, you know, big business has not in the past supported it. The people who own big business feel that, you know, they have to pay, they have to pay for it. And they don't they don't they, they have to pay for poor people and they don't want to. You know, I was reading about uh, over the weekend, I was reading about the man in the house rule, which was ultimately ruled unconstitutional. But there was a time, especially in the South, where the state would deny welfare benefits to single moms who had not a husband, 
but if they were having sex or a boyfriend in in the apartment or the house visiting, they were denied their their welfare benefits. And the man of the house rule was enforced in the South during harvest season. That's when the that's when the state welfare agents would start denying welfare to these single moms to get them to go out into the field and Mm -hmm. pick the crops. And as you read that, you have to be reminded that people are that evil, that that people who... The the very first uh, inkling of a a minimum wage act, uh, minimum wage law, was in the 1300s in England. And it wasn't a minimum wage law. It was a maximum wage law. (laughs) They, They literally... Put a they put a maximum on the amount of money that uh, a landowner could pay people to work his land uh, because it, you know they had just been the black plague people were, you know people were dead and they didn't have they didn't have uh, they didn't have the labor force that they needed so prices went up but when prices went up you know no one's talking about uh, you know the free market anymore they just said you know if you you would be fined if you if you paid labor. Eventually, that that bill in started um, uh, to include uh, minimum wage as well. It, it was another 300 years before it included minimum wage. And then eventually they just abolished that anyway. So, yes, the rich have been very, very opposed to this always. And, uh, and it's just a matter of selfishness is really what it is. The, the rich uh, don't pay their fair share of taxes. It's that simple. You grew up in, I'm sorry. I was going to say that's what led to the French Revolution, though. Just because people have been stupid throughout history doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Speaking of the French, you grew up in Mali? Did did I see Ali? Did you grow up in in Mali, in Africa? Uh, So my dad was uh, stationed overseas. I went went to Africa when I was, first time when I was six weeks old. Um, and we were we were never in Mali. We were in um, uh, we were in Senegal. We were in Somalia, and we were in the Congo. And uh, then I went back over when I was in my teens. When he got stationed there again, and we spent the summers. So we spent two and a half months each year there for the for the times that he was there. And we were in um, Chad, and we were in Upper Volta when it became Burkina Faso. That was crazy and we were in Zaire which had been Congo and then went back to being Congo but was at that time Zaire and Mobutu was in power which is why I've seen the effects of propaganda before because lots of propaganda about how fabulous you know Pere Mobutu was um, despite the fact that ministry officials who disagreed with him would disappear regularly uh, so uh, what do we yeah, do was, about was, the, what do we do about propaganda in this country? Whew, I think if I had the answer to that, I'd. But I'd it's all we get. The, MSNBC. All we get. It's one of the. We need independent news programs, right? Like this. So we need more independent news programs. I mean, it used to be. I saw a statistic, and I'm probably going to misquote it, but I think it was ten years ago. The major news outlets were owned. There was something like 21 companies. And now all the major news outlets are owned by five corporations and there's there's no diversity. And we need we need a lot more public funding for independent outlets. 
like Pacifica and like, you know, I, I'm a big fan of PBS. I watch Democracy Now and, you know, the PBS NewsHour and, and that kind of thing. And those are the only places where you can get unbiased news, where you can get real information because everything else is all about, you know, I flipped on the, the um, we were, we were watching the, the Super Bowl last night. And so I flipped the television on this morning instead of being on PBS, it was on uh, CBS. And all they're doing is talking about Paramount and Paramount this and Paramount that. And I was like, oh my God, they must own CBS. Right. Because that's not news. That's well, Par- Viacom. So, but yeah. So it's not news, right? It's, it's, it's just talking about what an amazing job Paramount does with this. And there's this coming out and whatever. And I'm like, this is, this is, this is, this is propaganda. This is not actual news. This is just advertising. This was CBS. You were watching CBS. Well, that's what was on because we'd watched the the Super Bowl last night. Right. CBS owns. Uh, It's part of the Viacam family. Exactly. So no mention of the Bessemer workers in Alabama, the the Amazon. There wasn't even mention of what's going on in Myanmar or the glacier collapsing in India. There was no news. There was just it was like, obviously, there's no world outside of. U.S. entertainment. Um, so, and the only I, way you can get away with that is claiming American exceptionalism. That's what they they tell us we're the greatest country. All the only thing that matters is America. Yeah. Watch this piece of crap from Paramount. Yeah. If I had a magic wand, I think I would tell every American to travel with a backpack when they're young and see the world. Because only then can you really understand where America fits in the bigger picture and what true poverty is, what true heroism is, and what true beauty in the world is. Well, I think Americans are learning what true poverty is, and I yeah. think a lot of them are going to have backpacks pretty soon, yeah. and that's Badly. that's all. So uh, it's funny, Al, you and I have never talked about any of this, and I don't know if you know this or not, but that's what you just talked about is exactly what I did. I I left the country for seven years and traveled around the world, uh, basically with no money at all. And sometimes I uh, was completely dependent on the generosity of strangers, as they say. Uh, Other times I made a good deal on some hash and and was living like a king, (laughs) relatively. (laughs) I did not know that. That is very cool. Now, to tell you about, can we can we let them in on a little secret, Allie, about this interview? Because you sure? did great. You you are fantastic. Oh, well, thank you for that. My very first interview. Yeah, this so. was your right vi- when Allie and I first talked about her coming on today. She was she was nervous. She said she's never done it before, and I said, "Well, this is a good place to uh, get your feet wet." Well, you're you're fantastic, and I'm glad well, this will be a. A uh, people will play this in twenty years. I, I can see Frontline playing awesome. this. <laughs> President Dalsimer made her first appearance. President on the yes. David Feldman well, show. Very hospitable and made it very oh, easy. No. Appreciate, I appreciate it a lot. Well, you, make, you, you, make it, it you make it really easy for me to tell my audience to go to Alley for Congress. A L L Y. She is your Alley ally. Uh, that didn't work. Okay. No. No, it didn't. <laughs> this will be the last time she, she does my show because of that. Allie Dalsimer for Congress. She's running for Virginia's 11th congressional district. 
She's endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. Go to AllieForCongress.com. Give her money or volunteer. Let's send her to Washington, D.C. Thank you, Allie. And thank you, Howie. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates around America and read them every day at Down With Tyranny. I haven't been able to talk to you about all that's going on, but we'll next week we'll talk. Thank you, Howie. Okay, next week. Thank you, Howie. Coming up, Senator Susan Collins. Everybody welcome, Howie Klein. We got him right here, he's on the line. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. Got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegetarian dinner. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. He's also oh smart, he got a lot of brains. He lives in LA. Go where it never rains. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. What he got to say gonna blow your mind Put your hands together for Howie Klein Howie Klein Howie Klein Howie Klein Well, thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel, who will be with us. He will be with us later on uh, in the show. But I have some great news. This is this is so exciting. This is a rarity. Who, whose microphone is hot? Doesn't matter. Please welcome Senator Susan Collins from Maine. Oh, well, he- hello, David. Hello, Senator Susan Collins. It's nice I, to see I don't want to. Oh, well, thank you. I don't want to stay that long. Believe me. <laughs> I, I haven't met personally with with any of my constituents in over 30 years. Uh, why, you ask? Yeah, yes. Why? Why, I ask? Because they all smell like bad sex and lobster. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is the, the slogan on our state flag. Maine, bad sex and lobster. <laughs> That's why people go there. But it's not important right now, nor okay. is it ever, <laughs> because I'm here tonight to, to, to promote the upcoming Diabetic Fury Valentine's Eve show this Saturday, February 13th at 9.30 p.m. Easter time. Easter time? Eastern time. Oh, Eastern time, yeah. What does this have to do with genuine Susan Collins, Maine, moose, merkin masks made in Maine by Mainers, you ask? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. That's a good, yes. What does it have to do with genuine Susan Collins, Maine, moose, merkin masks made in Maine by Mainers? Ticket perks. Mm. Do explain. That's, explain that to me. Well, okay, I will. That's where my Senator Susan Collins' genuine Maine Moose Merkin masks come in. 
Each genuine Maine moose merkin mask is made in Maine by genuine Mainers, mm. exclusively from the Susan Collins collection. The Susan Collins collection. I've seen that at, at Walmart. Yeah. Now, I know what you're thinking. Do these genuine Susan Collins Maine moose merkin masks made in Maine by Mainers protect against COVID? That's a good question, Senator. Do these genuine Susan Collins Maine moose merkin masks made in Maine by Mainers protect against COVID? What's COVID? (laughs) (laughs) That's not important right now. Okay. Because each main moose merkin mask is is offered as a ticket perk for the upcoming live Zoom show Diabetic Fury, oh. starring myself, Jim Earl, Robert Smigel, hmm. Rick Overton, as well as the usual usual miscreants like yourself slobbering all over the microphone <laughs> like a poodle in heat. Uh-huh. Yeah. May, may may we see a sample of the genuine Susan Collins Maine Moose Merkin Mats made in Maine by genuine Mainers, you ask? May we see a sample of the genuine Susan Collins Maine Moose Merkin Masks made in Maine of, by genuine of, Mainers, I ask? Of course, of course you can. Now, Jim Earl is wearing one as I speak. You know, I, I have to say, I didn't think when this was described to me, I didn't think that would be something. Jim? Yes. Yes, Dave. Are, are no, you wearing I'm... a, you, you seem to be wearing a, a genuine Maine Moose Merkin mask. That's correct, Yak Breath. <laughs> I personally swear by the quality of each genuine Susan Collins Maine Moose Merkin mask made in Maine by genuine Mainers. Buy the Maine Moose Merkin mask ticket today and be the first on your block to wear a moose merkin on your face. No actual moose were shaved to make this product, by the way. <laughs> David, where did you go? I can't see you. Oh, you can't see me? You're no, in the dark, Dave. Oh, I'm sorry. I was busy oh, playing the go. promo package. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I have to go now anyway, you fake liberal. <laughs> But David, that's don't redundant. Forget, Fake liberal is redundant. Go ahead. Don't forget to join us in Robert Smigel and Rick Overton this Saturday night at nine thirty, and wear a mask. Thank you, Senator. Su- One more question, David. Yes, please. Do you know the difference between a moose turd and a <laughs> prostate? No, I do not. Oh, so you're the one. <laughs> I don't I don't know what that means, but it's it's good to have you. Thank you so much, Senator Susan Collins. Thank you. David, just a reminder. Get your main moose merk and masks. Yes. Just a reminder, Dave, uh, this and many other moose related jokes will be featured this Saturday. Yes, let, let me tell them about that. And by the way, you make a great male model. I was I wasn't sold on moose merkin masks until I or saw my maleness. Yeah. 
and you look you really look great and and the color of the merkin goes with your eyes because you're in autumn so it offsets the the blue aryan look you're, he's you're a real mainer isn't he yeah he's got in the his, blue his flannel yeah he's got the blue eyes the blonde hair he looks like a product of the hitler youth eugenics program and the the main moose merkin complements that you say that that like it's a bad thing no i think it's great I think it's great. Hey, get out your sweet tooth, folks. Celebrate Valentine's Day a little early with an evening of comedy and diabetes awareness. We call it Diabetic Fury. This Saturday, February 13th, I will be joined by comedy writer and diabetes advocate, as well as an FBI informant, Jim Earl, artist and the voice of First Lady Melania Trump, Susan Collins, Paula Dean, Nancy Pelosi, Martha Previtt will be there. Not only that, we've got an amazing evening of entertainment for you featuring guests, including Emmy and Peabody. No, he didn't win a Peabody. Emmy award-winning comedian and actor and writer Rick Overton, genius, comedy genius Rick Overton, and comedy legend Robert Smigel. Robert Smigel, Rick Overton, and Martha Previtt and Jim Earl, all on one show. Solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. The world is still trash, but we're making it a bit sweeter with these benefits. So spread the word and join us this Saturday night, February 13th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for Diabetic Fury. Now, we know times are tough, so we've added the option to pay what you can we want to raise as much money as we can and invite you to contribute as much as you can. Go to davidfeldman.com, click on the pay-per-view tab, and get your tickets. You can also go directly to Eventbrite and search for Diabetic Fury number four. Is this number four or number five? Search Diabetic number five. Is it number five? Number five. Uh, yes. Okay. Here's Here are the tiers. Now, you do the pay what you want. Or pay what you want or pay what you can tier gives you access to the show plus a collection of digital valentines so you can share a little love and affection with your sweetheart i believe our very own frankie c is making up some digital valentines that you can download i think it's like an iou for sex that, that kind of thing at 50 dollars, you get the private special with the the stickers that you can download and uh, admission to the show, plus a special on-air shout-out from First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump, or one of Martha's other amazing characters. Let me show you some stickers that we have had made by Frankie C. This is one. You can get a sticker, a lefty from way back. Let me show this to our viewers in the Zoom room and on YouTube. Wouldn't you like this? A lefty from way back sticker. Isn't that great? Well, if you take the, I think it's the $50 ticket tier, you get a sticker. And not only that, you get uh, a shard out from Melania Trump or a shout out from some of Martha's other amazing characters for $100. There are two options. You get the script. This includes a copy of the Diabetic Fury script signed by Jim, Martha, and David. Or the second for $100 is you can choose the defacing. 
This includes a book annotated by Jim Earl. We will send you either Promise Me Dad by Joe Biden or Joey, The Story of Joe Biden by Dr. Jill Biden. These are actual books. And Jim Earl will send you the book annotated and defaced by Jim personally. For $225, you can get The Art of the Bigly Toenail, portrait number three, Melania sitting with Barton and Meat, part of the Melania Art Series. And for $250, the First Lady herself, Martha Previtt, will make you a customized, one-of-a-kind pet portrait. Do we have a sample of your pet portraits? Right now we see the Moose Merkin. Which level is that? Which level is the Moose Merkin? That's a $50 perk, David. I didn't see that. Okay, you get a sticker plus a, a Moose Merkin. That's not in the script. So... If, All of these moose merkins are pre-sanitized and safe to for use, immediate use, by yeah. the way. So you have to wear a mask. They're saying double up. Well, triple up. You, you, you know, the, the, a, a, merce, a moose merkin, I, we could get Henry to come on here and testify how moose merkins keep the virus out. Uh, well, we'll... And so, in. Yes. And uh, the $250 tier, we'll talk more about this later. We have to add the Moose Merkin to the tiers. Uh, We'll do that later on tonight. Go to David Feldman's show right now. Hit pay-per-view. We'll take you straight to Eventbrite, and you can buy tickets right now. Everybody who shows up, it's pay what you want. We'll get either a Lefty from Wayback sticker or a Stay Strong and Protect the Week sticker. And there's all, there's the pet art. I wish our listeners could see this. If you have a pet, Martha Previtt will do a portrait of your pet. What level is that, Jim? That's that's amazing. Uh, I think um, Martha or Sue Collins would be able to tell you. That I is think it for two hundred fifty dollar level. The two hundred fifty dollar level. Martha will make level. you a, a pet portrait of your little fur baby. So you get for two fifty, you get the moose merkin mask, you get the sticker, you get all these other gifts plus a portrait of your pet. I wish you could see this. I would assume they're on the Eventbrite page. They're all on the Eventbrite page. If you log on there or go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, you can log on to the live events page and. They'll, we'll take you to the Eventbrite page, which will then feature all of the uh, the pet portraits, a picture of the moose merkin. I'm telling and, you right now, Martha. I'm, yes. I'm going to a shelter to get I'm a, Susan. I'm telling you, Susan, I'm getting a dog just so I can have Martha Previtt do a pet that, portrait of it. That's Martha, David. I'm confused, Jim. Let's do the news. Wait, next... Yes. Next month we're going next month the, the, next month we're going to offer a uh, dog merkin and a moose portrait. <laughs> okay. Why don't you take the merkin off? Cuz it looks great. It is off, you idiot. Is <laughs> I never had it on. I couldn't find it. Where's the moose? He merkin? didn't shave today. Take take uh take the take the merkin off. 
a lefty from way back. Don't you want that? Look at that. And the other one is, what's the other one that uh, Frankie C made? Let me show you. Everybody who shows up, all you have to do is show up to this and you get a sticker. And I really like this. Let me show you this one. This is the Stay Strong and Protect the Weak sticker. So all you have to do is come pay a dollar and you get a Stay Strong and Protect the Weak sticker. Isn't that great? Isn't that something? It's in black and white. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, Jim, we're, we only have a little time left. and I, There's so much news to discuss. Where do we start? How are you, most importantly? I'm tired. I can't seem to, you know, get any energy lately. Join the club. Are you drink depressed? Too, drink too much coffee. I'm depressed. I'm elated. I'm full of energy. I'm exhausted. I know the feeling. I'm overweight. I'm too skinny. I don't know where I'm at. You're everything to everyone. I'm like Jesus Christ. I think I am Jesus. I think this COVID thing, the pandemic. Don't underestimate yourself, Jim. You're more than just Jesus. All right. Well, I was going to say I'm... I am other entities and deities as well. But if you want to make fun of it and mock my belief system, go ahead. Diabetic Fury, Saturday, February 13th. Lane, Mrs. Lane. So Chartreuse gave a class in painting at office hours on Saturday. And look at this. This is Lane Hewitt did a portrait of Coco, his dog. Isn't that amazing? Is Lane, it on some kind of slate? Yeah, that- I mean, Lane is, Lane just, the more you learn about Lane, you think he's 500 different people. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's That's great. Isn't that amazing? The guy is, anyway. John Fetterman will be running for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat in 2022. I think we like him. I didn't have time to ask Howie Klein. He's currently Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor. He's Mm. six foot eight. He's a progressive. And I guess he's going for Pat Toomey's seat. So we'll ask. Too tall for me. Yes. Too tall. Six foot seven. I'm fine with six foot eight. That's way over the top. You're a heightist. You know that? I just want to give the the lower people a chance. Why is he? He's like on the. He's not for uh, the little guys, is what you're saying, right? He's the upper 1%. That's what he is. Yeah. You're right. The United States is rejoining the UN. Human Rights Council, as an observer, no voting rights. What exploded on that ceiling, by the way? It looks like uh, Jackson Pollock uh, threw up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next slide. Well, the Washington Post, what is There's a clanking sound. The Washington Post is reporting that thousands of maskless Tampa fans flooded the streets celebrating the Super Bowl win and creating a super spreader event. It should be called the super spreader bowl, shouldn't it? Even though the mayor of Tampa, Jane Castor, said, if you don't wear a mask, if you're partying outside, you will be fined up to $500. But Well, that's that's better than usual. Usually they spread around the streets without any pants. Yeah, down in Tampa. So we didn't hear about... The, the 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 protesters, the 500 protesters from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers down in Tampa, 500 of them showed up 
to Picket Frontier Communications. They're one of the sponsors of the Super Bowl, and they are trying to cut health insurance for their workers, trying to cut their 401ks, and 500 employees of Frontier Communications were outside the Super Bowl protesting. I didn't see any of that, but little I saw of the Super Bowl. I have a feeling CBS didn't cover the Frontier Communication workers from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Tampa. I'm pretty sure CBS didn't cover that. These are the kids rejoicing during the Super Bowl. Nobody wearing masks. Look at that. This is... The youth was supposed to be like, save this country. Look at those idiots. 50 Cent hosted a wild Super Bowl party Friday night. No masks. He held it in an airport hangar in St. Petersburg. Look at that. 50 Cent drinking, everybody having fun, nobody wearing masks. Meanwhile, Janet Yellen, who's the new Treasury Secretary, says that COVID will have a lasting toll on African Americans. They are not getting their businesses, like 80% of African American small businesses have gone under in the past year because of COVID. And they're also not getting the vaccines because the government isn't targeting their communities. And in the African-American community, they're apparently a little, uh, some African-Americans are afraid of the vaccine. Yeah. Well, you know, and because of Janet Yellen, they'll stay under. Yeah. Nothing will change. Hey, there's Andrew Dice Clay. Remember him? Uh, looks like an overweight Elvis Costello. And, and here he is testifying during the Nuremberg trials, the, the man in the glass booth. No, he's he is performing at a comedy club in Texas. It's packed. Nobody's wearing masks. Would you risk your life to see Andrew Dice Clay? Only if I could throw something at him. <laughs> Speaking of Texas, Congressman Ron Wright is dead at the age of 67, Republican. He was killed by COVID-19. He's finally right. (laughs) I don't know what that meant. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, they're going to bring sports betting to to Texas, and uh, that's what they need. That'll solve all your problems. Should I keep going? No hope of gun control in Texas. This is good news. Richie Neal, the head of the House Ways and Means, committee might tack on a $3,000 a year child aid stipend to to parents. Now you have like 28 children. Are you going to get your $3,000 a kid? Well, yeah. I'm not going to give it to them. Well, I'm, yeah, of course. That, there, there would be an earned income tax credit, uh, $3,000 per child per year, tens of millions of, of kids would get this, and it would be paid out by the IRS each month. This might actually be a good thing. That, that Yeah, for people are, with kids. I can't afford a kid. Do I have to get somebody pregnant now? Just go to the mall and pick out a kid and, you know, you can make more, maybe, see, maybe the ransom. You can get more money from the ransom. This is nice. You always, you always complain how inefficient American health care is. Michael Rogan lives in Boulder, Colorado. He's got cancer. 
And, you know, he's uh, 72 years old and a 72-year-old cancer patient is first in line for his COVID shot. But Boulder Medical Center said, you're not getting your shot. Not so fast, mister. You have an unpaid $243.85 bill. So they denied him his his COVID shot, even though that's illegal. Right, right. You always complain about the inefficiency of our health care system. Just think how much this, how much larger this bill would have been had we had Medicare for all. Exactly. All right. New Yorkers. Somebody spit. Somebody spit on somebody at the football game. Two more snowstorms coming. Tuesday and Thursday. Well, it's winter. There's supposed to be snowstorms. Yeah. The Bergen Record, my old newspaper that I used to read in New Jersey, is uh, running a story from USA Today about African-Americans being afraid to uh, get their COVID shot. Something about the Tuskegee study where uh, African-Americans were given syphilis as part of an experiment. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, well... Yeah. What a country. Yeah. The Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffsenberger, is looking into whether or not to charge Donald Trump for a crime because of the call pressuring him to find votes. Remember that back in, I think that was back in December? Yeah, that's one of his real offenses. And uh, before we go, let's meet Trump's lawyers. He's got two new lawyers, David Schoen who is an Orthodox Jew, who has defended mobsters, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, now he wants to defend Donald Trump, but he wants the Sabbath off because he's a devout Jew. And Chuck Schumer granted him that they will not try Donald Trump on the Sabbath because David Schoen is an Orthodox Jew. And, And... that's that's the first commandment, obey the Sabbath, right? Don't give don't bear false witness. No, I think it's the other way around. This is Bruce Castor. He's the other attorney. When he was district attorney in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, he refused to prosecute Bill Cosby. Yeah. Okay. Remember the woman charged? We talked about this last week. Jenny Cudd, she's a florist from Texas. And she said she would storm the Capitol again. Mm -hmm. She prepaid a a corporate retreat for her employees to go to Mexico. And she said, I want to go to the Riviera Maya with my employees. We already bought the tickets. I know we try to overthrow the government, but uh, can I go to Mexico? And the judge said, yeah, go ahead. There's no there's. No flight risk. There's no. She's going to Mexico, but there's no flight risk. And Lou Dobbs. Well, she's she's, she's got to deliver some fl- flowers to another insurrection when she gets back. <laughs> <laughs> Lou Dobbs has been fired by Fox News. Uh, has something to do with Fox News being sued by Smartmatic? They're suing Fox News for two point seven billion dollars. It's a defamation suit. I also think Dominion 
is also suing Fox News, as well as Maria Bartiroma. Apparently, the only way to get people to tell the truth, you have to sue to stop the lies in America. Fox News is in third place. Who's suing CNN and MSNBC? Why would you sue uh, CNN? Aren't they aren't they good people? Oh, they're CNN. horrible. I know. They're All right. I just like to point out that every one of these genuine main moose merkins comes with a straw hole for your mai tai. <laughs> Like I, all genuine Americans, yes, come with uh, straw holes, and and you, there's uh, no money back guarantee, right? That's the policy. Merkin, yeah. love it or leave it. I believe there's no money back and there's no guarantee. <laughs> there's, right. All right. Very. But good. it will protect you from rare moose COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Everybody, go to davidfeldmanshow.com dot com and. Go to pay-per-view, get a ticket for this Saturday night's COVID, no, no, uh, Diabetic Fury. Yeah. And but, we're going we're gonna to have Robert but, Smigel there and, and Rick Overton, and we're raising money for diabetes. Where Take the moose merkin mask off, please. You know, Martha's, uh, Martha's mom said these are selling like hotcakes. Okay. Thank you, Jim Earl. Follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Earl 666. I'll see you Thursday, right? Yeah, excuse me. I got a moose ball. <laughs> all right, stop. All right. Now, all right. Let us now go. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. And she is a psychotherapist in New York today. Are you in New York? Yeah, in New York City. Okay. And if you have a question, I don't want to be a a pig. So if you have a question for Dr. Harriet Fraud, please raise your hand. I understand you and your husband are coming to Ricky's Marxist study group. We are. I I believe that's next Sunday. Sunday the 26th is when it is. So, yeah. you know, I did watch the Super Bowl. Am I wrong? Am I just a party pooper to think that it's everything? That there's no redeeming value to football and to the Super Bowl. That it's everything that's wrong with masculinity. And to see like now they have a female ref or ump, whatever you call them, and I'm supposed to think that's a step up for women. Is there anything redeeming about football other than it reminds me why I hate a certain segment of our population? Yeah, I don't think so. There's always lots of child sex abuse at those games. But also it's that, you know, to have these rhinos charging at one another and giving each other concussions, making them brain dead, and these kids who couldn't make money any other way doing this, is sad. It's just sad because they're prematurely senile. They're broken. It's a very sad thing. And it's a terrible sport. It's a terrible sport. And it's probably going to be outlawed because, or or they're not outlawed, but 
what's going to happen is more and more mothers are not going to allow their babies to play the game because they can't make a helmet that's safe. That's right. So the only people that will play it are people whose parents find it worthwhile that they get a concussion as long as they're making, have a chance to make some money. It's very sad. The the brain damage, the neurological disease, you just, a couple of, a couple of the players seem to be doing okay, but it's a disproportionate number of NFL players who are either dying early, paralyzed, or have dementia, dementia, or being sent to prison because it's turned them turned them violent. Uh, any anything hope <laughs> anything hopeful? The 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 Biden administration well, people are, are defending it. Well, I think look. There was a low bar, but they are doing better than their predecessor, Donald Trump. And they are starting to attack COVID and getting vaccines out. They're starting from a chaos of minus zero because there was nothing. Right. And I think that they're making a big mistake if they don't really hold Trump accountable, but try to get this impeachment trial over quickly. Because these people have to be accountable for their crimes, or else they'll be free to co- commit more. They are abusers, and abusers have to be stopped. Yes. And so I don't, you know, the corporate Democrats like Pelosi and Schumer just want to get this impeachment thing over fast instead of really holding them and the 199 congressmen who supported Marjorie Taylor Greene to make them all accountable for the crimes they facilitated. And under the 14th Amendment, I, you know, Article 3, if they aid, abet, and give comfort to an enemy in an insurrection, they are committing sedition. So we have QAnon, which seems to be taking over the Republican Party. It, it yes, seems that- to be the party of QAnon and not that I'm going to protect the democratic party, but why, why wouldn't the Republicans become QAnon? They'll believe anything. They, they, they spread the lie that tax cuts for the richest 1% will boost the GDP, will balance the budget. They've been spreading that lie since Reagan took office. That's right. And there hasn't been any evidence of it ever being true. What Trump has done is he hasn't fulfilled any of their prom- his promises. There's no manufacturing being brought back. Their jobs aren't resuscitated. Their communities are in trouble. But he's expressing their outrage. And he is giving voice to their frustrations and their outrage that their lives have been taken from them and that their white supremacy and male supremacy have been taken from them and that their livelihoods have been taken largely and they are now no longer the greatest right. in their little communities either because a lot of those were small business types. How smart are the people at the top of the Republican Party in terms of perpetuating these lies? Because well, 
That's a good question, but I think you have to look at the, there's an uneasy alliance in the Republican Party, which is even more, even less tenable than the uneasy alliance in the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party, you have the 1% who are very blessed by that enormous tax cut that they got and deregulation, because, and theirs is the Republican Party. That's one side of the Republican Party. Then the other side are the evangelicals who will believe that Trump is God's emissary because he's been so good for them. But they're being controlled by the 1%. The like, like Jerry Falwell Jr. is part of the 1%. Franklin Graham is part of the 1%. Exactly. And they're being controlled by the 1%. But they're also being, their way of life, which is, you know, Puritanism, is being given vitality by Trump in his banning abortion so women can't gain control of their bodies by being terrible about sex abuse and forcing women back into the home. And it's a fascistic agenda because women have to work. And just like in Nazi Germany, women had to work, but they also had to do all the housework and childcare. It's the same in Trump's America. But these guys are being elevated. They're somebody again. And that's very important to them. And Bernie could have elevated them as we deserve more. We of the working class, they love Bernie. And Trump tried to make an alliance with Bernie, but Bernie wouldn't do it. Right. And so that, you know, they will believe anything. Also, they know that they've been looked down on by the elites and mocked. And they have been denied. And that there is a kind of aloof snobbery. People like Hillary Clinton describe them as a basket of deplorables. And uh, so that they feel despised by their government and they're willing to believe almost anything like that Jews in outer space with lasers started the forest fires commanded by Soros. What? But also they've been lied to a lot. So they'll believe anything and they're desperate. You know, I, I know this is sacrilege to go after this David Hogg kid. This is the survivor of the, the Parkland Memorial. And an organizer of the Youth Against Guns after his school had such a mass shooting. Right. He and Gonzalez. Right. And uh, Congresswoman Green went after him and that's grounds. And as far as I'm concerned, if she says that was a... F- false flag operation, you know, she should be permanently shunned. However, however, David Hogg is a brand and he's off at Harvard. And last week he signed some deal to go after the My Pillow guy, the the crazy Lindell guy. Good. He, well, you think that's good. I think that's bad. I, I think that that is what fosters the the contempt for our side when when you've got a guy like David Hogg who a gets into Harvard so he automatically identifies with the richest 1% and then instead of focusing on gun control 
he signed some kind of deal to make a pillow to humiliate the, the Lindell guy. To me, that suggests that he's got an agenda that's way beyond gun control. And his parents are, I don't approve of this. Because I, 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 it, it no. feeds that right wing narrative of contempt for the 99%. Well, I don't know. I He also really hurt Laura Ingram at, at Fox because he went after her sponsors when she mocked That's him. That's true. And she That's put true. down their whole gun control initiative. That's true. Fox made her take a vacation. Right. And I think that he learned that you go after the sponsors, you're doing a good deed. I agree with you. People understand that it'll cost them, literally in what they care about, making money, there's power in that. So I can see his doing that as perfectly fine and perfectly in sync with his fight against the NRA. Okay, and you're right. I'm wrong. always made that movement. You you're know, right. I'm wrong. I, yeah. You're right. You're right. He's been consistent. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Well, so I have to correct you on another thing since I'm being right. Okay. <laughs> Which is that Rick Wolf went to Harvard too. There's plenty of people who went to Harvard and used the skills they got and the pedigree against the establishment. Mostly they didn't. But I've also heard him speak about how that school bends you to their will and totally. and, and makes you complicit and doesn't well the first, it doesn't foster original thinking i i think no. I, I, I no identification with the working class they had maid service in their dorms right you know and they were told yeah, they are going to be the leaders of this country they had to wear a jacket and a tie to breakfast they had a protest against it where they wore only jackets and ties it wasn't co-ed at the time and so they changed it, but you still had to be, you know, looking spiffy at breakfast. That, that's, they, yeah, that, but my problem with these kids, like the the poet Gorman and Hogg, is they they get into Harvard, and then they're on a separate track, and they're they're young and they're making connections, and they begin to be brainwashed into believing that they're two types of people. And and you see it with the Clintons and you see it with the Obamas. They they think, all right, I got the golden ticket. I'm different from other people. I'm not going to identify. You know, I'll I'll pay it forward, but first I'm going to get my seven-figure salary. So you don't see Michelle and and Bill Clinton marching with the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama. You never did. I mean, they, they joined the anti-war in Vietnam protests when they were at Yale Law School, but that was a different time. When and they were, that was a resume builder. That's when the, yes, that's when the Democratic Party... The, that's the, right. But that's because that's who they were. But there were other people like Adam Hochschild who went to Harvard and really has dedicated his writing to justice. And Rick Wolf who honed his skills in Marxism. Harvard was so stupid, they didn't even realize that a lot of the brilliance they attributed to him was he, he uh, 
use Marxian theory that they never heard of because they were so ignorant. But he honed his skills. Look, when he was at Yale, some people from Yale came and said that they wished they could take away his degrees from Yale because he had used them against that university to show people that they were lying and that they should pay taxes and everything else. So, you know, some people, not everyone falls for it, but they do cultivate a sense that you are the leadership and you are above. Right. And that's sick. It is sick. It's, uh, I'm reminded of what Professor Harvey J.K., one of the first things he said to me was, I'm not trying to build bridges between the 1% and the 99%. I'm trying to destroy that bridge. There's... It's in float away because the bridge should have no moorings anymore. Because it's it's a lie. It, it is a, it is an absolute lie to think that other people are better than you, or that other people are more gifted, or or, or, or that smart. other people are less gifted. Right. Like when my husband went to Harvard the first week, and he his family were refugees, so they had an idea of the university as an elevated place. And he went to Harvard because it gave them the, him the best scholarship. And there he was in his dormitory and guys were draped over chairs, lighting their own farts. So he realized, whoa, this is not the university that my parents thought it was. You know? right. How, and, you know, I'm a broken record on this, but I, I, I think it's the root of our problem in this country because we, we put such a value on education. We say that the most important thing is the schools and we have to educate our kids. And we're so busy educating our kids, we forget that one quarter of them are food insecure, that we have hundreds of thousands of kids living on the streets. Uh, you can't educate kids if they don't have a home or if they don't have a warm meal three times. Yeah, but they also don't care about educating public school kids. Over 60% of them don't get consistent internet because their parents can't afford it or because if there's a glitch in their little machine, their parents can't fix it or their parents don't speak the language or their house is so crowded and noisy they can't focus because there's lots of families in there to save rent. We don't care about poor people. We don't care about people without money. And it's a class system. And Harvard can reinforce that class system. You know, they it, can. it reinforces it, not just Harvard, the whole structure so, of our whole education system, these elite absolutely. colleges, because it, it perpetuates the myth that if you work hard enough or if you won this mythical genetic lottery and that you're brilliant, if you were born brilliant, then you'll get into these elite schools. The fact that they call them elite schools is un-American. And the, and the idea that a, a kid, an 18-year-old kid, can go to a school, not for the education, mm -hmm. for the connections, Absolutely. and for the status, it, it's, it, until we get rid of that, that's true. We'll have a class-based society. And for all our talk about education, 95% of private school students are learning. About 
7% of public school students are consistently learning. So that we don't care about education for the mass of people. We care about education at the top. And look, uh, Betty DeVos, who believed only in Christian private education. And it's a, you know, our education is as corrupt and difficult as the rest of Americans' pretenses of democracy. And some people are trying to address it. In Chicago, they have community unionism. They're in their contract. They're fighting evictions because they say kids can't learn if they're evicted. But it is a class- Or even have the threat of eviction- Over their heads, that's right. Hunger, one, look, half of American families, that's 50% in the census figures that came out about three days ago, are worried that they won't have enough money for food and rent in the month coming for March. Wow. It's a class society, and it is the most unequal of all the developed world, even though in 1970 we were the most egalitarian. We are now the least of the 37 countries that are considered better developed, some of which are like Czechos, you know, the Slovakia and, you know, the two Czech republics there or Hungary or other places that are not notably prosperous, but they do better than we do. And they played a trick on the middle class. You you talked about how this economy flipped in 74, where we started outsourcing in, jobs. In the 70s, absolutely. In the 70s. And so the trick that was played on the middle class is we can't bring those jobs back, but we can educate you to do the jobs that are available in this country. And suddenly it became really important that your kid, especially in the 90s, in the early aughts under the Clintons, that it's you got to get an education to to work. You, You can't get a job unless you have an education. What do you mean you have to get an education? That that has become the the excuse for poverty now. Well, he dropped out of high school. And so if you dropped out of high school, you might as well just lock them up and put them in prison. That That's the what? attitude in this country. And then you have somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, the rapist, who who testifies before the Senate Judiciary Committee, describing that, you know, his crazy beer-soaked weekends. You know, I worked hard. You know, I got into Yale. I studied hard. And not a single senator said, did you work when you were going? Did you have to did work? school or Yale? Right. Did you, did you have to? So, in other words, you had all day to study. You didn't have to work your way through Yale. And you were able to go on these uh, vacations with your friends, the keggers at the beach. That's working hard? The the, the, yeah. the idea that he earned, he, his father is a lobbyist for the fragrance industry, and he went to this elite private school, and he liter- and he actually believes that he worked hard to get into Yale. And not one yes. Democratic senator said, excuse me? Right. Excuse me? You worked hard? The only one who would have said it and she wasn't there would have been AOC. Because when they said, how can you say that you're for the working class when you come to Congress in those beautiful suits? She said, you're so rich, you don't even know about renting your clothes. Right. You know, she doesn't allow that. But there is a class system here. 
where some people basically live off of the labor of other people through their stock and bond income and their wealth. And the mass of people, if half can't even imagine getting through the next month, the mass of people are totally screwed. And if they have their kids borrow up to the hilt to go to school, it takes on average 20 years to pay back. In which, in that time, you can't get any kind of a job that takes any risk because you have to pay your bill. That's the biggest form of debt in the United States, even outstripping credit card debt now. It's a terror. Look, our system has devolved. The other countries in Europe have strong socialist, communist, anarchist parties that counteract naked capitalist predation. We don't, to our detriment. And we were so, you know, we were an anomaly. After World War II, we were the only surviving economy. And so we could afford anti-communism. People didn't have to struggle. There was enough extra. You, and right. if you were white and male, you could support a family. Right. And so we didn't have that solidarity then. And the McCarthy anti-communism worked to condemn communists and their socialists as fellow travelers. And, and it was about the labor. You, it was the McCarthyism exactly. was about destroying the labor movement. And they did. They got a guy named Murray, with the help of the Catholic Church, working on it, to throw the communists and socialists out of the union. And they were the spark. And it died. I was and were in terrible trouble. I was reading the obituary. John Sweeney died. He was the head of the AFL-CIO. And in the obituary, it's so interesting how the New York Times just will write something and not yeah. see what they've written. They don't understand. They said uh, Sweeney took credit. While, the, while labor unions were falling apart, uh, Sweeney, Sweeney's legacy will be in maintaining his control over the Democratic Party, his influence over the Democratic Party. So he wasn't able to, Sweeney wasn't able to increase the uh, number of union workers, but no. he was able to make deals with the Democratic Party. Yeah, and he got shafted too, because labor was shafted. You know, But he should have left the Democratic Party. You know, of he, course he should have. Or he should have brought the radical left into his unions to reignite them the way they did in the 30s and the 40s until the late 40s and the end of the war. But he didn't. And there's a, a man named Frank Annunziato who did an analysis of union structure. He was a union person in the teachers union and also in the hotel and bartenders union. And he, he showed how the, it's a corporate structure how the top gets an enormous amount, the bottom doesn't, and how they sell services like collective bargaining, as well as certain forms of insurance and so on. In Europe, no union leader is ever allowed to be paid in Germany or France or Sweden or any of those Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands. They can't be paid more than the highest paid worker in their union. Really? That's right. And they are held accountable. You that, can't have that, an independent bureaucracy of fat cats. Richard Trumpka, the head of the AFL-CIO right now, he's a lawyer. and they, he's I think he makes 200 grand a year. At least. 
at least. That's right. And then other separates him from the mass of people who are working in his union. And it brings in opportunistic infections, resume builders who are passing through and they do a little work for the union and then they move on. The lawyers or the, the, I didn't know that in Europe, you have to make what you're. You have to look, you cannot earn more than the highest paid member of your union, which makes sense. You ought to be in the same boat as the people you represent. That makes excellent sense. And there's a lot more democracy in fighting for who gets what position. They identify, it, it, it trains. What we have now in America is you have these wealthy union leaders who identify with the oppressors. That's right. And who are disconnected from, their, from the workers they ostensibly represent. So when I was growing up, what I was force-fed was that Russia was a complete failure and that Stalin killed almost as many people uh, as Hitler. The Kuliaks, he starved his people. But if you look at America since the Russian Revolution, how many people have we killed? And how many people died of hunger or died of drugs because they became desperate? The, there are, look, Russia did, under Stalin, Russia did go backwards. And that was terrible. And millions of people were killed. That is true. But I think millions of people all over the world die because of the United States. In Iraq alone, Vietnam. How many? How many millions of people died in Laos? We, we killed. We killed millions in Laos, and that's not even talked about. That's right. And in the next generation, with the Agent Orange, and how many people were killed with the A bomb and the H bomb? You know, really, killings are terrible, and those killings are terrible. But in 1917, women got the vote in Russia. Abortion was legalized. Gay rights were legalized. Children started learning about sex as what pleasure they could get and give to others and studying the female orgasm, a guy named Schnabel who had the book that they all had so that they could learn the bo- about their bodies and how to give them pleasure mutually and not exploit each other. They also employed women. They also had canteens where women brought home dinner and laundries where the, their laundry was done. It was still women who were in charge of those things, which isn't the greatest. But they helped enormously to free people to work, but also to be sexual beings and not be in relationships out of economic dependency. And, and America invaded Russia after. That's right. They had, Wilson and they did this while having World War I and an invasion by four nations, and a civil war, and they still became a world power and economically developed on a level unparalleled by anyone except the Chinese in terms of development. And in terms of taking a population where women could be killed by their husbands, where there was mass illiteracy, and made modern literate people and committed atrocities also. And that should not be 
It not it shouldn't be whitewashed, but they shouldn't be blacklisted either. Because you can learn a lot from that. Kristen Godsey has written excellent books about that. Her latest one, Why Sex Was Better Under Socialism. Right. It's a very good book. Before you go, 30 years, we're coming up on 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. Are the Russian people better off under this, whatever you want to call this authoritarian Authoritarian. No, they're not. And there are movements. Look, lately they've been battling in the streets because people are demonstrating. And America kind of caused. Well, we certainly subsidized it because look. We took their money is what we did. Took we, their we banked money. their money. And an arms race that they couldn't catch up with and benefit their people. You know, however, they were authoritarian states. They didn't have to be. And they made huge mistakes. But they also brought people out of feudalism into, into the modern world. And they changed women's lives radically. And so we, we shouldn't whitewash them or we shouldn't blacklist them either because we can learn a lot from them. And what we learned from anti-communism was they were all bad. And that's stupid. We have to learn just like we have to learn what Marxism is in our schools. We don't have to be Marxist, but we should learn what most of the world learns and understands. We have to wrap it up. You know, I tell my friends who don't live in New York this and they don't believe me. If you want to know what happened to Russia's riches, come to Manhattan and you'll see these 50, 70 story monstrosities that are empty and they're all worth 70 million, 100 million, right. 60 million. You walk the streets of Manhattan. This was even before the pandemic. Manhattan is supposed to have a couple million people. At eight o'clock, it's empty. Where is That's everybody? Well, these these all these towers are empty. Nobody lives in them because they were safety deposit boxes, right? They're investment properties. Look, the New York Times had a series showing that on Fifty Ninth Street, between Fifth Avenue, it's Fifty Seventh, excuse me, between Fifth Avenue and Third Avenue, seventy five percent of the buildings are occupied, if anything, a couple of weeks a year. They're investments for foreign money, a lot of which was stolen. Mm -hmm. The United States was safe because we didn't have any revolutions here. And we don't have a uh, a government that cares where the money comes from. Exactly. And we're run by and we didn't have a real estate agent, a real estate industry that cared either. Yeah, we were, in fact, Ethan is here. We were talking about that piece in the Times last week about billionaires row. Mm -hmm. There are all these apartments that are worth $60 million and they're purchased by shell corporations. And that's uh, right, because they need to disguise the ownership because then when the dictator falls or something goes wrong, they want to come here to the safe haven of the United States where they have a stash in that apartment right. because the apartment's worth so much. New York City, and I'll wrap it up. I'll give you the last word. New York City is one big money laundering operation. Wall Street is one big money laundering operation. And people need to learn how to launder money. And once you learn how to launder money, you'll understand how Donald Trump 
got to be president and why Robert Mueller refused to pull on that thread. Because if Robert Mueller pulled on that thread, the whole system would come crashing down. And now a state Supreme Court judge in New York ruled that Paul Manafort, who was pardoned by Trump, cannot Mm -hmm. be tried in the state of New York for money laundering because of double jeopardy. But I think the state Supreme Court knows we can't, we can't, anyway, Dr. Harriet Fraud, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Capitalism hits home. It's not just in your head. How do people contact you? How do people, if if they they need help? HarrietFraud.com, my website, hfraud.com, or just look me up. I have a weird name so they can find me. Or, you know, they could email me, hfraud at gmail.com. And before I go, I want to say that Bob Henley has exposed the fact that there's a law on our books since 1905 that for every $100 spent on stocks, a nickel goes back to the city. And they they take out the nickel and then the city sends it back. Since 1980. Since 1980 or 85. Yeah, they got rid of that. Worth about $1.6 to $1.9 billion a year to the city, which needs money. And so, wow, that just sums it all up. Oh, which you can't, you can't end on this. I mean, we got to, before you go, this is really important. It's kind of like a speculation tax yeah. that, that Wall Street, the, the trading that goes on, it would be a nickel per transaction. A nickel for every hundred dollars. So it's a lot more than that. So it's five cents and it discourages this speculation and trading that goes on that creates nothing. And it's gambling. And the city of New York used to get, as you point out, a nickel. And uh, now they still deduct it, but then they send it back. The city sends it back. And then they have all sorts of rationalizations for that. Oh, if they did that, the stock market would move to New Jersey. No, that's very expensive, and you could make laws against it. It's just an excuse to subsidize the top, which keeps this top-heavy system going. Right, and let them leave. Wall Street, if Wall Street let Wall Street leave. a lot leave. of jobs, they won't leave. Okay, thank that's you. That's whatever factory threatens, yeah. Thank you, anyway. Dr. Fraud. Thank you. It's always good to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you. We'll we'll talk to you next week, I hope. Thank you. Well, let me remind everybody that you're listening or watching The David Feldman Show. And we have Diabetic Fury this this week, Saturday. We're going to do Diabetic Fury. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button, and it's pay what you want. Now... Let's go to Cape Cod, I believe, or Brooklyn, where Renan Hirschberg is standing by and Ethan Hershenfeld. You're in Cape Cod, right, Ethan? Let me, the, right, let right. me. I was, uh, I was excited. Uh, was, uh, Aaron Berg was hilarious earlier, and I was, I was frightened and honored that he shouted out my location. I felt like he was coming for me. <laughs> Hey, Renan. Hey, how are you all? Uh, yeah, you know what's weird about Aaron? I'm listening, 
with four ears, two ears to laugh, and the other two, I'm thinking, what can I call your lawyer? <laughs> yeah, what, what, what do I have to take? And and he he knows exactly where to take it, so I can't sit. He he, I don't know, Renan. He did uh, my so gay marriage like- in San Francisco. He acted out my gay marriage, uh-huh. and, and it was really funny. It it was gay, but it wasn't yeah. it, like if somebody complains, I can't say you're right. I don't see anything. Right. What but do you mean he acted out your gay marriage? He had me in a gay marriage. And <laughs> what do you uh, mean? What does he mean? Well, were you, well, I mean, was it a real marriage or I don't I don't know. It's a sketch. It was a sketch that he, okay. he was. And, and I'm listening. Going, this is not. There's, I'm going to have to bleep this. There's going to be, there's, there's going to be stuff. Right. On that. And I'm listening and there was nothing, you know, it involved sex, but the right, Ethan, there was nothing. But it was, it was, fa- it was good for the whole family. <laughs> I've never heard that about Aaron Berg. Good for the whole family. I thought it was good for America. It was just good for the world. I love it. <laughs> You're right. There was nothing problematic. Uh, it's all, uh, Good, good fun. It was good, good fun. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I missed it. Uh, sounds like you're still kind of worried about legal ramifications. Or oh, no, no, or, no, no. Just people. I, I listen. You know, people I, getting mad. People, people getting uh, mad and canceling people, you. Have yeah. you considered a an LLC formation for this show just to hide yourself behind I do. It the is. corporate veil? Okay, I do, good. yeah. That I'm yeah, the, bar, the bar for cancellation is getting higher. You have to like sex cannibal. <laughs> you have to be a cannibal now to get canceled. We've raised the bar. <laughs> Did you, uh, are you following this by the way? The army hammer. You know uh, tell me about army hammer. He is an actor. Um, and he recently every, uh, got uh, dropped by everything. Cause he, in, in sex, he was sexting. He, uh, he talked about being a cannibal in the sexting. He took the in the sexting was being a cannibal. So, but it was a sketch. <laughs> it was a sketch. By, it was a sex by Ehrenberg. Um, well, it was to be fair, it was sexting. So, if he's a cannibal, according to that, then I can fuck for hours. You know, sexting, <laughs> sexting it, is not real. But yeah, you know. But he's got other issues, doesn't he? Isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think he. Well, it's one of those things. Every time there's like a Me Too thing, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please go on right after I say this very important thing. His biggest problem is that his name is indistinguishable from baking soda. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what he got canceled. (laughs) Sorry, run on. Go ahead. I actually think he might actually be so rich. I think maybe someone in his lineage is one of the creators of that. I think Uh. so. Okay. I think he's like from the Army Hammer thing. Oh, Armand Hammer. The Armand Hammer. I think he is. I think he's like the third generation. <laughs> really? Yeah, I think so. Do you know the I, story about Armand Hammer? No. Because if you look at baking soda, it has the hammer and sickle on it because Armand Hammer was really tight with Stalin and Lenin, and I believe set up oil companies in Russia. So it's a Marxist baking soda? Yes. I'm it throwing out. it out. I'm taking it through my kitchen and throwing it out right now. <laughs> so it, it turns out that Col- Colombian yayo is not the most profitable white. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm pretty sure that there's some, you know, the Koch brothers also are communists. Well, they they <laughs> built they built up Stalinist Russia, and I'm pretty sure Armand Hammer, until he died, was a like a conduit to the Soviet Union. So Army Hammer is interesting. But isn't he like hasn't he been accused of being emotionally abusive? And isn't that Yeah, it's all those things. Whenever I hear something, I'm always like at first like, all right, let's wait till all the evidence, everyone's jumping in. And then you like right as you read more, there's always a part where it's like, well, then he cut up a woman and like, God damn it. Like you, you right. know, the evidence always is always bad. <laughs> I think he like cut his name into a woman or something. That's Ooh. not emotionally abusive. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's physically I mean, abusive. That's still well, it probably has some emotional abuse too. It's both. Well, Aren't just, all relationships, Ethan, emotionally abusive? I mean, th isn't that why they end? Like all, <laughs> like all marriage, half of all marriages end in divorce. Everybody yeah. has been in one relationship that doesn't work. Aren't isn't like emo, like emotionally well, I, abusive? That's a tough one to be accused of being well, emotionally abusive. They definitely all involve use. So everyone's <laughs> using each other. The question of abuse like when when the other person is doing i guess doing something cruel or something that you don't deserve mm -hmm. that's where it, yeah where they're they're over the line but if it's tit for tat like uh you know if you're giving and getting i, I guess i don't have a, any any but as i understand it now we don't you know i want to be careful here renan mm -hmm. but yeah. if you're in a relationship by its mm -hmm. very nature a relationship is emotionally abusive well, because people, yes, people are awful. We're all awful. <laughs> right. So when we're in a relationship, we're abusing each other emotionally, right? Because we're awful. <laughs> that's that's how relationships work. Whoa, but whoa, it's, whoa, 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 whoa. it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. David. What about the what about the the you know the, the hugging and the tender and the affection and the I mean the stuff you see in those movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's just to get you know that's just to get them to the emotional abuse that's just there to lure you in and then you start the emotional abuse. withholding it but yeah. the minute yes. you withhold it it's like it's like the first one's free it's like, worry, it's like the heroin dealer yes i'll give you a little i'll give you a little hug <laughs> exactly. and then and then you got to have the emotion first before you yeah. withhold it. That's the whole point of emotion. So you can eventually withhold it. When you get hugged, Renan, it produces oxytocin, right? Um, maybe, yeah. That's, it, that sounds right. That's what gets where you laugh. So I believe that's probably similar. And, and so then, then you're like addicted to it. You want it again. Yeah. And then you withhold it. You go through love withdrawal. I interrupted you. You were about to say something. Well, my biggest worry is that a woman will accuse me of using my power as a successful comedian to take advantage of them, <laughs> and that no one will believe her. <laughs> they'll, be like, they'll be like, well, he's, she's clearly lying. <laughs> That's my biggest worry. <laughs> hey, uh, I got some news stories. Ethan, you want to respond to that, or should I? Oh, my God, I would love to. But can I just say one thing before we do that? Yeah. I could not agree with you more what you said to Dr. Fraud about the Super Bowl. It is the most depressing. I It put me in such a sour, dark state of mind about our country and about the world to dip my, 
brain into that world for an hour, not just the football, but the commercials and the way of talking and the self aggrandizing and the congratulations and the, 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 all of the, 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 the hyper toxic masculinity, everything about it. It's, it put me in such a foul. How much did you lose? (laughs) $18. I only (laughs) with no odds. That's a mistake. Did you, my favorite part was that they had all the cardboard cutouts in the arena. Did y'all see them? I didn't Um, watch it. They had cardboard cutouts of people to make it look packed. Hmm. All these cardboard, it's true, all these cardboard cutouts of faces, and they were so lifelike that none of them were wearing masks. That's how detailed <laughs> it was. That was my question. If they were wearing like fake, if they cut out, yeah, okay. Oh, no, yeah, they had, it was it actually is interesting. They designed it, I guess, to look real. So, like, you see it, and there's like two of them are wearing masks in a thing, and the most of them are not wearing masks. Listen, wow. they don't, in Florida, they don't even have the cardboard cutouts huh. wearing masks. This is from Fast Company. 59% of Americans say they do not plan to return to a physical gym once the pandemic is over. But they're all going back to an emotional gym. That's the new thing. (laughs) Remote with people in a room. People yell at you. What do you think? Emotional. Um, I'm part of a group. We, We swim at this municipal pool in Brooklyn every morning but since march 17th we've been meeting at 9 a.m seven days a week on zoom to basically do a fake version of that you're workout. gonna get electrocuted well yeah the the the, the macbook in the bathtub it's not <laughs> not covered under the warranty but the, no that's what we've been doing and why i don't know why we would go back except i guess if the pool opens but when's that going to be safe i don't know. I don't understand you were swimming before yeah and but now we you're would, on Zoom, yeah. but you're not we're, swimming. You're not, not like all in bathtubs or anything. You're just no, not swimming. We, after our swim, we used to go upstairs at the gym and do some. Oh, you'd hang, you'd hang. Okay. Well, sit ups and push ups, that kind of thing, like what they call like a core workout. Now that's what we do. Everyone's invited, by the way. It's free. It's very fun. But yes, why would you go back to sweating on top of people? I don't know. Because you're still paying for it. Ever try to quit a gym? Well, yeah, except I I had to falsify an Amex bill to quit a gym in Boston after college. They said, if you're within a 90 mile radius of one of our gyms, you can't leave. So I had to get out the whiteout, a typewriter, a Xerox machine to get out of that thing. They they make you fucking write a letter, like literally write a letter, which is like unheard of now. Like, it's just like, I just rather pay the $10 a month to like figure out how to write a fucking, you know, if you have to write a letter, first you have to, then you have to write it. Then you have to get like a postage stamp. It, it's like, I don't, I have to remember all these things I did 15 years ago. Right. It's, it's, it's insane. The, the municipal gym pool situation in New York city, by the way, incredible for like a hundred bucks a year, you have access to all of them. Really? Like you have like unlimited access for about a hundred bucks. So yeah. So that, that, these aren't the Y's, right? This is different. Not the Y. It's the municipal pool. They have like a green, like maple leaf is the logo. It's the mm-hmm. parks department. Yeah. Oh, and, and how many pools are there? There are dozens of them. And the one that we swim at or swam at is in Williamsburg, a metropolitan pool. It was built in 1922. It's a beautiful, the skylight. and But, uh, but you know, they're all closed. I was, uh, yeah, I was doing the, uh, I actually have an exercise by coming to my place. Oh, wow. So I'm, because I was doing the, I was at the gym for a while hmm. doing the elliptical, but then like I, one time someone didn't have a mask on 
This was like six months ago. And I worked up the courage to go up to like, you know, an employee and tell on them. You know, I can't talk to anyone individually, but like, <laughs> but like, like the courage, the courage story ended with you telling the yeah that that's that's as much courage as I can get, just the courage to tell. But yeah, I I uh, I like the elliptical because it's you know it's not like you know it's it's great. You don't have to exercise because it's not real. Ex- you don't have to like stretch because it's not real exercise, and you feel like you know you feel like you're doing something, but you're probably not. But uh, now, why I, do you I, think we're not? Mm-hmm. Since the 80s, more and more people are joining gyms, more and more people are buying exercise equipment, and at the same time, we're getting fatter. Mm. Um, We're getting fatter and we're exercising more. Well, at Planet Fitness, I I can only speak for Planet Fitness, but at Planet Fitness, they were like the non-fat shaming gym but they really overcorrected. So they had like Tootsie Rolls. They would offer. <laughs> no, they would. They would I'm sorry, they would offer Tootsie Rolls in the counter to anyone who came in and they had like pizza days. And I'm like, you know, there, sh- there can be a middle ground between not being judgmental and trick or treating. You know right. what I mean? There can be some kind of middle ground. So I think Planet Fitness definitely, you know, I, I remember I would gain calories there immediately just by eating the Tootsie Rolls and the pizza day and then taking the elevator up. So maybe that, caused a lot of the weight gain. Maybe uh, it's Rick Overton. Hey, hey, Rick. Hey, I'm going to put you on the phone here. Sorry. I, I'm having trouble with the links today. Are you there? I'm right here listening. Okay. Uh, there you go. Sorry, but we're talking about gyms. Do you know Rick Overton? Comic genius Rick Overton. Comic genius Rick Overton is joining yes. us with Renan Hirschberg and Ethan Hershenfeld. Hey, hey, hey. What's up? Uh, so, you know, I'm looking at the, let me just make sure everybody's happy here, Rick. Uh, we're talking about exercise and maybe you can answer this question. Why are Americans exercising more, joining gyms, but getting fatter? Uh, might be the diet. Might be the diet. Would you like me to send you uh, the Zoom link again and try it? Should I try it again? Yeah, I want to try and get in. I don't know why I didn't get it. I didn't see it. It's O V E R. Wait a minute. Are yeah, we? On yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't. Uh, just give me I'm your sorry. mother's maiden name. And why don't I do this? I'll just hear it. Okay, yeah. hang on for one second. Let, let's take a quick break, and when we come back. We will be joined by Rick Overton. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. Renan, do you know that guy, He's Mehdi? He's just a lefty um, from <laughs> way back. Mehdi Barakian, he did the finest thing he's had on TV. Some no, is it a comedian? Like, yeah. comedian? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, he's a really funny one. Medi. Yeah, M E H D I. I'll send you his name. Okay, yeah, send me his name. But his Planet Fitness ads were good. Good beard, good shave, by the way. This it's is your first shave. Right you didn't shave last time, right? No, that's right. Yeah. Shave for sure. Shave for sure. part of a doctor. I'm part of a doctor. Yeah. There we go. We're back. I'm sending Rick the... Uh, it's amazing 
how smooth this works. Uh, I'm saying it is absolutely amazing. Because this show tonight will be about six, seven hours. And you would think that more of this, this would happen more often. Rick, you should get the invite, okay? Uh, look, I just sent the text again with my email. Okay, you should get it. Uh, okay. All right, Got sorry it. about this. Good, okay, thank you. Thank you. I don't know, I don't know why this doesn't happen more. Well, I, I, I'm amazed, because I do this thing at noon. I do a, a chat show with one person, and it's not easy. And then I, I was thinking about that today. Like, you do this several times a week with dozens of people, and then it seems to go off without a hitch. So it seems miraculous. I mean, that that will be probably the only hitch that that I have. I don't know yeah. why. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, yeah. That's impressive. And you've been on, like, what? How many? You've been on about 27 hours today? So just uh, one hitch about, in that time. About that, yeah. The one hitch is it's a good ratio. Yeah. First, this is interesting. Out of Seattle. Hmm. A I love it. A funeral home will turn bodies into compost. They've opened up a <laughs> they've opened up a funeral home. Instead of cremation, they'll they'll compost a body and then you become soil. Yeah. <laughs> I'd go for that. I tried composting some big bones. My girlfriend got these giant like cow bones for the dogs, and then when they were done chewing them and they were a little gross, I put them in the compost pile. And I was thinking they're going to be there for a century. And then the next day they were out. I guess some coyotes came and just removed them and had their way with them. So, Well, if you're if bones are in compost, I mean, are the bones – so they're, how does that work? Are they crushed or can you still see them? If you put your hand into flowers, will you be taking out someone's hand? Or like how uh, – how I mean, how do they – like how outside of cremation, how do they crush it up? I don't understand how that works. In the composting processes, you introduce some sort of bacteria or microorganism that actually eats whatever the thing is. That's the slow composting process, I believe. I could be wrong, which might all be good, why all my, good for the murder I'm planning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for well, my compost pile. You can just see every item for the last eight months. It's not working. It's just a pile of stuff. You telling me this is making you uh, part of the, part of the murder. <laughs> well, Renan, do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried, or do you want to be compost? Um, and what would I you like if you were compost? What would you like to have grown from your? I like composting. I like the idea of being self righteous even after death. So I like the idea. <laughs> So I, 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 that's definitely my style. <laughs> I had a different plan for after death instead of any of those options. My plan was to get steamrolled, like a giant <laughs> steamroller, and then flatten me out extremely thin and then cut into postcards and mail all <laughs> I love it. I just wanted to turn into po postcards. That's it. I love it. Like who framed Roger Rabbit where they steamroll. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Do you think about your funeral? Uh, who's, who's answering this? Do I'll let you go. You're older. You get no, it. I'm <laughs> asking you because we have a surprise for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think about my funeral. Um, I think a lot about like what to put on the tombstone. You know, the, you know, the greatest line on tombstone ever is, you know, the Irish comedian Spike Milligan great Irish comedian, uh, he put on his tombstone, I think this is the funniest, he put, I told you I was ill. 
<laughs> which is the <laughs> which is the greatest. And so I think about what kind of funny tombstone I can have, and it's it it, it bothers me because there's nothing that's ever going to be as good as that. How about it's your fault? It's your fault. That could be good. It's your fault. I like that. I had, but it's still I had, not as good as Spike Milligan's. How about Howie Greenberg? killed me it's howie greenberg's <laughs> fault that i'm dead <laughs> i like uh, i like the tombstone where it's just uh it just says i'm with stupid and an arrow to the next <laughs> one. i like that that's a good one that's a good one well you know mel i i, I follow all the tombstones because i find them you know mel leblanc you know what his says who's st- who who Mel, uh, Mel Blanc, the uh from the looney tunes oh Did mel blank yeah mel blank i can't i just you like drew a blank yeah, I drew a blank. Mel Blank. I've been that's calling him. That's all folks. Yeah. That, that's well, funny. that's good. And uh, that's a really good one. Yeah. Billy Wilder, the director. You know what his is? Cut. <laughs> I'm a writer, but nobody's perfect, which is nice. That's, for, <laughs> oh. you know, from uh, Some Like It High. Right. Um, there's also the famous, um, it's the Philadelphia one, you know. Uh, oh, WC. Yeah, WC Fields. Yeah. I'd oh, yeah. What is his? Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Used to say uh, he said, you know, "I'd rather be dead than Philadelphia." But his tombstone says, "I'd rather be in Philadelphia." Oh, that's right. great! I love that. That's really great. Yeah, I think about that. I think about last words. I think about playlists during my funeral. But I, I feel like that's what everyone thinks about. The last words you hear, like you know, Oscar Wilde's last words, right? Oh yeah, the uh, the wallpaper. He said, "Either this wallpaper goes, or I do," which I think was, was yeah. <laughs> I talk about this. Show. I talk about my show. Do you remember me talking about? Oh, that's it? why. That's why I know yeah. it because I saw your yeah. show. <laughs> I was going to slip in a joke, but you're here, and I just realized I'm getting caught. <laughs> go, go! I have a terrible, terrible memory. Go. Well, I was just saying when he said that, it must have been really annoying for the people around his deathbed because he said that, and they're all just like, you know, you don't have to be on all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a place at a time. You know what my uh, last words are going to be? Yeah. No. I don't know. Was, I was, it was bad taste. I was gonna go. It was gonna be bad taste. Hey, let me wrap it up. Ethan Hershenfeld, <laughs> your comedy CD is Thug Thug Jew. Thug Thug Jew, and um, yeah, please listen to it and laugh. And plug. What else can we plug? Oh, um, oh, well, you can you can look out for. Uh, I play a guy in the movie uh, Red Notice. It's a Netflix movie. It's coming out this year with some big oh, nice. movie stars and me. Red Notice. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And Renan, what is your latest comedy CD? It's called Downhill Ever Since, and I'm also doing a viol- viol- Valentine's Day show for free on Zoom. It's doing 45 minutes of jokes. So Is uh, this Friday night? This is Sunday night. Sunday, Sunday night. Valentine's well. Yeah, Sunday night at 8 p.m. I'm going to kill myself afterwards. You can join me if you want. It's going to be fun. How do people? Uh, how do people come to this? So it's uh, free. The link is in my Instagram bio. So just go to my Instagram at Ronan Comedy, R-A-A-N-A-N Comedy. Fantastic. Um, and and your pe- last words, sorry, your last words, I think, are going to be, uh, I'll be back in 30 mi- minutes with my next guest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Always great. Let's do this all the time. I love it. That was great. Thank you, Dave. See Emmy award-winning writer. Actor, comedian, Mr. Rick Overton joins us. Do you know Renan? Hey, Renan. Never met, but yeah, big fan. Good to see yeah, you. Yeah, and-, and you know Ethan? Hey. Hi, Ethan. Hey, Rick. Honored. Hey, likewise. 
Rick Overton joins us in Los Angeles. Lot to talk about. You are a lefty from way back. I know. Someone just put down a thing about the Overton window. Hey, you know, I want my window back. <laughs> you get, man, that's like a name thing now. It's, uh, do I have to walk away from the name now? Can, I, can we talk about it or am I, are we allowed yeah. to talk about it? That's a joke. Uh, you know, the Overton, well, I got to have a new doorway. I have to have an Overton <laughs> doorway garage, you know, rolling thing. But uh, let's talk about Los Angeles. Yeah. Are the numbers going down? Is COVID still a thing there? Or, they, um, or is it mudslide season? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't checked the most recent numbers, but uh, I'm seeing more people going out and about now. They reopened California. But they shouldn't have. I will see what happens next. It's a great big improv. Yes, and. Right. Well, I mean. We'll see what happens next. It's crazy. You know, we'll see. Well, do you have an opinion on that? About opening it or not? Yeah. Uh, it would be nice to have compensation. It's like, I think I'm, I'm comfortable. I don't have as much of an opinion because I'm covered a little bit. So I don't get to talk for the ones that still need to get that job done no matter what. Go on. Uh, go on. Go on. Go on. And Fin finish what you were their saying. Opinion, their opinion means more. The people are struggling. You know, they're they're the ones that have to figure this piece out because we obviously have this really hypocritical line between essential worker care, you know, and everybody else. It's like the ones with the most to lose are the most concerned about everybody following the rules. The ones, no, I've got everything. I finally got the house. I finally got the this. I finally got the that. I finally have this much money stacked up. And then this thing hits us. Now, can you, are you kidding me? And then uh, I'm, I'm seeing that people are uh, just asking for pretty basic things during it and they're not getting them. They're not getting the basic $2,000 check. We have it where it's being explained, like like talking to children, why 1,400 is 2,000, <laughs> you know, right. like a horror story. It really is like the real life nightmare horror story for so many people and I'm not one of them, but that's not how empathy works. Empathy is I'm, I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about them now. That's what I'm basing this on, is concern for others who are going to have a very rough time. And look, it, all, it could all pull out from me, too. Nobody's safe on this round. And um, I'd say the comfortable people are fighting for that bubble, for that bubble of comfort right now. Sort of like, because that is an addiction. You know, comfort is a, is a very, very, very fiercely like a fish hook once it gets in. You don't want to give up a comfort once you got it. And people who have lived in that comfort for so long are seeing anything, even progressivism, as a threat to that. They're flipping out about it right now. And I hope it's just a phase and it settles down because they, they don't realize they're in the same boat with everybody else. They just think they're better than that. They're going to see, you know. I wish they were. I wish they would come around now, though. It would be easier to not have to fight them as well, you know? Right. It's ridiculous. It's the propaganda 
the divide and conquer, the 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 brainwashing, the the thought that I'd rather see my neighbor suffer than do better than I. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I don't know what But it's property. not but that is a like that is a I'm gonna fess up. I mean having spent so much time as a comedian and a comedy writer and being jealous of other people's success and really working at not being jealous of somebody's success. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think anybody subscribes to the Hollywood Reporter to find out what work is available. You, you, you find out who's failing, what, you know, what shows are being canceled, what, what did poorly at the box office. Maybe you're, you're saying the same reason why people go to car races. And I don't, you know, maybe I'm extra sensitive because of the business we're in where people want you to fail, you know. Uh, but it's true, writ large, somehow we've been trained to root for America, but not each other. Right. Root for an idea, but not for your neighbor, which was the point. I mean, even Churchill had figured out, you know, when they were saying, should we cut money for the arts during the Battle of Britain? And he goes, Churchill said, then what would be the point of all this? And they went to the theater. Yeah. Yeah. They still they still kept a, uh, a, a, a recognition of the human factor, which is disappearing now. That factor is not here anymore. Right. People are very, are just being turned into cattle numbers, you know. Right. By the way, my father fought in the Pacific Theater. That's what they used yeah. to call it, the Pacific Theater. It sounded... You know, the Pacific Theater, and this uh, backstage was pretty weird there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Off-Broadway. It was, was pretty crowded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always felt that was like a slam of the... Na my dad was in the Navy, and calling it the Pacific Theater always felt a little fey to me. Like, oh, you were in the Navy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're, did, did we all like growing up? I can remember like my dad came back from World War II, and the kids I grew up with had fathers who thought, you know, take your slice of the pie. This is America's for you, and you, you know, you're owed something. No, no, dad, you're owed something. <laughs> you went off and fought. Uh, I think uh, maybe our, the baby boomers uh, were a little too competitive, perhaps, and, and raised even more competitive kids. Do you think? Now, I, it makes you wonder how many of them were born with cocaine in their blood. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, the blow babies, where do right. they wind up? Right. Uh, I. Uh, so, what are you have, saying? Are you? I, I wonder about a generation that came out from being hippies to the seventies more, and I think some of it, the transition was focusing on everybody and love and peace until there was a sort of self-help dynamic 
coming in in the 70s that gave it a, a new bent of looking inward at you. You can be uh, you can be an asshole and that's OK. And here's your diploma, mm-hmm. asshole. Go right. out and be, propagate more assholes in the world, asshole. <laughs> right. You graduated. You paid, You spent a lot of money to not pee. You talk about Est, Werner Wehrhardt, and you're frozen. In my in, in my room, you're frozen. Is Rick frozen? In is he frozen? I'm seeing him as frozen. He's yes, you're frozen. Okay, Rick, you're you're frozen. Uh, okay, let me plow through the news, waiting for him to come back. Uh, yeah, he's not coming back. We lost him. No. Okay. I'll finish up the news so we get to it. The former head of Overstock was going into meetings at the White House when Trump was president the last month. And he claims that during the strategy sessions with the president, Rudy Giuliani was shit-faced almost every night. No surprise there. My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell went on Steve Bannon's podcast and says wearing a, a, a he, he called COVID, I thought he was talking about the mask. This is what he calls the COVID-19 vaccine, the mark of the beast. I thought he was talking about the mask. Uh, he's going to sue Dominion and Smartmatic. Uh, this pisses me off. The Republicans in the House of Representatives say that Nancy Pelosi should be fined $5,000 because she went through the metal. She didn't go through her metal detector. There's photographs of her entering the House chamber without going through security. And they're saying she should be fined $5,000. Well, in her defense, she was on her way to get uh, her hair done. Didn't she also get busted going to a hair salon in San Francisco during lockdown. The laws don't apply to Nancy Pelosi. They apply to everybody else. And Hunter Biden was photographed going to a Super Bowl watch party in Los Angeles. The Secret Service had to accompany him. There's a picture of Hunter Biden and his wife and his baby going to Super Bowl party, even though Anthony Fauci told everybody to stay home during the Super Bowl. This is one of my favorite stories. Our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, used to work for McKinsey, and they were busted and forced to pay $600 million in fines for helping opiate manufacturers push prescriptions to doctors and the settlement, the four hundred, the six hundred million dollars that they're paying in a settlement goes to rehab, right? It's it's been it's gonna be spent on rehabilitation for opiates. That's the way it's supposed to be spent. But it turns out McKinsey owns stock, they're a hedge fund, and they own stock in companies that do rehab. So they're getting their money back. They create the problem and then they profit off the solution 
Alabama Senator Richard Shelby announced that he won't run for re-election. And this is uh, no surprise. 27-year-old Ruben Verastigui, he was a GOP aide. He worked for the Trump administration. He's 27 years old from Texas. He worked for the nonprofit Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions when he was down in Texas. He has been arrested by the FBI for distributing child pornography. No surprise there. Meanwhile, the one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, <clears throat> uh, well, he's been accused of uh, coming after about 21 underage men. And his name is John Weaver, Lincoln Project. He's quit his job. And Jennifer Horn also works at the... Is Rick back? Is that Jim Earl? Yeah, that's me, Dave. You want to come back and help me do the news? Sure. You like the Lincoln Project, don't you? You have to unmute yourself. Steve Schmidt uh, is a great man. He gave us this country, Sarah Palin, and the uh, racist... John McCain mm -hmm. as presidential and vice presidential candidates, and we owe him a great debt for that. Right. Well, John Weaver had a step down. He helped found the, the Lincoln Project. Apparently, he's come on to 21 underage men. And Jennifer Horn, uh, who also worked at the Lincoln Project, has quit. Uh, she claims that uh, she was offended by John Weaver's behavior, but now it turns out that she was making exorbitant salary demands. She wanted a, a bump up of like $40,000 per month and a $250,000 signing bonus to a job she already had. And when they wouldn't give it to her, she claims, well, I'm offended by Weaver's behavior, so I quit. Why, why does Nera Tandon come, come to mind? There's Rick Overton. You're back. Are you there? Then I'll sign off again. Okay. But Rick has to unmute. Rick Overton, by the way, Jim, will be at Diabetic Fury this Saturday night, February 13th, with You're Robert right Smigel. That's right. right, I will. <laughs> <laughs> it's Morgan Freeman. As well. So are you seeing anything that you like about the Biden administration? Is there anything hopeful? Or are you getting to be like me where you're just beyond the politics and you got to look at who's paying them? Oh, no. I, I'm filled with hope again, David. <laughs> Finally, everything was about getting a certain color out of the White House. <laughs> the color orange. I know there was some individual attached to it. I'm not, I don't, I'm fuzzy on the details, but I know there was something about, we have to get the color orange out of the White House. <laughs> and so now I can get back to the other important things I was thinking and doing. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I want to select cheese. <laughs> I want to get back to cheese selecting. 
And you know what? It wasn't so much about the politics. It's just everyone just stop the noise. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I right, everybody? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Cork. Glug, glug. <laughs> From cave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm noticing what you're noticing. What are you I'm noticing? Not. A lot of militarism, a lot of, you know... A lot of pushing for symbolic things that seem, you know, it's, it's some of them have, have a good uh, uh, ultimate outcome. Certainly psychologically, they do not in any way replace uh, the tasks that they should be taking care of priority one first, and they're not. Why do you think people, we, like I, we had at office hours, Eddie Pepitone popped in and some some comedians and comedy writers. And one of our friends got very defensive of Biden. And I was making fun of Biden. And he he was turning beet red. Like, he's a lot worse than Trump, and you're undermining him. And why are people so protective of of Biden? Why, why, if you're a Democrat, are you so threatened if somebody says Biden is... I think it just has to do with what the TV told them to do, and they're just copying what the TV says to do. Because a lot of modern pundits are more about teaching you how to emotionally respond to all of this. (laughs) More than really focusing on looking into the details or double-checking the sources or anything like that. I made you feel good. Because you and I agree. And, and we won this one. And I are going to start aiming the rage exactly where I need you to put it. While I am leading you like the Pied Piper in this direction instead. Because it feels good. Doesn't it? Yeah, come on, brothers and sisters. Let's all aim this emotion that's been building for a lot of legitimate reasons. For a long time, and let's just no, just follow me. We're gonna take it. <laughs> that is so fucking brilliant. That is exactly what they do. They're they're uh, their emotional response coaches. Coaches, they teach you how to talk to. Oh, please say it. Talk it to the hand, and you know when to cut data off. Uh, when to say, ah, oh, I can't listen anymore. What did you just admit to? You you ran out of RAM space? It doesn't mean, you know, uh, it doesn't mean I I don't look into details just because you ran out of space to hold it. That's not what I would, I would rather be looking into it and knowing either way. It, it's literally odd. Biden good, Trump bad. That's what... It, CNN and I, MSNBC has been reduced. Hardcore, re, re, I try to remind my hardcore Republican friends, well, don't you know who Trump is? He's Hillary's product. She was Mary Shelley. She built him. You're chasing a Hillary product. How does that feel? She wanted him to run because he'd be easy to beat. The Pied Piper strategy. Oopsie. See, she shouldn't have bought it from Acme. <laughs> so what do we do we just not I, I wish I had the courage not 
to vote for Biden and, and to leave the Democratic Party. But did you have the courage? Do you mind if I ask you, do you have the courage to withhold your vote from these? Oh, no. Bring them on. Let's have let everybody see. So so you you what do you mean? Let you, it happen. Oh, no. Let it happen. What do you let mean? It happen. What do you mean? Let everybody see. There's no way to explain it to some people. They have to see. That Biden is. Yeah, that's right. Bring it on. Okay. Let it play out now. There was no stopping it anyway, so let's let it play out. Sure. Okay, fine. Right. And what do we. You know, uh, uh, the machinery doesn't care what your vote is, you know. It's, that's not what gets registered ultimately when it's, you know, electoral co- college decisions and stuff like that. We're, we're, we're some vague participant. But we have as much to do with the election as some of the people filling out note cards about screening sitcom pilots. <laughs> might consider (laughs) we're a focus group the american people are a focus group is what you're saying right and they might decide to move in that direction or not (laughs) right 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 so so, the the electoral the electorate is a, a focus group that they may or may not pay attention to that's right what was your reaction to uh the people storming the capitol and cut sound was no good. Everybody back to work. <laughs> Sorry, airplane. Sorry. <laughs> back to one. Reset. Remember where your cigarette and your drink was. <laughs> Remember, these all have to match at the end. <laughs> what was it? Can you explain it? Was it? What 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 were we watching? It was Reichstag fire in the hands of the Keystone cops. The reason to then lock everything down with the most it's supposed to be the most heavily defended place on earth. Going, uh oh, these guys are here. <laughs> some guys. Uh, yeah, Commander, there's some guys here. We were never we were never trained to confront some guys and uh, some women. They didn't say anything about some women, man. I, I think we should. I think we're just not coming in. We're going to leave three guys there today. And cut. And scene. And sleep. <laughs> By the way, you're upsetting me because whenever Jim Earl is this happy, I'm miserable. You're making Jim look at Jim Earl. <laughs> look how look how happy you've made Jim Earl. Well, he speaks the truth, and he does it, <laughs> and he does it with humor. Uh huh. So this is whenever you go too far left, a lot of people just start saying you're a Trump supporter. Now that's like. That, the, the the problem with that cudgel is it's it's a, a rubber sword of Damocles now because he's gone. But we're and bringing so, him back. They will never vote. The Democrats will never, ever vote 
They need him. They need him so desperately to be just exactly cozy where he is. They need need him for later. Do Scarface. They don't have the reference. Do Scarface. You need me. You you need the bad guy. You need the bad guy. That's right. Oh, I, I can't do a Smigel. Smigel has truly a, a, a fine Trump. Well, you, no, no. I'm, uh, but uh, by the way, I cannot wait for Saturday night to see. Yeah, you me and, neither. <laughs> you and Morgan Freeman, and yeah. I don't know what. What are we doing Saturday night, Jim? Um, several things. I still haven't uh, fleshed it out completely, but I think uh, Joseph Cotton is going to. I'm going to stick Joseph Cotton in He's there. Put Cotton in there. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I'm angry at the world, and uh, and, and I think people need to look up who Joseph Cotton is, and uh, but we're yeah we're gonna have Morgan Freeman and uh, and uh, Melania and and Trump sing a, a duet of My Funny Valentine, and uh, hopefully Morgan will uh, do a version of uh, My Funny Valentine too, and uh, I, I have a very serious Valentine. <laughs> 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 I love you so much. Crawl <laughs> through fifteen yards of shit smelling. Th- okay, so <laughs> that no <Save> man. <laughs> what are we doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? Hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I miss. Ah, I miss my. I guess I miss my old friend. <laughs> All right, We're, we have to. We have three more minutes before we wrap it up. Uh the impeachment starts tomorrow. Are you going to watch it? Is anybody? Does anybody care? Unless Trump testifies, we're not interested in this, are we? Well, I'm very excited to see who will play him in the reenactment of the court <laughs> uh, of, of the trial in the HBO movie. Who are you casting in your head? Pacino. Pacino, yes. Pacino, that's where I was going to go. <laughs> the last time America's got... out of order! <laughs> last time I got excited about impeachment was 1974. And it was, it was a big letdown. Yeah, impeachment now is sort of like they took your star off Hollywood Boulevard. It doesn't mean much more than that. <laughs> but they're going to remove him from office, maybe. <laughs> Shouldn't we he's remove gonna, him from office? He's going to have to rent a new office. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time someone really famous felt anything of substance and of consequence from any actions beyond a certain size? I mean, politically, well, not just Bill Cosby. I'm talking about political figures, not just celebrities. I'm trying to think. Ellen, I think she paid a price. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Having to dance with George Bush is, you know, at some price. What's going to happen to Hollywood? Is it coming back? Will it ever come back? Are things going to be the same? This is my last question. When the pandemic first started, a lot of people said, it'll, you know, we'll get back to normal. We'll get back to normal. Is normal... Are we ever going to get back to normal? In other words, they, they can get rid of the, the the virus and the economy can start again. But do you see Hollywood show business coming back to what pre-pandemic 
It's going to be different, isn't it? I think it's going to be somewhat different. And I think everything's going to be notched back into an austerity position with the excuse that the sufferings instead of the savings get passed down to us no matter what in the middle class while the wealthy will go into a sort of earlier Hollywood level of really disparate excess walled in excess from its earlier golden age. Uh, You probably get brief and that doesn't mean it'll last like that because that was back in an era when not everyone had the cameras, but everybody has the cameras now. So it could be, turned around that they make an attempt to be like that world, but small pockets of artists build small new movie companies and little productions of things that are popular, partly because they're making really interesting stuff, but also because they're the little guy and people want to fight for the underdog. Right. But I can see both of those things, especially if things start to become emotionally polarized. And, you know, just because power is doing all these things doesn't mean everything they're doing is working for them or that they are winning. They have a huge loss ratio, too. And I would say that the Robin Hood is a is a proof, living proof that they, that they didn't see that coming. And they took a giant hit. So there are things that they are not perfect at shoring up. Right. To be continued. Rick Overton, right. what would you like to plug? You've got so much. Even during a pandemic, what do you have to plug? Diabetic oh, Fury I'm on Saturday night. Very excited about this. I'm going to start learning how to bake. <laughs> no, <I'm>, uh, <laughs> I, uh, we're getting the paperwork finalized on a comedy special that's going to be an all improvised one hour set list comedy special right didn't you didn't you record one already i did already recorded we're just getting a piece together now and it'll be out in a little while i can't wait to see it and i'll see you saturday wait, night wait, wait. yeah uh, no, this saturday i'll be we'll be riffing in there too man great thank you this, Thanks, buddy. Thank you. I love you, Rick Overton. This Saturday, you see this little video we made there, Jim Earl? Oh, that's that's very clever and tasteful. Martha Previtt takes on diabetes, as well as Robert Smigel, Rick Overton. You misspelled Smigel. Did I? No, I'm oh. kidding. Previtt versus Overton, Smigel and diabetes, this Saturday night, February 13th. Her Nancy Pelosi is unbelievable. Plus, FBI informant Jim Earl will also be there. There you are. (laughs) Diabetic Fury, February 13th. What the the hell was that? (laughs) Picture of you. It's not dignified. By the way, Martha's downstairs making Merkins, sewing Merkins. They're flying off the shelves like hotcakes. I didn't think anybody was going to uh, pick that tier, but one of the tier levels for Diabetic Fury Saturday night. Is it 50 bucks? You get a Moose Merkin mask? Moose Merkin, Maine Moose Merkin, manufactured in Maine by Mainers. Okay, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view, and you can see all the different tiers. Right, Dan? Okay. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, the second largest city, the second largest city in Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. She is, besides being a physicist, you are a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. Hello, Professor. Hi there, David. Now, you did a really interesting presentation Saturday at office hours. 
about physics mm -hmm. and leveraging power, how people can leverage power, even though they might not think they're strong. I didn't understand all of it, but because I really don't know physics. I thought I did. Well, I, you know, I have to learn how to teach physics in the right way. To idiots. No, to people to like people me. Who don't do, who haven't um, had the math background or, you know, for whom it is new. And that's, that's interesting because then I have to think about it more in a more fundamental way and not a perfunctory way. You know? Well, if you, well, if you dumb it down, because it's really interesting, dumb it down. I know you want to talk about other things, but no, no, I want to talk about this. Leveraging it's not dumbing down. It's not dumbing down. It's being more articulate. So you were explaining that what I, what I found really interesting, the, the, the message was how do you, how do the 99% leverage their power and take mm -hmm. control. Or as you pointed out, there was a tight screw, a, a nut that had to be mm -hmm. loosened. And you had this wrench and a, big, you, a yeah. big wrench and you explained torque and that the bigger the wrench, the, the less longer the, the, the wrench, the less you have to push down yes. on it because in order to move the, the nut. But you have to use the entire wrench. You can't right. go in the, you can't put your hands in the middle of the, the wrench. You have to go all the way at the end, correct? That's right. In other words, you know, a, a nut stuck with, uh, a nut stuck with the uh, majority of nine votes for anything that needs to get done that Nancy Pelosi has needs a wrench that's 10 votes long to overcome the resistance of that nut. Right. You grab it in the middle, that's only five votes, so you can still win. You got to, you've, you've got to use your entire leverage. That's what voting as a block means. But they have to have discipline. They have to have strategy. They would have had to think and thought it out and discussed among themselves what was it we're going to focus on? Well, there are one or two most important things. Maybe, off the top of my head, Medicare for all. Right. And Green New Deal. Um, maybe just, uh, maybe right up front, uh, $2,000 recurring checks until not only the end of COVID, but we get the economy back. And 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 watching the watching no, that I'm looking at the chat. Okay, watching this thing unfold, I'm beginning to wonder. Maybe it's the wrong wrench. Maybe the Democratic Party doesn't. Uh... Well, the problem is, it's, you know, and I was hopeful. And, you know, I'm not all gloom and doom. I mean, like a. When, when Alan, basically right after the election, when Alan Minsky said that Nancy Pelosi was going to have a very narrow lead, her knee, you know, they lost quite a bit of seats, the Democrats did, in the, in the House. And now that I knew that the squad was doubled, potentially doubled, I said, well, 
they have the block. They they have accomplished in two election cycles, which I what I've been arguing with my Green Party friends since graduate school to do to focus some of that energy every four years you put into a, what I would consider sort of a vanity one into a midterm. You know, have a ten year strategy to get a few people in the House, and you could vote as a block. Well, the Justice Dems and our Revolution Dems did that in two. In principle, they did that in two election cycles. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, I, I thought that that was hopeful. So do but, you think the, the purpose... I don't think they have those, those conversations. So let, let me play, uh, maybe I believe this, maybe I don't. Yeah. It seems to me that we're hearing a lot of talk coming out of the Democratic Party that they're going to go big and that Biden is saying you the, the problem isn't doing too much. The problem is doing too little. We got to we got to give it all we can. And at the same time, we see this impeachment going on. And while we're paying attention to the impeachment, we're supposed to look at the left hand, but not see what the right hand is doing. We're hearing a lot of talk. Uh, we're hearing the $15 minimum wage has been tacked into the stimulus bill. And then all of a sudden Biden says, well, maybe the $15 minimum wage will do that separately. Suddenly the $15 minimum wage is being stripped from the stimulus bill. But Richie Neal, the head of uh, House Ways and Means says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give $3,000 a year to every child as an earned income tax credit. And every month, if you have a kid, you're going to get something like $300 a month sent to you. Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen. Well, there's no, there's no leadership. I mean, I saw that, um, I guess the, the, um, so they're keep, they're, they're throwing a lot of confusion. Right. And making, making bold promises, but we're not, seeing this even, happen yet are we you're not even doing that i mean i saw that um that interview with nora nora Mc o'donnell did with with biden it was you know, i guess friday or something and they played parts of it at the super bowl but you know they're sitting she's asking biden about these things and biden seems like a confused guy trying to remember his lines and he's saying he wants minimum wage but they can't do it yeah, yeah, you can't. I mean, he was he was so garbled. And then I saw that somebody pointed out, and I remember thinking it when I heard it, but somebody on, on the Twitters pointed out, and I think Jim Earl was one of them, that uh, they're sitting in a room 15 feet apart, you know, with high ceilings, socially distanced, and Biden is going on about how schools need to reopen now. As they're sitting, <laughs> they're 15 feet apart, somewhere in the uh, White House, I imagine. But don't, don't have a Super Bowl party. Stay home. Yeah. Well, but what I'm saying is just the image of these people 15 feet apart right. in the interview. And one of them is saying that, oh, we can go back to school now. You know, it. There, look, you know, it's really, it's, it's a sinkhole of our energy, the Democratic Party. It's a bottomless pit where all of our energy just gets sucked, you know, just like a black hole. And I... You know, I can see like maybe certain strategies here and there, but there there is no movement uh, toward anything. And uh, 
I think that we're going to see just how badly Biden swamp is going to be populated tomorrow because there's something else going on other than the Donald Trump show tomorrow. Uh, Neera Tandon. OMB. Yes. OMG. <laughs> I mean, the OMB came, wasn't the OMB came out today and said that, oh, $15 minimum, oh, it's going to cost all these jobs and add five $500 billion to the federal budget or the deficit. Or something. No, I'm like, first of all, who the hell is coming out with these numbers? You know, Trump's OMB. Uh, yeah, we're replacing Trumpy's OMB head with a woman who has for years advocated for cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. I mean, she was well. In her defense, she did. She the yeah. Center for American Progress was against the grand bargain that that they did criticize Obama for. Uh, the center, the Think Pro, there were columnists in Think Progress, which was kind of the blog spot of Center for American Progress. There were a lot of genuine lefty progressive writers there, and they pretty much all got uh, dumped during her tenure. And that's a whole other story. I mean, she was, uh, uh, Center for American Progress was taking money from foreign governments, you know, for. Center for American Progress to write position papers favorable to the foreign governments, which of course included Israel, but included a lot of um, what we would consider totalitarian states in the Middle East. And so the Congressional Budget Office, it it was the Congressional Budget Office, came out with a report that a $15 minimum wage would reduce poverty, but cost jobs. Which is not true. It's not true, and that would make no sense. It would not, you know, if it would cost jobs and reduce poverty, that's, and it's not. And it's also, that study has all kinds of flaws in it, and people have, I mean, they were just dumped, and you didn't see the methodology, and people are, people like, uh, who was uh, Walter Gunnels, who was uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' longtime um economic advisor needs and we really need to look and see what their methodology is they're just dumping this on us and of course it's been shown not to be true by cities and states that have adopted minimum higher minimum wage laws no a 15 dollar minimum wage like five years from now is going to be like a nine dollar minimum wage back in 19 or 2015 I mean, it's just the fifteen. They say it would add fifty. They said it would add fifty-four billion dollars to our budget deficit. Yeah, based on what? Based on what? How much money are you saving by not having to give people food stamps? Yes, right. Exactly. We wouldn't have to be, you know, subsidizing welfare queens like Walmart Mm -hmm. and Amazon. And all these other places that, you know, just don't give their their employees a living wage. So, you know. They said changes in employment, raising the minimum wage, would increase spending for some programs, such as unemployment compensation, but it would reduce spending for others, such as nutrition programs. That's right. You would be able to cut food stamps if the working poor were just working instead of poor. And I believe who cares about a $65 billion tack onto our budget deficit 
Why don't we just send four billions off to Wall Street, four trillion off to Wall Street last April? You know, nobody blinked. Except like, that Dylan Radigan did go into a fine rant about it. I'm sorry, who? Dylan Radigan went on a fine rant about that. But, you know, he's... He was, I don't know if you know, remember Dylan Radigan? He was from like the, uh, CNB, MSNBC. He was the CNBC. one guy on CNBC that would speak the truth once in a while and went on a couple epic rants there. And then he went on MSNBC and he was just too much for MSNBC. And, you know. But Frank uh, Santoro, not Frank uh, Santelli. Yes, Santelli, the guy that was on CNBC that says, Do you want to bail your neighbors out? You know, because they bought too much house because they can't afford their mortgage. And that he was- created the Tea Party and he's still there. And there have been some stories over the years that he was being funded by the same people who funded the Tea Party. But he's still at CNBC. So you're not optimistic about Biden. There's nothing. Well, you know, there's nothing happening. And he had promised, I mean, the only promises he ever keeps are to his donors. And, you know, he, he promised them nothing would change. And to quote the great Nina Turner, if nothing changes for them, nothing changes for you. Right. And so. But everything anyway. has changed and things are getting a lot worse. Evictions start up again next month. Yeah, although they're well, they're, they're take- already going on. Yes. There's supposed to be a federal ban, uh, uh, moratorium, but that doesn't get enforced. Right. It depends on which state you're in. Right. Right. So it's it's so there is like big structural effects, and you know the the Democrats would love to keep Trump. You know, just here, look at this distraction mm-hmm. over here, and watch us still make deals with our donors and not do anything about the stuff we promised we'd help you with. Um, but anyway, it's going to be interesting um, to see Neera. Neera Tandon goes in front of the government affairs office tomorrow. Does she and, go before Bernie's banking yeah, committee? And then on Wednesday, she goes in front of the budget. She goes in front of two committees, government affairs and the budget committee. And man, she was just nasty, you know, like nasty, uh, uh, at Bernie, I mean, just ad hominem attacks, very, very close to anti-Semitic. I mean, she was just uh, not a polite girl when it came to Bernie Sanders. So it's going to be interesting. I don't think that Bernie's going to bring up any of the baggage that she has through the uh, Center for American Progress, taking basically laundering all that foreign money through that group getting rid of all their liberal bloggers, but uh, he probably will take her to task for a position paper she wrote in 2010 on cutting social security on the C- on really pushing CPI as a way to get social security costs under control. And that was, is that, at chained? The time that, is that a chained? Yeah. Chained CPI. That was, you know, basically a way of calculating inflation, which many people who studied these things said did had very little to do with the actual costs that seniors actually face, and uh, and not only seniors. So, and she was doing that at the time. I mean, when inflation is a figment of our imagination. They they really cannot measure inflation. I was reading. I don't know where I read this, but they one economist said. The only way to measure inflation is to ask yourself, how does it feel? 
Does it does it feel like things are more expensive than they actually are? They don't really have accurate yardsticks. We're being told right now that inflation is at record lows unless you need health care or you yeah, have to go to college. Education. Yeah, you want to go to college or stay alive, then inflation is through the roof. Yeah. But if you want, you know, if you want the electronic toys, man, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and Larry Summers wrote this op-ed piece, I think, over the weekend saying, you know, we can't go one point nine trillion will overheat the economy and cause rampant inflation. This is, yeah, you know, I think the only economist that I've heard speak since recently about that is Stephanie Kelton. And she is saying that really, you know, the things that the real deficits, she says, are the things that we haven't done and the infrastructure that we haven't built as a country. But the real uh, limits of inflation is just your ability to produce. And we have like millions and millions of unemployed and underemployed and people who have just taken themselves out of the workplace, educated people who could be put to work immediately. Um, and, and so, you know, we have a tremendous latent capacity to produce. We just don't have the policies or the leadership right. to put that in place right now. Right. So inflation, there's a lot of stuff there's a I mean, lot of there's 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 a lot of the argument is that this economy is not, could run much hotter because there's not only pent up demand for for services and products there's pent up productivity that if you put everybody to work they uh, they could do the job without needing more hours and more money that we can really run this economy twice as fast, but the the Democrats don't want to. No, they don't. Well, it's because they answer to the same donors that the Republicans do. And this time around, the Republicans decided, okay, team A just got a little out of line with Trump. You know, they would have accepted Trump winning, but what they could not accept when who they could not accept was Bernie Sanders. So, uh, you know, they, but they're fine with Biden. As a matter of fact, Biden gives the illusion that we really have a real vibrant democracy going on. And, and you know, as uh, Edward Herman and, and Noam Chomsky wrote that, yeah, there is a there's a very, very narrow range of debate that we're allowed to have. We're just and this is a manufacturing consent. But within that very ridiculously narrow range, you could have very lively conversations. And that's what these people on MSNBC and Fox and CNN are paid to do. They are they are paid to go on and have these, you know, kind of fake fights or lively conversation, but within very, very strict parameters. You get somebody like Dylan Radigan going off on MSNBC like he did like about 10 years ago, and the rest of the people around the table looking at each other going, holy crap, what do we do now? You're you not know? supposed to talk about poor people. You're, You're not, not supposed, supposed to talk about the truth about Wall Street, you know, which is what you were not supposed to do. You're not allowed to talk about unions. You're not allowed to talk about the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who, uh, were well, that's going to be interesting. I'd like to, I'd really like to follow that. The headline will be if they vote to unionize, mm -hmm. the headline will be prices at Amazon are about to go up folks as workers in Bessemer decide to unionize. That's what they did with the UAW strike two yep. years ago. 
That's what NBC, nobody talked about the plight of the auto workers. Your cars are about to get more expensive as UAW makes demands. Of course, you know, top heavy with all these with all these executive and administrators and all this kind of stuff. Look, we we had a little microcosm here. I was uh, I caused a little bit of consternation with the, when the two Bernie Bros on the Park District three years ago basically got people to vote against asking for an exemption of the Park District to the minimum wage law, wage law, which was. Rauner, the old Republican billionaire, was still in power, but it looked like the Democrats were taking over. The Democratic governor was going to be in place in the next year, and they knew what that meant. So they wanted to get in with their with our, our executive director, wanted to get in with a little uh, uh, piece to the to this legislation to exempt the park district. And we said, absolutely not. And we sat down with the budget. And it turned out that when all was said wouldn't end done, it made less than a percent difference in our budget because uh, it, it, we just went through the budget last year with it getting uh, beginning to get in place. I don't think the whole $15 is, uh, has been implemented, but substantial wage uh, increase, and we just – operated the park district more efficiently. We, there were certain things that we were able to uh, get money from, from the state. We were able to like do, take over things from the school district and, and the city that weren't being done well. And uh, we just used the resources of the park district way more efficiently and paid people. And in fact, that's money, almost all of those, it was, Paid it was uh, temporary employees, you know, the kind that park districts hire in the late spring to early fall. Um, and they're people from the area, largely. So more people have money who live in the area and that circulates around. That was the other thing that I didn't see when I just I, I just glanced over this report this morning. Um, but from the OMB, but uh there's a multiplier effect. It's, it's the it's the congressional office. budget office, not the, the congressional budget office, yeah. Not the office of uh, that's the uh, that uh, that's the um, the executive branch. OMB right. is the executive branch. But there was one thing that they didn't they didn't mention was that um, you know there's a multiplier effect. You give money to the people at the bottom of the economic, they spend it, which means local businesses have money. Which means you know it's like a econ one hundred and one thing that there's a multi because there's a cascade. And the way I looked at it was there was a cascading motivations for people to do and produce. So yeah, money is kind of illusory. I, I see no way. Yeah, there. I, I I I'm not a betting. I don't bet. But there mm-hmm. is no way Biden will ever increase the minimum wage no, he won't. to fifteen dollars. I mean, it was so pathetic, you know, his in his uh, discussion with Nora O'Donnell. I mean, that is not a leader. That is a guy that's spouting the lines that he's, you know, they've drilled into him. And there is just nothing at that. It's got to be there. It's going to be Bernie Sanders from the how the Senate Budget Committee. And maybe uh, the minimum wage, if you adjust it for inflation, should be twenty five dollars, close to thirty dollars. It hasn't been raised in more than 10 years. Yeah. But there are people like Larry Summers, people in the Democratic Party who are who have are going to convince Joe Biden that if you raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, 
not only will we have rampant inflation, restaurants will go out of business. Small businesses will go out of business. And you will not be able to find laborers. There'll be a labor shortage because nobody will... Nobody will... uh, Want to work for you unless... Go ahead. We have now like an employment uh, participation rate, which is at 50-year lows. In other words, there's just this latency in the the people who have just taken themselves out. Who are no longer being counted. Yeah, are no longer being counted. That's the labor participation rate. And it's very low, which means there is potentially a lot of people willing to do a lot of things and but money doesn't circulate and uh, there is a boatload. I mean, millions need to be employed. I mean, need to be rigorously employed to implement the green new deal and to build an energy infrastructure. That alone is going to be a generally a generational thing. If we have any shred of hope on this planet. They could uh, AOC and Bernie are talking about forcing Joe Biden to declare a climate emergency. Yeah. Which, yes, uh, like a national emergency. And good on Bernie. I remember the, the thrill I felt when at one of those first debates, when it was just him and Hillary and maybe Martin O'Malley. But uh, when he was at, when they were asked, what is the single most threat to our national security? Bernie mentions climate change. And he changes the conversation right then and there. That was like an amazing moment. Well, you're not allowed to say that. But you're not allowed. Well, you know, um, look, you know, none of this stuff can get done and the current leadership be in place. And I'm not talking Democrats or Republicans. I'm talking Democrats and Republicans, the sort of leadership class from both parties that the donors support. It, it, what's going to crumble, what's going to be, you know, and, and I was, I think what a lot of people were telling me were Trump supporters from the roles, the few Trump supporters from the roles of Democratic primary voters, both in 2016 and 2017 is that they hate, 2020 is that they hate the system. They don't want to smash the country apart. They just think there's a corrupt pol- political system that they want to smash. And, uh, you know, that's still there. I mean, people aren't going to feel any better about things when when we get out from under COVID and like 25 to 30 percent of small businesses have just disappeared. When you're are you running unopposed for parks? I am running unopposed. Yeah, it was hard as well. You know, they went from like. Uh, requiring 25 signatures to uh, on your ballot petition to uh, to 200, <laughs> and that was a bit of a problem. We had problem trying to find people to run. I think there might be in one of the uh, one of the seats might have two people uh, running as write-ins. Hmm. But I think the uh, yeah, I mean there was COVID, but 200 signatures is a lot of signatures for people to get. You know, I'm used to it getting gotten. Well, you have about 200, what, 50,000 people live in Aurora, Illinois? 
Uh, 200,000 close to, and then there's, um, in the park district, it's over 250,000 people because we've got other smaller towns and cities, and, uh, but Aurora is a rather large city. Yeah. Okay. But it's, uh, Hey, will you come back? Do me a favor. Let me bring in irritable. I have some questions. I want to talk to irritable about and then come back in a couple of minutes and and join in the questioning. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Professor Marianne Cummings will be back. And when I come back, we will be joined by our friend, the brilliant irritable immunologist. We will be right back. It's time right now for the David Feldman show. He's talking politics a comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome back. Coming up, Professor Mike Steinel. That was Professor Mike Steinel. Let's go to the bowels of the pharmaceutical industry where the irritable immunologist is standing by February 23rd. No, February 20th. COVID Town Squares returns with Henry Huckamacki as well as the irritable immunologist. Please welcome our friend, the irritable immunologist. Hello, Irritable. Hey there, David. Hey, everybody in the, the audience living living our dream. Right. Now, you have a different uh, screen. What, what are we looking at? Oh, that's uh, just a, a very recent preprint out of some of the hottest hot shots in virology in the world, uh, showing that the uh, so-called UK strain, B117, is taking off dramatically in the United States. And... Uh, on the basis of this and a number of other uh, investigations, the CDC is now predicting that it will be the principal variant in the United States next month. 
by the end of next month, probably beforehand. Uh, now, very we, efficient at replicating. Now, suppose we just shut down air travel. Would that help? I, I probably only trivially at this point. All right. Uh, this this particular for this particular variant, uh, it's in f- more than thirty states confirmed at this point, uh, and has been in California, New York, and a couple other states for a while. All right. So Henry isn't here. I and I welcome this opportunity to talk to you one on one, and then we'll take some questions. And Professor Marianne is also here. One of the things we do with COVID town squares and when you and Henry are on the show together is we get deep into the weeds, I think to some degree. We we have to say that that's legal in a number of states, including (laughs) California. Yes, yes. But I think we should probably do a more simplistic rundown of where we're at. I think it's time to pull back and talk simply and answer. Okay, some very well. Okay. Virus bad, mask good, <laughs> stay at least 10 feet apart if you can. Okay. The the vaccines, let me see if I understand what's going on. Uh-huh. The vaccines work. Even the Sputnik V works, right? These vaccines. Yeah, they, they finally uh, put out phase three and unlike their combined phase one, two B, it looks like there's no questionable data uh, in there. Uh, And and it looks really good. Uh, It looks very much on par with uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And in principle, it's quite similar to the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca and, oh, the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccines insofar as it's basically doing exactly the same thing as those vaccines using a uh, shell of a virus to deliver the genetic information for the coronavirus spike protein. These vectors cannot replicate. All they can do is dump that genetic information inside of your cells and your cells get to work making a coronavirus spike protein out of it. So this is effectively the same thing as the mRNA vaccines, just delivered in a slightly different way. Uh, the, The bit that's a little bit different about Sputnik V is that it's using two different viral vector shells so that if your immune system recognizes it the first time, it's not going to recognize it the second time because it's a different shell. So they're using adeno, uh, human adenovirus 5 and hum, human adenovirus 26 in series. Those are just the shells, so they look different to your immune system. So one will not cause a response to the other. <clears throat> Whereas for Oxford and Johnson Johnson, if that's a two-vaccine um, uh, situation, which it probably will be, particularly for seniors and potentially for other people. I thought with, Johnson Johnson was a one-off. For seniors, it's probably going to be two. They're they're trying to get approval for a single shot for everybody else, which will work quite well. It looks like, uh, but yes, for older people, it's probably gonna they're going to want to either give senior citizens Pfizer or Moderna in the U.S. or. Uh, two shots of Johnson Johnson if J&J goes and tries to get approval for that, which I believe they probably will. Okay, so I apologize for asking some basic questions. However, some really smart people I know, or people who think they're smart, are saying some incredibly stupid things like, I'm worried about getting the shot. And did you hear about this person who got the shot and dropped dead? And 
So, mm. uh, on this show, I will not allow anybody to talk about COVID unless it's you or Henry. I, a lot of my comedian friends are come on the show and they'll say things. Well, I was told, no, we're not playing telephone here. So I want to go only speak to the experts here. I, I think in, in the main, all of the vaccines so far are not going to kill you. Uh, the booster shot can make you pretty miserable for a couple of days, which essentially means it's doing its job. But you can still take standard analgesics, antihistamines to sort of clear it through the symptoms. Uh, and after that, you're going to have some really spectacular uh, memory immunity against uh, the, the viral spike protein, which even with the new variants, if it's Pfizer or Moderna, uh, Novavax, and, and probably Johnson & Johnson, it will still have decent activity. In fact, very good activity against the current oh, variants of concern, but you, ha you have to get it first in order so for it to So we work. have a logistics problem. We have a, there's a problem in the- Production Afri and logistics, yeah. And distrust. We have an African-American community that doesn't trust the American healthcare system. They were injected. Sure, they, yeah. were, they were injected with syphilis, and they have every right to uh, be wary of. Well, that. I mean, in, into the current day, any given health outcome tends to be significantly worse with African Americans in the United States, and they tend to, on the main, get significantly inferior health care um, for both presumably economic reasons, but also definitely prejudicial reasons. Right. There was even... A and then, unfortunately, that carries over to the, the UK. There's a, a fairly in-depth analysis. Hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but looks pretty solid. That suggests you're, you're looking at a multiple in terms of death rate if you're a black person in the UK versus a white person. Uh, several times more likely to die if infected. You're more likely to get infected if you're African-American, and you're more likely to be mistreated in the hospital. There was a story about a doctor who died from COVID-19. And, and one of her last videos was talking about how she was belittled by the, the doctors in the hospital who, who sent her home and said she was over, overreacting. People need to get the vaccines. They're, they're perfectly Absolutely. safe. Absolutely. Right. They yeah. Need. I mean, one thing we can say about all of the vaccines, there may be a bit of a question, but I rather doubt it with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is kind of an outlier. All of them are absolutely going to reduce your likelihood of ending up in the ICU. And all of them are absolutely going to reduce your likelihood of dying. Right. Really, really, really. Let, let, let's, st let's stay with that for a second. AstraZeneca is that's the Oxford. Yes. And now in South Africa, they have stopped giving that because it's not effective against the the variant in South Africa. But as you were just saying, if you get the AstraZeneca vaccine, doesn't it reduce your chances of dying or being sent to the hospital? In other words, you may still get the variant, but it won't be as bad. That That is 
Almost certainly the case. Yes. That hasn't been definitively shown, but it would be shocking if that was not the case. Uh, The reason stated by South African uh, public health authority, to my knowledge, for why they've halted vaccination with the Oxford AstraZeneca candidate is because it's just not particularly effective enough at blocking mild to moderate disease, which means it's not doing a heck of a lot to stem transmission in their minds. And so they, they want to they have a good look at the data before they go ahead and just start throwing the vaccine around willy-nilly like what was done in the UK and has been proposed reasonably plausibly by a, a large number of, of uh, research scientists in the United States here. Um, so... You know, all right, let's turn to Israel. Somebody once said to me, Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. I always thought that was great. Jews are just like everybody else, just only more so. So, 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 what, you're, so what you're saying is that everybody else also despises and oppresses Palestinians? <laughs> just not as much. Right. Okay. So, uh, maybe. Uh, so when it comes to COVID, they mishandled COVID only more so. And they're also handing out the vaccines only more so. They're, mm-hmm. they're doing a pretty terrific job getting people vaccinated, but they've also dropped the ball on isolating people and uh, getting people tested. What, what are we looking at in Israel? Will we see a, a sharp drop because so many of them are getting vaccinated? It would be surprising if if we didn't see significant reductions in hospitalization and mortality within a month or two in in Israel, certainly. They they have a number of other things going on. They have an interesting, oh, it was originally proposed for a a different usage, but uh, I believe it's a gamma-irradiated early apoptotic cell therapy um, that uh, one of the startups there is touting and has been used clinically uh, albeit in a small number of people with no control group. So we don't, we don't really know if it is in fact effective, but yeah, they've got a relatively small country, lots of money, totally comprehensive healthcare system, uh, lots and lots of practitioners per person. That's a good recipe for getting, uh, getting your vaccines out the door, particularly if you ink contracts with one of the early uh, approved vaccines, which was the case with uh, Pfizer. Right. And they're not getting the vaccines in the West Bank or Gaza. But Israel proper is doing well with the vaccines. Let's turn to the United States. The Trump people said you got to think of COVID just like the flu. Well, it's not just like the flu, but when it comes to the shots, because of the variants, we're going to have to get a COVID shot each year. Is that a fair statement? The same way we have to get a flu shot, now we can expect our doctor, if we're lucky enough to have a doctor, telling us you need your annual COVID shot. It's a pretty virulent variant this year. And that, w- that would not be surprising. I wouldn't go so far as to predict specifically whether it would be annual or every few years. And um, they can bundle the variants into one vaccine, I read. Potentially, I, I think most of the manufacturers are suggesting that they'll develop boosters for people who've had the original shots that have alterations in specific regions that are 
known to enable escape from the antibody response in the human body. Uh, most probably notably for the oh, South African and uh, Japanese slash Brazilian strains, uh, the E484K substitution okay. um, has been demonstrated and, and was a number of months ago, actually, right. uh, and then repeatedly since. So, so yes, yes, they, uh, I mean, and again, mRNA vaccines are readily reprogrammable. They can change the sequence very, very readily and bam, pop out a new vaccine very, very quickly after that. Same, same is to a certain degree also true of the adenovectors. That's a little more complicated, but it, it's still the mechanism of changing the sequence that's getting packaged inside of the adenovectors is also sort of similarly not that hard to do. Uh, I, and I that would be the ast- the yeah AstraZeneca Johnson and Johnson, Johnson, Johnson Sputnik and- V. There's also a, a, I think it's CanSino, but there there is a, a Chinese uh, adeno vector vaccine as well. Although they've been a lot less reticent or a lot more reticent to publish actual data on it uh, anywhere that's peer reviewed. Okay, which is not good. So when the flu season started, I asked you, is it possible we'll have a mild flu season? because everybody's wearing masks and washing their hands. It's turning out to be the most mild flu season in recent memory. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's incredibly mild. Um, is, that because, mean, I, is that because people are wearing masks? And that, that's going to be a huge contributor to that, definitely. Is there a, da- is there a downside to a mild flu season? Do we need uh, to get the flu? I mean, do, do <laughs> no, you, you'd be okay not getting the flu. Um, I, I think what people would tell you is long-term over your lifespan, having been infected and developed a good memory response to lots of variants of the flu will help you later in life. Uh, if any related variants recur and your immune system is immunosuppressed because you're older. Uh, but in, in the main... You know, no, you're, you're not going to be suffering through a lack of influenza infection. Okay. Now the questions that I'm amazed that I still don't know the answer to, and I apologize. People tell me they had the virus. They no longer have the antibodies. If you no longer have the antibodies, that doesn't mean you no longer have the B, B cell memory. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. The the cells that originally produced that antibody, they may have uh, had enough of an immune response to it the first time around that there are now cells, B cells that contain that same antibody sequence that shuttled off to uh, other places in the body, spleen, most likely other places, lymph nodes, potentially on scene too, in the, the respiratory tract, uh, and are waiting there to be reawakened upon exposure to the same thing again to start pooping out antibody very rapidly. Okay, so I go to my, I haven't gotten COVID. Uh, maybe I had it, I don't know. Uh, but I go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have COVID and here are the antibodies. Um, in three months, they test my blood. We would, we would assume my antibodies would be almost undetectable. Is that 
No, not necessarily. There's a lot of variation. So in the main, the more severe the infection in the first place, the longer the antibody response will remain uh, detectable and the greater the long-term memory B cell numbers will be, and therefore the more rapid and significant the response the second time around. But again, you know, you're talking 20 to 40% people are clearing this while it's asymptomatic. So they may not even be generating really significant memory immune response in the first place. Uh, and we've certainly seen a number of documented instances of reinfection, and there's a lot more suspected instances. So of reinfection, you can be reinfected with a variant or the same exact COVID, or we don't know. I, I mean, there are most of the early documented cases of reinfection were not by substantially different variants. Okay, so they this is by, new information because as recently as mm-hmm. like three or four months ago, the the answer seemed to be. There was some people were saying there's no such thing as a reinfection. The only reason the person got it again is they never got rid of it the first time. Right. Now they're now it's more conclusive about reinfection. I mean, I I would say it was pretty conclusive in a number of well-documented cases a number of months ago. Uh, People would say, oh, those are very, very rare. Unfortunately, something in order to find something, you have to look for it. And in order to look for reinfection and, and document it really well to everyone's satisfaction, you have to do what's called sequencing. So you have to, oh, basically read the entire sequence of the viral RNA both times and show that it's not exactly the same thing and it probably didn't happen due to some persistent infection. Persistent infection may be occurring in some people who are relatively healthy. I I frankly doubt that, but definitely persistent infection is happening in in immunosuppressed people. Okay. And so there's, we've, we talked about that before. There's a number of case studies of individuals who had really significant immunological problems and just, they were, their their physicians were throwing absolutely everything they had at them. Regeneron antibody cocktails, remdesivir, convalescent plasma multiple times. And they ended up doing blood draws on these people over time during the process of treatment. And they showed the virus evolving inside of these people to escape uh, the antibodies that were either injected into them, produced inside of their body, uh, and potentially, although I rather doubt it, the remdesivir, which isn't frankly very effective anyway. Right. Do you get reinfected with the same flu strain? Very rare. Very rare. And and the common cold. Yes. You, you can catch yes. the same common cold. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a few times in COVID town squares and, and probably on your main show here. But yes, that's extremely well documented now in multiple countries with fairly large numbers of people that over your lifespan, you're going to get continually reinfected with human coronaviruses on the average of oh every few years when you're young. Uh, and in uh, numerous documented cases, as shorter length of time as six months from the previous infection. And, and uh, you can be reinfected, but if your B cell memory is sharp, hmm. it's mild. Typically, yeah, typically reinfection is going to be much more mild. Uh, yeah. And hopefully, almost certainly, although this case is a little, a little funky, so we're not totally sure, um, much more contained. 
So there'll be less virus produced. It won't be spreading into the lower respiratory tract. It'll be locked up in the upper respiratory tract, which is has somewhat different characteristics physiologically, as we've talked about a bit. Uh, does, B, what, does B cell um, memory ever disappear? Uh, eventually, it, it, yeah, it can. Uh huh. So that's why but, you need to get either a booster shot or just the shot again, right? Yeah, and and remember, there's the the other wing of the memory immune system, T cells, uh, and T cell memory declines more slowly. It appears so once you've generated a nice robust T cell response. Which is why, uh, for instance, I was suggesting seniors should probably get two shots of the Johnson & Johnson in order to get a nice detectable T-cell response. They needed to get two shots. The general population under 55, no. Totally fine with a single shot. Really good, in fact. Um, okay, so you get... so I Memory T-cells last longer and will provide some degree of control, even if there's not B-cells that are able to rapidly poop out antibody. Uh, one of the wings of the, the T-cell response are integral in creating and improving the antibody response from the B-cell. So they're sort of talking to and from one another, you might say. But yes, um, with SARS-1, the original, which was much more severe on average, and it appears a bit less contagious, um, and certainly less likely aerosolizably contagious. Uh, memory memory B cells were found in most patients at least four or five years out. Right. Um, after seven years, it really started to go downhill. But if those people had a booster at, at that point, after their initial infection, they probably would have bumped their uh, memory B cells way back up. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, last question, but before I ask it, I should level with the audience. This is really Jackie the Jugman Marling, and he's just making up shit. No, uh, just... You guys! <laughs> no, this is great. You know, I don't get to talk to you one-on-one -on -one anymore, so this is really great. I, I, I miss this. So this is my last question. I, I, I hope you... Well, obviously, I'm going to see you on February 20th for mm. COVID Town Square's my last question is you get the Pfizer shot. Yeah. The next week I get my blood tested. Do they see antibodies? Am I making antibodies? Um, almost certainly there'll be some amount of antibody response within a week or two. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for 10 to 16 days. So uh, if you go to your doctor, really you go to your doctor and you don't tell him you got the shot and you test a week later for COVID, what does the COVID test show? The antibody, the antibody test will come up positive, yeah. Uh, your doctor will probably freak out and, you know, <laughs> ask you why you didn't report your symptoms and then shuttle you off to get a nasopharyngeal swab, which will come up negative because you don't have the virus in your uh, nasopharyngeal passage. Uh, and then you'll be a ha-ha doc, just messing with you. Uh -huh. I got my I got my first shot, and I wanted to see if it would show up. And then and then that's when your doctor stabs you in the throat with uh, right with a blunt object. Okay, and then the antibodies again. I um, I know this is tiresome for you. Uh, they stick around. We don't know how long those antibodies. I would assume. Well, how long would you test? I, I think for most people, if you're vaccinated, so let's disaggregate two different things. If you're infected, 
that's going to vary much more substantially than if you're vaccinated. You're going to get a lot more antibodies if you're infected. Yes. Right. With, with the currently approved vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines in the U.S., your antibody levels are crazy high. It, it's like you almost died in, in terms of your antibody levels. You are at the very say, tippy say, top. I'm sorry. Say that again, please. So your your immune response is equivalent to someone who had such a severe when you COVID-19. get the vaccine. Yes. So your your immune response is basically simulating with that injection a really severe infection without actually having the infection or any of the attendant dangers whatsoever. So your antibody response after those mRNA vaccines, after you get the second shot, a week or two out of that, are ridiculous. It's uh, the very high end of anyone who is infected naturally. So you're going to get a fever. You're going to get inflammation, right? When you almost certainly, yeah, yeah. So if you get the vaccine, your your body, your antibodies kick in, and they're fighting a non-existent virus and that causes inflammation and sweating and fever and you're not going to make myalgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not so everybody though. Right? No, no, it, it's going to vary pretty substantially um, between individuals and, uh, and other individuals typically with after the second shot is when you're going to see the most significant symptom. So there's going to be a lot of people who are like, wow, that was, that was pretty, pretty rough for a couple of days. So you're saying that your- the vaccine Hmm. simulates a massive infection. The result of the vaccine is effectively the same as having had a massive infection. The mRNA vaccines, at the very least, and certainly the Novavax uh, protein, recombinant protein vaccine looks very similar. Okay, and then then in in nine months, ten months, the antibodies, what, they kind of... They'll probably have declined to a pretty significant degree, but because you had so much to begin with, you'll probably be producing a fair amount still. Uh, And because you made so much antibody in the first place, you're going to have a lot of memory B cells that are ready to go next time they see anything that looks like what they're targeting, which is the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Okay. We're not going to get rid. It's fair to say in the next 10 years, the COVID, we should think of COVID, unfortunately, like the common cold, not the common cold. We, there's no cure for the common cold, but uh, there may be because of the mRNA research. But we we should look, we should start thinking of COVID the same way we think of a flu, right? In terms of... It, it looks like it's going to be endemic. In short, yes. Uh, so many people have been infected on every continent in the world and every country in the world that it looks like it's on the verge of becoming endemic. Uh, I think it would it would still be possible to avoid that. The question is, has it gotten out into a significant number of animal reservoirs? Uh, we talked about mink farms in the past uh, in terms of mink are readily able to contract this. And their relatives, the other mustelids, the weasels, the stoats, the, the otters, are almost all certainly susceptible. Almost certainly all of the apes and are going so to be susceptible. And so we will always, for in the foreseeable future, and then I'll have, I know Professor Marianne has a question, in the foreseeable hmm. future, expect to need more shots. I, I would have a strong expectation of that, yeah. And if you get the shot, you still have to wear a mask. Yes, your 
we have some prelim uh, data from AstraZeneca, and they're claiming a reduction of about two thirds in terms of viral load in the upper respiratory tract. So as I mentioned, probably at the very beginning of when we started talking to each other about the vaccines in particular, probably not going to completely eliminate uh, infection or at least minor carriage in the upper respiratory tract. And that's more or less what we're seeing. So yes, you could still transmit something that you're effectively not going to get particularly hurt by uh, after being vaccinated. That does appear to be the case. It's much, much less likely, uh, which is so, great. A, I, we have Professor Mike Steinel is about to join us. I know Professor Marianne Cummings has a question. Com- well, yeah. Comedy club. Hang on. I'm sorry, but I, I'm I'm sorry. Let me just uh, comedy clubs, restaurants, indoor dining. We're told this summer soon. But with the variants and we've been told a lot of things. That certainly presupposes a level of control, a level of testing. But even if you get, if you got this entire country vaccinated, Mm. it's still people, are they going to be going to offices? It it seems to me we're still going to have to be isolated. Look, if everybody got vaccinated, that would be A, fantastic, and B, would do a heck of a lot to solve the massive overcrowding and accompaniment, excuse me, accompanying traumatization of our healthcare uh, workers that we've done so far over the last year. Um, they're going to be suffering PTSD for decades uh, because we we are so terrible at a country at, at even trying to contain this. So yeah, I, I could see in a few years, yeah, people being fairly comfortable with that, uh, even under really close quarters. But summer, no, that seems that seems a bit out of reach, uh, particularly given that, again, as with the, with the paper, that's my profile pick. The B117 so-called UK variant has taken off in 30 states uh, and has a significant advantage in terms of transmission, probably a significant advantage in terms of transmission from children as well, which is particularly worrisome. Uh, so <laughs> given that. Given our so far, you know, somewhat incompetent uh, response and containment in testing, uh, I'm I'm not optimistic, Professor Marianne. Well, you know, there. By the way, seem- I apo- excuse me. I apologize to my audience for talking to you and treating you like adults and telling you the truth. Oh. go ahead. And there's some great questions in the Q and A too, but I just wanted to say that. Uh, the, the, the death rate and the case rate seems to be plummeting all over the country now. Mm-hmm. And there's really not a whole lot of people, very small percentage, have had both shots with enough time to get the full immunology. Do you think there's something else going on? And, and they're also beginning to open, too, as people feel that the, the vaccine is coming. It, could there be something natural contributing to this precipitous fall in cases? Sure. I, I think anytime we see really dramatic rises or fall, it's, it's probably a combination of multiple factors, uh, including in this case, behavioral. Um, yeah, we're going to so, see a Super Bowl spike. Yes. I would not be surprised that anytime we have 
large, oh, major cultural events that happen over the year and, and result in large gatherings that we'll see spikes after them. And then after those spikes go up, they'll come back down. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's certainly a possibility in some of the smaller states that you are seeing some kind of herd immunity effects from combinations of vaccination and natural infection. I think certain estimates have, oh, I think some of the Dakota, the Dakota estimates for North Dakota are probably 50% or more, uh, which is crazy high in terms of the population being infected. But again, just an estimate so far. So yes, there's, there's certainly potentially other variables going on there. I think we also have less dithering at the highest executive levels in, in terms of, is this a problem? Is this just a, something that I can, you know, get amazing medical care and then do a Mussolini walk up the stairs and throw my mask off like a He-Man. <laughs> so, you know, yes. Um, I've heard, that's probably true, um, but I've heard also that the reactions uh, to the uh, vaccines are actually more pronounced in younger people than in older people. That would be what you would expect. In really? fact, yes, because the older you are, the more your immune system senesces. So uh, younger people in particular are going to have really, really high reactogenicity in, in the main because their immune system is more broadly speaking, stronger. Okay. Oh, we, we have to wrap it up last. I'm sorry. And then, you, you know, you should, if you can, if you can find time to come back either. But well, here, let, let, let me hit the Q and A's real quick. Uh, David, before before we okay. jump. Thank you. Uh, we got, are the so-called UK South African strains really new strains or an inevitable evolution of the original virus? They're both. They're not new serovars. So they are still susceptible, oh, to the sort of the same immunological response to a certain degree. Um Second question is what fraction of people are infected via nose versus eye versus touch is overwhelmingly via the respiratory tract. Uh, fomite transmission via touch is not thought to be a particularly significant uh, modality in this case. And, and it, that's been pretty clear for a number of months, I'd say. They go on to say, are mask wearers overestimating how protected they are in closed room situations? Uh, yes, small rooms, even if everybody's got a surgical mask on, if one of them has a rip roaring infection and people are just sitting in an enclosed room with no airflow. Yeah. They're the longer they're in there, the, the greater the likelihood they will contract it because the masks are not perfect. Uh, if everybody had an N95 or a KN95 or, you know, double mask, if, if you could do it, uh, that would help. But yeah, again, you want, you want airflow, the more susceptible the person needs the airflow away from them. That would be what I would suggest for teachers, for anybody who has a retail establishment, get a fan, put it behind you, blow it toward the customer, out the door. You do not want what they've got coming toward you. Uh, the uh, next one is, are you an author on that paper? No, although I know a couple people on it, although not particularly well. Uh, severe immune response and no danger sounds contradictory, RE vaccine response. I mean, it's not a dangerous immune response. Uh, so, it's a really significant response. Uh, I mean, if I said severe, that, that might not be exactly the right word. What I was trying to communicate was that your immune response to the full two-dose vaccine regimen is as if you had had a severe infection, only you did not. So that, that's what I'm trying to uh, 
get at there. Uh, Nancy asks, are the shots first and second interchangeable? That has not been demonstrated. It would be fairly surprising if they didn't work reasonably well in concert with one another. Uh, the, even the mRNA versus the adeno? Uh, I mean, sure. I would probably say you would want to keep the, look, ideal case or really the reasonable case unless you have no other option is to follow what the clinical data that's been published with large numbers of people from disparate genetic backgrounds uh says and what that says is follow the frigging manufacturer's instructions if you're doing anything other than that guaranteeing anything is they're just lying to you if they're guaranteeing something uh that being said i would strongly anticipate you could mix and match the mrnas with almost no problem between each other and yeah heterologous uh prime boosting is effectively what the russian sputnik v vaccine is it's two different shells uh producing the same protein inside of your body but your immune system recognizes one can't recognize the other uh so and andy brown has the how effed are we update well, well, Andy, I, I would say more effed than we were last time you asked. But, really? Uh, yes. Uh, just because we have we have B117 taking off, it is invading and taking over the the population of of the virus and in, in the country, and it's going to be, as I mentioned, the predominant the predominant variant within a month, most likely. And, uh, and and that's because it appears to transmit better. It appears to result in higher viral loads in children. Uh, the estimates, oh, Boris Johnson said 70%. That's almost certainly a, oh, a composite of both viral uh, dynamics in, in terms of the physical characteristics of the virus and, and social alteration of behavior at the same time. Uh, the best uh, publications I've seen estimating this are, you know, 30 to 40%. Uh, up to 50%, maybe. So once that gets a toehold, which it has definitely done in more than 30 states now, it's it's going to really take off. Uh, happily, it's not going to be able to evade the vaccines worth a darn uh, at the current moment. So the more people who are vaccinated, the faster we can get that done, the less of a concern. B117, at least the original version, not the Kent version, which picked up evolutionarily one of the same mutations that the South African and Brazilian slash Japanese strain has. Oh, are you there? Yes, sir. Uh, and finally, therapeutics. We keep talking about the, you know, the, uh, the vaccine. What about therapeutics? Is that in six months is you're no longer going to get the, the death sentence that we were getting. Is that fair? There's, I, I wouldn't go that far. No. Um, but there's certainly a lot, a lot of developments happening in terms of therapeutics. Um, hopefully the UK trials with nebulized beta interferon work out like they should. Uh, that would be really fantastic. Uh, if that's the case, there is some indication that injected gamma interferon is really helpful too. Then yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've already, the, the clinicians in, in concert with the researchers have already cut the death rate really dramatically uh, in the US, but you absolutely positively have to keep your ICUs well-staffed and not overflowing and because you cannot guarantee the same quality of care once it's overflowing and you're rationing oxygen. Right. So yeah, keep your masks on folks. 
Keep your mask. Double up on your masks. Get the shots. Yes, you can. Get the shots. So far, 27.1 million Americans have gotten COVID. 464,779 of us have died. And uh, that's down 8%. The 14-day rolling average is down 8% on the deaths. And 31%, the 14-day rolling average on cases is down 31%. We'll see what happens after uh, two weeks after the Super Bowl. Thank you, COVID. COVID. Irritable. Thank you, Irritable. Take care, everybody. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week, I hope. And we'll see you at COVID Town Squares February 20th, I hope. Let us now go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinel is. Oh, you're in the center of America. Can you hear me, David? Yes, and you're you're in the center of the lower 48, where Bruce I was Springsteen. Born, I was born in that chapel. Is that where Bruce Springsteen did his Jeep ad? Yes. I wasn't now, were you really in born in that chapel? I was born 18 minutes away in Smith Center, Kansas. I, my dad had a job in Gaylord, which was about 20 minutes from that place. And um, I was, we left when I was two, so I don't remember anything about it. But um, I remember that I always learned that Smith Center was close to the center. And then there was this place out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's not where that chapel is, but there's a marker, and I've been by it. Um, uh, it, it's there's two centers. There's one's the geographic, and then a little south of that is the geodesic, and it's in Tipton. And it depends on um, what how they how they measure it. Did you see that ad? What yes, did you I think did. Of the ad? Did you like it? Uh, is Chry is Chrysler an American company? Jeep Chrysler? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if Chrysler. I think they are. Jeep's American. Come on, David. It's Jeep. Oh, okay. It's American. And and Bruce Springsteen, does he need money? I think he had a message. That we should uh, come together. Yeah. He says, I, I wrote out the script, part of it. Says, yeah, what did he say? There's a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It's a church that never closes. All are welcome. So far, to so far I'm offended. <laughs> all are welcome to come meet here in the middle it's no secret the middle has been a hard place to get to lately between red and blue between servant and citizen between our freedom and our fear so now, here's fear. the problem with them okay the professor <laughs> the republican party is so far to the right that the middle means you're just a fascist that's just that's a, what that is. It's a slight fascist. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Republican Party has gone so far to the right. If we're going to meet them at the middle, that means we should be fascists. We should just have authoritarian <laughs> rule here. I mean, Bruce Springsteen telling us to calm down and meet in the middle. Uh, I love Bruce Springsteen. The, I do the, too, the, the problem... The problem isn't we need more bipartisanship. The, the, the problem is we have the Democrats with the House, the Senate, and the White House who are refusing to say 
to the Republicans, you're insane. Go F yourself. You know, um, you always ask me what I've been reading. Yes. So, on so I don't know. I, I don't know why Bruce Springsteen would tell everybody to calm down uh, for money. Well, I think. Why would you like, you know, he he was a, he's been approached for years to do a Super Bowl ad. And I don't think I think this is the first ad he's ever done. So I'm sure he's donating the money. I'm sure if it's yeah. Bruce Springsteen, he doesn't need. So he's donating it to a cause. He's trying, I suppose, you know, you always, you always get on uh, Bob Dylan for not. Well, he did the same ad. Yeah, he, he he's on the Jeep ad. There's a one that is just, it's just the instrumental track from, from uh, one of his albums. It doesn't even have his voice on it, but I recognized the, the guitar. I thought that's, that's a Bob Dylan. And I went and checked it. And sure enough, uh, he, you know, they've been marketing a lot of his music. Let me read the second paragraph of... Uh, so far, listen, I'm from New Jersey. Bruce Springsteen is God. Okay. I'm just surprised that he would do that. I'm, I'm assuming He's getting all a lot of, my- of criticism from the left that, you know, and, and uh, Steven Van, Steve Van Zandt, he doesn't do Twitter. I, well, well, no, I think he got criticized on Twitter but he doesn't do social media. So Stephen Van Zant, you know, that's he's in his band. Yeah, he he Silvio uh, from uh, the Sopranos. Was, oh, that's right, he was in the Sopranos. Was he good in it? I never watched the Sopranos. Oh, I'm jealous that you've never seen the Sopranos. <laughs> I saw the last episode. You know, because oh, they I'm showed jealous. that. <laughs> Why? Just I would because love now. To, I get to see it. Yeah, now I get to yeah, see it. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So, yeah. what does Steve Van Zant say? He said, get off his back, you know, it's, uh, he's not equating. The, the, the gist of most of the criticism that I saw was that, oh, he's, he's get, letting people off the hook for January 6th. And uh, Steve, Steve said no. But let's talk about something else. Well, okay, if, if Steve, he didn't play Sun City, so I do love yeah. Steve Van Zandt. Maybe hey, we should, yeah, go ahead. Do you, ever, yes. you know what a Cassandra is? It's from the Iliad. She was like the one who could foresee horrible things. A soothsayer. Do you ever feel like that? Uh, she was yeah. cursed with two things. She was cursed with the ability to sp- spout utter truths, but also cursed with no one would believe her. Did you read this article about um, how the Internet has rewired our brains? Uh no. It's Michael. The guy's name is Michael Goldhaber. And it's really pretty interesting. He, was, he had this theory like in, in the late 80s about what he called the attention economy. And he basically saw that there was such a glut of news in the 80s. Information was just, you know, expounding. And it was all about getting people's attention. And then, of course, when the Internet came along, it just got worse, he said. He said, when you have attention, you have power, and some people will try and succeed in getting huge amounts of attention, and they would not use it in equal or positive ways. He says, uh, warned of the attention economy's destabilizing effects, including how it is disproportionately benefits the most shameless among us, our abilities to pay attention are limited. 
not so our abilities to receive it. The value of true modesty or humility is hard to sustain in an attention economy. And he kind of, it's, it's one of the few explanations of, of Trump's success that kind of makes a little more sense. Uh, he says, uh, most obviously he saw Trump with the tweets, the rallies, and the cable news dominus that defined his presidency as a near-perfect product of an attention economy, a truth that disturbed him greatly, that disturbed this guy, uh, Michael Goldhaber, greatly. Yeah. He said, you know, like he said, the the phenomenon of of that crowd on January 6th taking so many videos and selfies, you know, like it's... It felt as if an expression of a world in which everyone is desperately seeking their own audience and fracturing reality in the process. He says, I only see that as accelerating. But I thought it was a pretty interesting article. I try to, I find a lot of good stuff in the Sunday Review. Of the New York Times. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But um, this one in particular, I thought was really interesting. So being from the absolute center of America. Yeah. What are you, uh, are you optimistic as? Oh, man. You know, I'll tell you a story. We got the shot last Friday. And um, a friend of mine, I called him about something else. And uh, I was saying how well run it was. It was amazing. They had 16 stations. We showed up. We were supposed to show up at 9, and we showed up at 8.45. They were ready for us. They were waving the cars in. We couldn't drive fast enough. They had all these guys, like, going, you know, like to uh, a, a, a stadium event. And they're, they're go here, go here, and you, and you get in the thing, and then they, they scan your deal, and they give you a thing to fill out. And, and I was driving, and I was trying to fill out this, and they're waving us through. We got our shot at 9 a.m. Wow. And we, were, we had to wait 15 minutes so we didn't turn into uh, aliens or something. Yeah. And we were, and that was it, you know. And I was telling this friend, you know, so organized. All these, it was firemen and it was uh, uh, policemen and it was volunteers and it was nurses and there was probably some doctors there and just everybody's wearing a mask. And, it, you know, it's so well run. He says, well, it probably wasn't the government, was it? I don't know if he talked that way. And I said, as a matter of fact, it was. It was county health, and it was it was all the it was your fire department. I got a little mad, you know. Dang right, it was the government, and right. and, and and it can do some good things if we give it a chance. Anyway, you know, I think cor- the, people- the government doesn't brand itself the way corporations do. They the the government needs to take out a Super Bowl ad and, <laughs> and remind, or at least on April fifteenth. Remind yeah. us why we're paying taxes. Government has become a bad word. But Ronald Reagan, remember? Yeah, government, government. And it's I'm become for, a bad word. I'm here word. from the government, and I'm here to help. What are that? I'm here from the government, and I'm here to help. The scariest ten words in the English language, right. he said. You yeah. know, so damaging. What a damaging thing to put out there. But when there's a hurricane, uh, the first... You're warned about the hurricane by the government, and it's the government that saves you. And there was a story in the New York Times last week about this 
nonprofit homeless group that gets millions and millions of dollars from the city to administer the homeless. And it turns out it's filled with, you know, uh, scandal, sexual harassment. Oh, I read that. I read about that guy. The guy who runs it. Oh, it's horrible. Is making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I'm thinking, so our tax dollars, we're giving this guy tens of millions of dollars a year to take care of the homeless under the guise of it being more efficient if a nonprofit administers our tax dollars. No, it's just, that's government. Government waste stems from turning over government jobs to nonprofits or having corporate partnerships. That's where the government waste comes from. Yeah. Privatization. Yeah. Yeah. The post office. Mm. Anyway, let us. uh, I sent a song. Yeah. Let's play this and I'll run. uh, Let me play. I I, I I sent two just for old time's sake. I sent hard times in the city. Let's play that. You want to play that? Yeah. Okay. I can also play. I played You Like Them. I could play that. But Did you play it today? No, I played it. Uh, I played it last Tuesday, I believe. I'm having trouble keeping up with. Hey, by the way, you were great on Sam's show. Oh, you were thank really, you. That was really good. That I finally was- got that listened to on Sunday morning when I was walking. He does. So, he is so great. The Sam Majority Report is so good, and they know so much. Uh, he covers it better than anybody. Let me I see. I try to watch it every day. Yeah, he's the best. Sam Cedar is the best. He's a pretty good straight man with you, too, yeah. I think. Yeah, He'll just ask me, what should I? Anyway, uh, he's the best. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Hot times in the city Hot times 
I love that. All your stuff is great. Well, thank you. All your stuff is great. I need to write a couple new ones. I owe you some new ones. Or I can just play, you know, they used to say about gun control. <clears throat> yeah. You don't need new laws. I just need to enforce <laughs> the ones that are already on the books. Right? Isn't that what they used to say? Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to legalize uh, gambling in Texas? Sports gambling? We, ha we have casinos. No, don't. We don't. I don't know. We, I'm so close to the world's largest casino. It's just right over the river and up in Oklahoma. There's a ton of them in Oklahoma. I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I, I, I can tell you. It's, it's a bad not. thing. It's not. <laughs> it's amazing. I, um, you know what the worst thing about those casinos? It's just the sound. Ging, 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 ging. The machines. Yeah. Playing music. I've had friends who play out there, play at that place, and you have to play in that key. Of the, they're all in the same key. Ding, 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 mm -hmm. ding, ding. And when you play a song that doesn't fit with that, it just drives some people nuts, you know? Yeah. I've lived Very. my entire, I've lived an entire year in Las Vegas. If you look back at my comedy career, I've spent 52 weeks living in Las Vegas. And if I never go back to Las Vegas again, it's too soon. It's a sad place, isn't it? It's a, nobody's smiling. Nobody's having a good time. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. They've taken a, a sickness. Gambling is a disease. And they've built an entire industry around repackaging a disease and making it sound fun. While yeah. lives are being destroyed, people are cheering and they're happy. They're, they're, they're on commercials. You're having fun losing all your money. <laughs> that's that's what gambling is. And, and now they're going to now you can just do it online. Oh, yeah. Right. It's and very they, easy. And, and, and so they're waving opportunity in front of your face. Like yeah. we're not going to create jobs for you. We're not going to give you a, a basic income. We're not going to save you from COVID. But uh, you can go online now and get lucky for a few minutes and then lose it all. Not you know, my, mo my mother, who was a math teacher, high school librarian, very uh, prim and proper, she became a crackerjack uh blackjack player and they you know they went out to Ve they retired and they took their first trip to vegas and she won uh, she won a thousand in a slot machine and she was hooked they i mean they had it under control but they would just love to go to a casino and i played one time with her we went to the blackjack table and when she started winning she started pushing chips out there and i would go mom what are you doing this is what you do <laughs> when you're up you're up <laughs> <laughs> and you got to ride that pony. You know, there's a direct correlation between the spread of gambling and people playing the stock market and uh, believing in luck as opposed to hard work. Yeah. I, I, I think it's gambling for the government to 
get into gambling. New York now wants you know the lottery. It, it is end times when when we allow everyone to gamble. Another distraction to to keep us from focusing on our real enemy. Yeah. And that's Jim yeah. Earl. Jim Earl is our enemy. Jim Earl. Jim He's Earl. A funny, funny yeah. guy. We're going to wrap like it up, Merkins. sir. Okay. All Thank right, you. We'll do this. Uh, come by Thursday or come by Monday, I hope. Yeah, I'm not sure about Thursday, but I'll be back next week. And I'll okay. probably see you Friday. Oh, good. Um, and we'll and we'll get I screwed up on Friday. I apologize. No problem. No problem. Thank you. I'll do an I'll do. I'll get a song worked up. I love you. Thank you. All so the best. Much. Same here. You're Bye -bye. an embarrassment of riches. Well, <laughs> I think Danny Frankenberger went went bye bye. I, there you are. I'm here. Hey, I got some postcards in the mail. Holy moly! It seems we've. we've I got one too. Yeah, they look great. Uh, hey, yep. anything in the newsroom? Anything in the community calendar? Glenn Costick? Yeah. What? What? Any information on Glenn Costick's diet? <laughs> yes, we do. He made some uh, caraway and rye bread, as a matter of fact. <sighs> so here's here's what I got today. Okay. Um, Diabetic Fury Five is coming up this weekend on the thirteenth, which you've mentioned a couple times today. Um, we got Robert Smigel and Rick Overton helping to raise money for diabetes awareness. So check that out. We got the uh, Eventbrite page up and running. So and it's can, pay uh, what you want, I believe, right? Pay what you want. Yep. And the the following week, we have the COVID Town Squares next fundraiser, which is on the 20th. So we, uh, that's coming up the following. We've had a few weeks off here, so now we're going to get back to work. Mm -hmm. um, well, we had to get the post we, we, We're finally getting all the postcards out, so... Right. Yep. Um, Glenn Costick, like you mentioned, he yes. had some, uh, he's had a, a few uh, food items going out over the last couple of weeks, sea, seaweed and mushroom soup. Mm. So he started with on, onions and butter and, and uh, dried shiitake, wakami and kelp. Wow. And then he added garlic, thyme, carrot, choy, napa, garlic, jalapeno and beans. And uh, he's, he later reported that the soup thickened up nicely. So oh, good. good. Thank you for that update. Um, the uh, after the storm that we uh, a lot of us endured, he got his firewood stack restocked. Good, no problem, and made himself a whole wheat caraway rye loaf, which looked great uh, on Any Facebook. Pictures? You follow him on Facebook. It's oh great. yeah, they're on Facebook. Yep. Okay. Yep. It would have been nice and, if you. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. It just would have been nice if you brought the photos. Next time, I'll go. <laughs> oh, I have something to hang on, hang on, hang on. Thank you for this. I think he is a pussy cat, but he's a neutered pussy. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Were you able to slip that into the interview today, or did no? I didn't do that, but uh, <laughs> that made me. I think he is a pussy cat, but he's a neutered pussy. <laughs> What a laugh. What else? Uh, it's, uh, it'll last forever. Yeah. <laughs> also, in the last couple of weeks, he displayed uh, some uh, glass paperweights he made and some of his chickens. He had a little video of them uh, eating and drinking, so that was cool. Huh. Henry Huckamacki. We always Never like heard of him. him. Who's Henry Huckamacki? We call him H.H. 
Oh, okay. He's got the uh, Gorilla History Podcast going with Professor Hussein and Brett O'Shea. Mm-hmm. And you can check out the Gorilla History Podcast on Twitter at Gorilla underscore pod. And their Patreon is uh, patreon.com forward slash Gorilla History. Um, and then Henry's personal uh, social media is twitter.com forward slash Huck1995. And his Patreon is the same, Huck1995. Um, Anything Tom and Barb Weber. I was just going to ask you about. I know. Tom and Barb Weber, uh, they've been still doing their Tuesday night shows. Uh, I watched it after the fact last week. I couldn't watch it during last week because I was shoveling the driveway. It was uh, Tuesday was a big snow day for us in the Northeast. Um, and tomorrow is going to be a big snow day, right? Oh, no. I haven't looked. Yeah, Great. we've got like two two big snow days coming up. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I can play it on my phone while I'm shoveling, and I usually listen to a podcast, so I, I think I need to listen to them instead. So I will do that. Uh, JJ's petition for the David Feldman Wolf Howell soundboard. Yes, I signed that. Yeah, you signed it, so I just want to remind people about that. I haven't even checked it in a few days. I'm not sure what it's up to, but last time I checked, we were between 80 and 90, so the goal is to get it up to 100. So check that out at change.org and just search for uh, David Feldman Wolf and uh, you'll, you'll find that. Um, now, I can I brag about something? Sure. So Chartreuse comes to office hours, and she's always painting. And I thought, well, you know what would be great for an hour? To watch her paint. It was like ASMR. It was like somebody was giving me a scalp massage watching Chartreuse paint. Now, I got sent this from Lane. I don't think Lane is the Coco. same. That is Coco. That's the yep. ragamuffin. Lane Hewitt painted that. He was inspired by Chartreuse. Here's the thing. I think in order for Lane Hewitt to have this much talent, there, ha- there has to be seven lanes. Look how great that is. Yeah, that's great. I saw it. I saw it on Facebook earlier when I was swiping. I was like, Jesus. I thought it was a picture at first, but I think it's, am I, I'm not sure if it's pencil. I think it's pencil. He has, I mean, it just doesn't stop with him. It just doesn't stop with Lane. Between the music, the storytelling, the jokes, the, the, the characters, the painting, and the pilot knowledge. The pilot, like you think when you, Aeronautics. He's, one, he's one of those people, when you first meet him, you think, yeah, sure, this guy's completely full of it. No, he's great. I, I, I saw Chartreuse's presentation. It was so Saturday night. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. I think, yep. And then Professor Marianne Cummings and Lane were right around that time frame. Too. Right. And yeah, it was just great. I, I, I fell asleep uh, after Lane. What, so what time did it end? Um, Lane kept going. I think we ended up going like 26 or 27 hours total. So for those that don't know, office hours and hours, we've been planning on doing it once a month. And, uh, yeah, we went 26, 27 hours starting uh, Friday night at 8 Eastern. And, we, yeah, we went till 9, 10, a little after 10. We were wondering if you were going to come back because you disappeared. We, didn't, we weren't sure I, if you I fell asleep. went to the bathroom. I, I fell passed asleep. Out. I passed yeah. out. I, you know what, what I like to do now is when I'm kind of done, I like to sit in bed and listen on my iPad 
and like Tom Weber doing the lectures on nonviolence. Oh yeah, very very yeah. common. What what else is what else do you have before? And then we'll wrap it up. Um, let's see. I wanted, to, I wanted to bring up a longtime listener, Joe Brinson. Yes. Do we he's have any up, photographs? I don't have any photographs, but he's he's uh, put up a post or two uh, indicating that he's got some stuff for Valentine's Day with the earrings he sells. Well, so you want to go to a JoeBrintonJewelry.com to tell, check tell that him, out. Tell him to send us some uh, pictures. We'll run them during community calendar on Thursday. Fantastic. Yeah. And then uh, if you want to get anything into the... Uh, community billboard just send an email to dentfeldman and gmail.com uh, someone just mentioned a few minutes ago that, that you were on the majority report this week i haven't checked it out yet but that went well i take it it went great great i love doing that show yeah, yeah i hear you yeah good all right how are we getting jim Earl back uh i think he's on with the fbi i think he's an, oh. F he's an fbi informant didn't you know that about jim? <laughs> i heard you uh, mention that was the humpty dumpty egg yeah, video well, montage. <laughs> uh, Joe in Norway wants to have a office hours meeting tomorrow night. Do you have time? Yep. Okay, and then Wednesday, I get we're going to do a diabetic rehearsal, rehearsal. and okay. then Friday is office hours, and then uh, Saturday night, February thirteenth, diabetic fury. If you would like to attend diabetic fury, you know the drill. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, Hit pay per view. Takes you right to the Eventbrite page. It's pay what you want. And anybody who goes, who buys a ticket, will get a sticker. No, no, we'll get a downloadable. Go read the tiers, and I'll go over them on Thursday's show. Or Friday's show, if you're listening to this as a podcast. Sign up for my newsletter. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Let me see if I can guess. The, uh, re, let me see if I can rehash the show. I'm going to have trouble. Okay. Five, uh, we started at 5 o'clock. And uh, Jacob. Yep. From Bessemer, Alabama with Henry Huckamacki. No, 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 no. No, hang on. Yes. No. Hang on. Yes. No, no, I'm sorry. We're Ricky. Ricky. Yep. And Jacob Morrison. Yep, Morrison. Then at five thirty, it was Henry with Glenn Ford. Ford. Yep, Glenn Ford from the movie Ransom, and we we had Glenn Ford on. No, Glenn Ford. G L Y N. Right. Okay. Uh, and then let me see. Five thirty-six. We had Aaron Berg. Yes, he tore you apart. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Six thirty was Mark Breslin. Seven was Allie, who's running for Congress in Virginia with Howie Klein. Seven thirty would have been uh, Senator Susan Collins and FBI informant Jim Earl. Then Dr. Harriet Fraud. Then at eight thirty, I'm getting this right, right? Yep, that's looking good. Renan Hirschberg and Ethan Hershenfeld. Then we had Rick Overton. How great was Rick Overton? He's uh, he's hilarious. That was terrifyingly brilliant. <laughs> that's when you're bouncing in and out with bad links, and yeah, yeah. he eventually got yeah. back on with a yeah. Okay, yeah. Hang on. then nine thirty, we had uh, Professor Marianne Cummings. Yep, ten. 
We had the irritable immunologist. That was great. Just yeah. talking to him one-on-one. I don't get to do that anymore. Uh, and then uh, 10.30 would be Professor Mike Steinel, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. And then right after Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom, I took off all my clothes. That's, that's what it says on the, the schedule. I'll get naked. <laughs> Go all check right. out the YouTube link. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, buddy. Yep. We, we, have a lot, we have a lot of work to do. You get busy. You get busy. We, we have to talk. But uh, yeah, thank you for everything. Thank you. You too. All right. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. And we will see you. When will we see you? We'll see you on Thursday, I hope. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a